This is Tancred, and you're listening to Aetherite Radio. Aetherite Radio? How exactly does that work? Someone get Burnholes in here. I need him to explain this to me. I need to know the law behind this. This is Fern Hall. You spoony bard. And you're listening to Aetherite Radio. Please look forward to it. Okay, here we are. We Uh made it. We did it. (laughs) In a mostly professional manner. Woo! Okay. (laughs) Hi! Total pros. Yeah. Welcome to Aetherite Radio. Gamerscapes. Final Fantasy XIV podcast. I always want to say I'm Fusion X. That's the next line. I'm Fusion X. I'm Zanidra. Um, today we are clearly missing two of our, our lovely dude fellows, but uh, they're here with us in heart and also somewhat in our outline. Um, the yeah, people- I like... I liked how this time around in our outline, um, they both put in just a slew of notes for us to share their opinions on behalf of them. So I think that we should, I mean, I wish we had prepped like sock puppets or something so that we could just like read the lines, but I mean, we'll just have to share their thoughts as we go. Charles. I need a different pair of glasses. Weirdly, I have one. This is fusion. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Today. We have the lovely Rook and the lovely Anonymous, and uh, hey, hey. I think I think between the three of us, we can we can totally do this lore thing. We got it. As I feel mostly okay. Um, you know, I am very inexperienced in lore talk. I don't even know if Moose has played Final Fantasy fourteen, but <laughs> I'm get, um, I'll get around to it. <laughs> get it's on my to do. It. It's in my backlog. Yeah, uh, that feels that I, feels I we weird to hear, even in jest. Yeah, I might play might play that game at some point. I hear it's got a free trial that goes all the way to level 60 that might be reinstated soon. That one day you can play once more. Yeah, how did you even get that? That's a rare commodity right now. Impressed. The black market. All right. If I can get this thingy to stop effing with me, we can have some news. We have a little bit of news. It may or may not actually involve... The, uh, the free trial. Mm. All right. Guys, did you know it's Heaven's turn right now? Uh, thanks for the reminder. I got like, what, four days? Yeah, I too. Yeah, I gotta finish. Yeah, it's actually four days. I too have not done Heaven's turn at all. <laughs> I've gotta be honest, with the expansion coming out, Every like holiday thing that has happened end of last year through the holidays now to Heavenstern and the fact that All Saints Wake is coming next month was it next month? I was sitting here going, Oh my gosh, I didn't even remember that that happened or could have happened or would have happened. <laughs> I was just like, All my thoughts were Endwalker. That was it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, as per the norm, we got a little poem, a little poem. Let's see if I can read cursive. So wanes the moon before the sun, its journey ended home at last. So look we now to days ahead, unfettered from our trying past. That's a very strange uh, P and S. I was like, unfettered from our trying fart. That's what it looks like. Well, now that's forever going to be ruined. But it's fine. It looks like fart. Anybody, anybody who can pull that up really quick, go go look at it. And tell me, it doesn't look like farts. 
Who's going to back me up on this? Yeah, sure, Zed. Mm -hmm, definitely does. Uh-huh. So how do we how do we feel about this one? I feel uh, it's a like uncharacteristically straightforward already. And yeah. then like just just in case you didn't get it, Yoshida explained it in the post. Yep. I know, I honestly, I looked it up. I was so excited. I was like, oh, we always get some cryptic thing that then for like the next few months, we're gonna just be losing it over and trying to pick apart. But it's pretty much just like, yeah, that stuff's done. And now new stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's it. There's there's not really anything else, yeah. I think, to really read into it, but. Uh, I think it means we're gonna visit the sun next. <laughs> so wanes the moon, it's time for the sun. Sure. I'm sure that's the, more of like a, the sun rises again on a new story, but yeah. There's well, been yeah. A, a running joke with me for a while, just because um, y'all sent me to uh, PAX East once for, for an interview with him. And Yoshida was like, he was explaining how he felt a little anxious about the idea of ending Hydaelyn and Zodiac and ending the Asians because he was really nervous that people were going to confuse it with the end of 14. Mm -hmm. So, like, from now on, what people are going to do is they're going to look at the game and they're going to say, oh, well, you know, the main story's over. These are extra stories or side stories. And he he just really didn't want that to happen. And he was just kind of, like, sitting there musing. And he's just kind of like, I might even, like, go somewhere else and fight something else just to flesh out the world a little bit. Like, that's how, how nervous I am that people are going to see it this way. So... Throughout all of the Endwalker era, there have been like five major times that like someone has wandered in and been like, hey, did you know there's a lot more to see? Did you know that like this journey's ending, but there's so much more? And I just keep flashing back to Yoshida saying that like, bro, he definitely suggested putting that in there. That's cute. You think in your head, at least as an individual, that that is so redundant and unnecessary. And then you look at the overall internet collective and you go, oh yeah, they did have to say that yeah. 7,000 times. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable the amount of people who just straight up are like, yeah, this must be the end, it's all over. And Yoshida-san's literally just sitting there like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's it's still keeping, it's gonna go on, it's gonna keep going. When and they... I mean, Good. Oh, I was just going to say, honestly, I'm so excited about it because, and we'll talk about this obviously as we get through the story stuff today, but there is so much that you can see that this team has grown in and the people who've even been like, you know, promoted because of their skill and talent. I mean, Ishikawa comes to mind, obviously, as narrative leads in this game. And yet you can tell even with Endwalker how many things long term they were just having to try to make work and fit in and accommodate and, you know, make a bigger picture out of. And for them to have a fresh start to do something and conceive it from beginning to end, wholly new story, entire new arc, I think it's going to be phenomenal. So we just have to all keep looking forward. And I think, yeah, this this poem was just a reminder of that. One one of the things I do every year is I try to translate all four versions of this poem. Like I mm -hmm. grab them from all the lodestones and try to see what they mean in the different languages. And uh, I was actually impressed with the the brave word choice from English this time because all the other ones say something along the lines of that. Um, the return of the sun to the heavens to the point of dawn where we started a realm reborn signals the end of our long journey, but the beginning of another to illuminate distant lands unknown. Whereas 
English says unfettered from our trying past as if it's saying straight up like we have spent 10 years thinking about every decision we make going okay but what are the Asians doing right now okay but what about Heidelin and Zodiac right now and this is the first time they get to say we get to do whatever we want we can go wherever we want we can do anything go anywhere yeah yeah absolutely I mean it it's you're right. It's so funny to hear you say that translation because it is pretty markedly different in the English. I was looking at it trying to, you know, immediately as we all do. It's like unfettered. Oh, is this what places or bosses or creatures have we seen that have chains? <laughs> you know, you're trying to like read into it. But I mean, they've said multiple times that they envision and have envisioned the expansions as almost this, yes, dawn cycle, right? This idea of the sun rising, setting. You see it in the imagery and all kinds of things. So I think that language... I would caution people rather than reading into it literally being a tale of the sun or something. Um, yeah, it seems like it's more a larger metaphor that they use for the game and how they kind of structure the action in the game overall. The whole uh, trying pass thing definitely makes me think of 1.0. Same. Yeah. Yes. It was trying. But it, it got better. Alright, so moving on from there. Um, <laughs> they shuffled holidays for us. Uh, this particular one makes actually kind of makes sense. Uh, All Saints Wink is immediately after Heaven's Turn from January 20th to February 2nd. Um, but it always comes I around with the carnival. Valentine's. Yeah. So it always comes around with the carnival, right? So the carnival was just late. It was, it was, there was, the world was ending. So they were like, eh, we're going to, the carnival will be later. So they just show up late. It's fine. Uh, the Endwalker soundtrack, which I know we're all waiting for, goes on sale February 23rd, and it comes with a wind-up free trial. What do they you what? did me so dirty with this <laughs> because, well, I love the music in this game, and I want to support the music in this game, obviously, but... This has maybe been the first soundtrack that I saw the minion before I even knew that the soundtrack was coming out. And I was like, where do I get that? How do I get that? Because I am obsessed with him and I love him. And then lo and behold, I found out it was connected to the album and I went, okay, well, I best pre-order that immediately then, I guess, just for this minion. But also the soundtrack was a banger. So I just hope when you pull Reacher out in game, the Astinians that already exist, their little like reaction animation, he just jumps on his back and they go for a little whirl. Oh. It'd be cute. Be so cute. Uh, the, what do you get? Runar. The Runar that comes with the latest art book actually interacts with uh, Yashtola, which my heart got super big. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. He gives, I didn't know that. Should I tell you what he does? Or do you want to find out? Wait, give her a flower? Probably give yes, her a he flower. He gives her a flower. Right? That's adorable. He That's precious. Sometimes, if you wait, for like 10 minutes like I did. Her animation, which has almost nothing to do with his, lines up with his. Hers is a little cast, right? So when she does her cast, she puts out a hand and it looks like he's holding the flower up and she's holding out a hand to take the flower. But you have to wait and wait and wait and wait for it to line up. It's worth it. I would wait yes. forever. It's so yes. cute. I mean, I love the little attention to detail that they do with those or even the beckon stuff that you can do with minions. It's so cute. So, uh, yeah, I'll be curious to see if the Vitro one actually does have some very special mm. animation. You know, they had to do that on purpose because he holds it up to just the right height. Just the right height. If you want to see, if you want to see it lined up, I may have taken a screenshot and put it on my Twitter. Just saying. 
Well All done, right. Zed. Thank you. Thank you. The Oceana Data Center will be open on Tuesday, January 25th. Bam! It's here suddenly. Congratulations. Uh, around 2 a.m. PST. It is actually two weeks earlier than they planned. So they're like, sorry, we, uh, we've been late on many things, but here is a data center. Uh, additionally, the Homeworld Transfer Service, which is just down now, is going to come back up then so that people can transfer, transfer to Oceana. Uh, and they're going to open that up for everybody, not just people who want to go to the Oceana data center. I'm so, so yeah. glad. I wasn't yeah. expecting this news. I wasn't expecting to get like a whole post right now about... I mean, we knew that at least at the start of the year, they had plans to give us some kind of outline or at least that they were going to be working on dealing with these server issues, which at least for me seemed to have been knock on wood a lot better since the holidays. Um, I don't know if it was because they were stabilizing stuff and we know they were repurposing some of their own dev servers to try and help with the load and things like that. But to get information that Oceania is coming ahead of schedule. And then not only that, they're going to be adding these different worlds uh, longer term to so many places. I think everywhere except for Japan. But Japan's getting some reshuffling, restructuring things. Um, that's just great. I mean, we need it very, very badly. So I'm glad that it's happening. To expand even further on that, the uh, in response to congestion following Inwalker's release, we, uh, they postpone the launch of the data center travel system again for a second time. Um, but that's now being planned for a uh, 6.1 X patch. So it's still happening in the, f in the future. Way, way, way. One glorious day. Yeah. Uh, and even further to build on that, uh, the North American data center is going to have a two phase expansion. The first phase is scheduled for August of this year, and, which is far, but I mean, they they address the fact that it's, it's freaking hard to get servers. It really just is. Um, along with that, four new worlds will uh, come out. And then in 2023, I think they say summer or fall, we'll get an additional four worlds. So over time, we'll get more servers and extra worlds. Join it. Get a house today or in a year. Hopefully, or never. Or never. Now, hopefully the, uh, the system coming up, the lottery system coming up will help with that. But that's, that's not in the news. Uh, and then beyond that, they're going to do another expansion because there's a lot of people in the North American area. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, and then also the EU and JP data centers are going to get expanded as well. And finally... Digital sales, which they have shut off, as we mentioned before, will resume also on January 25th. They feel like they're ready. I mean, they can't keep the sales delayed anymore. You know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's such, as we talked about previously, at the peak of your game when you have a new expansion that just released and you have at least you would think the most momentum as far as advertising and player base goes, you don't ever want to have to halt your sales of the game. So, I mean, I'm really, really excited that they're going to be opening it up again. And hopefully stuff like the new player free trial, like we were talking about, will also shortly ensue because it's such a good time to get into the game and there's so much good stuff on the horizon. So with all this other stuff that's planned, I think it'll be a lot smoother if they are able to do that and implement it back in stages. Well, since I, it's, since it's an MMO, 
I think we're, we'll be okay. Like the most sales are usually in the first two months for any like digital product. So like even when you have no scarcity, it's it's a scary thing to have to shut it off that early. But like, again, it's an MMO. So hopefully they'll be like, hopefully this will just be treated like the Nintendo approach. Like they run out early and now everyone's excited to buy back in whenever they're back on the shelf. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that'll, that'll be it. Yeah. I don't know about um, other server sets but at least on crystal the the queues are pretty well in hand that first week of savage i definitely had to log in an hour early to make sure that i was there on time but this week has been almost nothing you get like a queue of yeah get like a queue of 30 go okay one tick and i'll be in that's old school i think the the big key was for everybody to be on different parts of the msq and for some people to just mm. be through it so that not everybody was trying to shove to get first in to get to the credits you know yeah yeah for what? sure and i don't know i can't speak necessarily for i see like in chat uh Nora yeah. wolf talking right eu overall during this whole sort of period i think has had the worst of it um, somewhat because of things like this Oceania data center and other things that really need to be expanded for them. So I can't speak outside of NA or even on, I know, uh, oh, was it Ether? That was yeah. really, really, really uh, backlogged here. There may still be some issues, but the, the really nice thing is that with them reopening this world tr like transfer and services with that as well, if you really are on Ether and you're finding that to be a huge thing that's still going on or elsewhere and you're able to shift, that could absolutely change how you play the game and are able to for a while until we get stuff like the full-on data center travel or if you're able to get in and then just go visit another world and just stay over there that might also help a lot too so uh it, it seems like it's moving a little bit better now which is nice hmm. yeah genova aether hmm. sorry aether gotcha. friend real sorry. sorry all right i think that's all the news do you guys want to talk about lore like i think that's why we're here i'm unsure to be I feel like I'm always suppressing the urge to talk about lore. So if Don't do it. Let it out. Yes. If it's, if it's time to move on. Yes. All right. So we start with a trip to the best city. I said it. The best city. Wow. Whoa. Shots fired right off the bat, Zed. <laughs> Limsa Lamensa, where we Limsa like Limsa. Yes. yes. Best city. Uh, and we take the boat. It was very old school for anybody who played 1.0. It was like, hey, you've seen this cutscene before. And I loved that. They did that a couple times. It was so. I didn't fun. know that yeah. until like you told me and some other people told me that it was almost a direct parallel to those cutscenes from yeah. 1.0. And to start the end of that journey here. Oh, that's just so it's, mm, chef's kiss. Very good touch. I mean, who knows where we came from to start when we came to Limsa in the first place. But it's like, all right. We arrived like this, and now we go like this. So, like, I was immediately hit with just big old feels. It was, I think, even more powerful for me, just because not only have I been Limsa the entire time. Yeah, Bessie! Uh, but also, like, one of the jokes we've been making in recent years is, why doesn't Heidelin sing anymore? Like, in 1.0, she was, like, the unseen songstress. There was no you know, Mother Crystal, there was no Heidelin, there was just this unseen songstress. And we always joke like, hey, why'd she stop singing? So to see so many um, callbacks to answers and songs in this in this expansion was so good, starting yep. with the song on the ship. 
they annihilated me. They destroyed me. They, I mean, <laughs> I, like, straight up. Um, some of you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but right before Endwalker, uh, I did a cover of Answers, and I did a music video of it dressed as Vinoth. Literally just purely based off of my own hopes for the culmination of one of my favorite songs in this game. And I had no idea. I was like, they may not ever even play it again. <laughs> because it's been such a kind of a weird one in some sense, especially if you're in the content creator community. Like, technically, it's one of the pieces that um, is is a gray area as far as terms of service and things like that go. I assume because Uematsu himself has a lot of thoughts on how it's used or shared. Um, and while many people aren't punished for it or like for doing covers or things like that because it falls under fair use, I really didn't know if we would see that song carry forward in the game for whatever mm -hmm. reason and with Soken becoming <laughs> such a huge backbone of the musical compositions. But oh my God, I cried every single time they played it. And I am convinced now more than ever, um, and I have no idea, we can talk about this more as we go through, but we hear even in the game, the discussion of music used so much. And to me, music has always been something that uh, a lot of times people talk about it being like a language that defies language, right? Um, emotion, that it imparts something beyond words, that even if you don't understand each other's language, you can understand the feelings of music. And uh, it's just incredible to me, even with the dragons, the way that they talk about song and, and there's so many metaphors with them and all these other races. And then to get answers and these incredible anthems, including flow, this expansion that I think just illuminated from the get go, the idea of like an emotional resonance and power that might have been a part of this world, even long before they decided to solidify it into an actual tangible magical force, um, a.k.a. Akasha. But uh, they, right from the get-go, hit you with it. And I still am not over it and never will be. <laughs> never. For the rest of my life. Nope. Yeah. No, I, I loved... Not to not to stay with the this a whole lot at the beginning, but I loved how often it showed up. And a lot of times it's like, ah, uh, they recycled something. You either have like a remix where you're like, okay, that's pretty good. Or you're just... Stop playing that song, right? This was... I felt like this was totally different. They just wove it into everything. This is where they were supposed to be giving us answers. They were actually giving us the song again in our ears over and over. And it just, it felt right. It didn't feel overdone to me. I don't know about everybody else. No, not at all. Um, especially because like like you said, like the lyrics to answers, I, I compare to a cloud. You can look into it and see whatever shape you want. There have been people reading into this song for 10 years, making it about everything. They have found a way to make it about anything where, like, if it comes up in a patch, someone goes back and reads answers and is like, aha, it was about that. And so for it to finally show up in a way that, like, not only did they clarify what it's about, but they had a whole cutscene where they like they put the lyrics yeah. into the cutscene so that you knew this is what it was talking about. Um, perfect. But it was perfect. If you think about it, all those people trying to connect it to different parts of this, they're right. This the answers is about all of that everything. experience. It's about everything. Ah, I love it. All right, let's let's talk about something. <laughs> More direct and less conceptual. No, I think we should just talk about answers for the entire <laughs> podcast because I could do it and I have no doubt all three of us could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true, true. Uh, so, we ride a ship. It's really awesome. We get to Charlie and, and uh, we have to check in. 
That cracked me up for some reason. Go through customs. Yeah. Hey, Limbs has got customs. Charlene can have customs. But this this Lalafell, she's got she's got like snooty snooty librarian attitude, which I guess really isn't that out of place in Charlene, to be fair. But she's like, uh, it's I, like going to Grajani and being like, hey, they don't seem to like outsiders. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice, though, in a sense, because I think there's been a lot of talk and a lot of mystery around Charlie and Wright. Uh, how secluded have they really been? Can people travel in there? From a role player's perspective, I know a lot of people who have for a long time tried to figure out how they would interpret from, like, nobody's allowed in there that's not Charlie and to, you know, well, sometimes people can come in or things are okay or they have, you know, probably trade and all sorts of stuff they other do, like they otherwise do. Um, it was fun to just right off the bat, I think, get a sense of how regulated their society is and how... I mean, while the doors aren't completely shut, you definitely get the sense of it not being welcoming, at least in its current state, to many people. <laughs> real reason to be there. Kind of like Kingashi. Mm -hmm. You need to be here for a reason or get out. Yeah, and oh my gosh, I actually, I was thinking about, it's so funny that you brought that up, I was thinking about that alongside Old Charlian, because it did dawn on me, I was like, these are both port cities as far as Kugane and then Old Charlian go, both of them... Uh, to more or less extent, I mean, Kugane has its doors, I think, far more open to intermingling and commerce. But in contrast, the rest of Hingashi is still like a huge question mark because all of it is shut down. Nobody can go in there except for people who are Hingashi um, or part of you know that particular culture and nation. So, I mean, it was great to get to actually like peek into Charlian. And then even though we were heckled right at the door to be able to get a sense that like, yeah, maybe people can come in, but... It's definitely really strictly regulated and your context for visit and how you're perceived while you're there is huge. I enjoyed that this uh, Lalafell kept up the tradition of screwing with Estinian. It's just what Lalafell do, I think. Just have to give Estinian a hard time. So, uh, gosh, what do we even do when we get there? The first big thing is a tour, right? We get to see that mechanic where... Uh, a floating cat follows us around. Uh, I really, I really, we won't talk too much about mechanics. We already have. This is lore, but it was, it was nice to get lore tidbits in that way, I think, rather than just like walk up to NPC, talk to NPC. You had a buddy who was following you around going, yeah, this over there is this thing and this over here is this thing. And it felt, felt more natural. The only struggle I had with it is that I have been trying to train myself not to slowly walk the longest route to places. Like I've been trying to use my teleports efficiently and the ethernet efficiently. And just as I'm training myself to do it, they put this thing in the game where you gotta walk slowly with an NPC behind you. And I just sprint over to the ethernet and boom, they're gone. Yep. Yes, I lost my companions many times in Rods at Han. Uh, it was, and I also had the instinct too, because at least the way they initially talked about this, I really do love this from a, like you said, Zenalore perspective. We've talked about the mechanics and, and things with that, but the idea of actually getting to hear from people who live in a place or have lived in a place, how they relate to certain spots, how they have inhabited that space, it has so much more life than... I don't know, some like dry little tidbit or something. You know, it gives you an idea of how people actually exist and or have existed in that place over the years. But I found myself initially 
because I was like, I'm going to talk to every NPC. If there are spots that I'm going to like, if I can run around this entire city and if I have this companion, they will give me little lore prompts as I go. I spent hours, hours on hours just like running around every quarter of the city with the person. Was there anything I missed? No. Was there a puddle? No. And eventually I realized that they had like, there is a, a walking path that is like, I guess you could say the most intuitive path you would probably take with that character to get to where you're going. And the spots are only on that path and you don't have to go any further to find them, which is nice. But at the same time, I kind of wish that there were a few lulls where maybe you could just, I don't know, freeform walk around the city and anything you went up to they might have some little dialogue or something about but then my playthrough would have been like 20 times longer so <laughs> first of all puddle is a puddle you stand in and then they tell you stuff okay i was like what are you why the destination circle okay i'm sorry it makes complete sense now that, that you've explained it to me um i i kind of just went on my own path uh, by virtue of being like, I feel like that Aetherite node is closest to me, so I'm gonna go that one first. And I sort of just made my own path that way. Uh, luckily, if you just kind of go along the path like you mentioned, it takes you to all of them. Had I known this, I probably wouldn't have gone off uh, kilter, but whatever is fun is good. Um, Let me take a library trip, because, you know, what else do you do in Charlian but learn things, right? Oh, is this the section where you actually read the books? Like there's a couple so. books out. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, did Did you notice the Ishtola shit post? I think so. I read every there's, single one, but I don't know. There's a book called Forever Twenty Summers, and it's like one massive shit post about Ishtola, and it's like kind of half disguised. That's amazing. I don't know if I came across no? that one. Okay. So. <laughs> the lore book comes out 2016 and in both uh english and japanese there's a joke in her biography that says she's eternally 23 summers um which is really just a way of saying like suggest otherwise and get hit like fuck around and find out and <laughs> everybody like split over whether they took that literally or as a joke and it didn't become clear it was a joke later so like or it didn't become clear it was a joke until later so this group of people like had already by then fallen into this niche of yes Yashtola uses Im uh, magics to be biologically immortal and stamping that out has been hard until now so there's this book called Forever 20 Summers and what it says is like, hey, have you been studying too much and doing too little self-care? Yeah, I used to do that, too, because you know, there aren't enough hours in the day. So I needed to figure out a way to be more healthy, which is why I'm telling you to adopt the mantra, I'm forever 20 summers old. Uh, and as long as you keep telling yourself that, you'll have this youthful, healthy life that you can keep going. And it ends with the phrase, uh, in the pages that follow, we will explore the secrets of maintaining one's physical condition from a biological, ethereological, and arcane viewpoint. That but is it, so good. <laughs> it tells you the number 20 doesn't have to be specific. It could be 19, 23, or 40. So it puts 23 right in the middle, so you know it's about <laughs> Ishtola. So cute, I love it. the intro. 
That is fantastic. I mean, I think there is a greater discussion that has been, I mean, just had in general, memeing or no about, yes, like, is there the possibility that um, lifespans could be extended? We know that some people, cultures, civilizations did it by certain means. Allegans obviously did a lot of cloning shenanigans. We've got all these different, you know, concepts going back to the ancients who, um, gosh, oh my God, when we get to Elpis, we're going to have so much to talk about there. But <laughs> there's just, there's so many interesting things about that idea. Uh, but also, Final Fantasy XIV never takes itself too seriously, which I love. <laughs> it's nice that for all of the, like, serious real lore that you get from those books, which I thought was a nice recap for people who might not totally know or might not be consumed by lore all all hours every day of their existence like some of us are um it was really nice to get what was a recap essentially from all of those the history of charlian and everything else and then a little bit of fun i didn't know that i didn't realize that's what that reference was i love it <laughs> the uh every, every now and then you stumble over something that's clearly like an in joke to an old lore forum post and those are like my favorite things to find in the game can't imagine why that would be. <laughs> uh, who, who knows? Now, the uh, the most prevalent bit of knowledge, though, you get during the library uh, trip is about uh, Yunkreb's hope, the the Ark, that the I guess red mages question mark is it them made red mages? No, so Yunkreb made the Ark along with his well, uh, yes. disciples, his ac but his acolytes, and he was an astrologian. So, as far as I know, I don't believe there was like okay. a specific. It's it shows up in the Red Mage quest. Te Technically, the Red Mages were founded after they got okay. to the new place. Yeah, there you go. Like I the got same you. That's event the period, but yeah, they they it was uh, at that point when they were like black mages and white mages. And there's fighting, but we could be both, but only after we totally survive this on this arc. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. The it's it's so funny actually. Before all of this, um, I did a media tour video about Old Charlian, which was super fun to research. So we've had the lore that that arc was actually Nuncraft's hope and following the Great Flood, which was part of the War of the Magi. With like you said, the white and uh, white and black magic, um, they did go around rescuing people. So that lore has been in the game. But again, I think a lot of people just wouldn't understand the context. Like as far as I know. And I could be wrong. Um, there are some quest tidbits and things like that. If you do the side quests in the little like settlement that's just outside of where the Ark is, if you actually go visit it, I think it's in. Is it in the fringes? No, it's in. Uh... I always, I always no. mix up the peaks and the fringes. Always. Yeah. They're it's basically the same well. zone on different <laughs> sides of Ralgar's Reach. But we, it's not really in your face as to what that was or what led to the founding or why, you know, Charlian period decided that they were going to be founded on a premise of peace, right? It was a direct response to what Nuncrep and his, his archons, his disciples witnessed uh, in the conflict and the fallout. And then the survivors who were still killing each other over food and resources, they swore at that point that um, the only way the, the world could heal and they could move forward was if they forsook all violence and all acts of violence in response to the war that they themselves had lived through um, and seen the repercussions of. So it's important to get that foundation so that you understand why Charlene is kind of being as stubborn and weird mm -hmm. as it is. <laughs> and even beyond that, uh, the fact that they're showing us again and again information about an arc, it's some heavy foreshadowing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and then we end up 
eventually helping Alize deliver food again. I, I guess this is another one of those callbacks. Guess what? You're really strong. You haven't yet made it to Charlie and you still gotta deliver some food though. At least this time it's for a purpose. You get anybody up to somebody, get some info. We've done that so many times. We actually had a discussion about it while we were streaming through that section. And we've like split into multiple teams on whether this is a good or bad thing. So there's like now a hashtag team soup quests. They're making it more difficult over time too. They're like, this one goes to this guy and they're at this place and look like this. Don't also screw write up the order. Yeah, write that down. My problem with it was that I, <laughs> it's so silly. I had trouble even telling which indicator was pointing to which person at the table. So like, I remembered who it was, but the first one I ran up to, I went like, oh, this little sparkle is like situated how at least the angle I was looking at it, I thought it was in front of a different character at the table than it was. So I clicked on them and then I went, oh my gosh, that's the one that started talking. So I, I like the food. I like the food stuff sometimes. And I think we had some food scenes in this expansion that were good yeah. um, that I think lean into the idea that food shared is, I mean, a time to socialize, a time to talk. Yes, a time that people let their guard down, a time for community, camaraderie. That I like. But sometimes I don't need to run around and do the 50 tables. Although it did set up some fun precedent for some like ongoing little things that they kept running with like the character who had really wanted to eat lobster. Like if you talk to him ahead of time, he has this whole Aww. thing where he's like, I've been saving every penny to be able to get this lobster. And so there are little ongoing things they did with it that I think give it more depth that are kind of fun. We also see how the city at large is reacting to uh, the twins being kicked out basically. <laughs> Which is uh, it's important, I think. A nice little tidbit to know. Dad's not being shy about the fact that he's kicked his kids out. <laughs> Rough. Um, from that point, they're kind of like, we didn't really learn a whole lot. Don't know what to do from here. Let's sit in this spot. And oh, look, we noticed something suspicious. Uh, and this is where we learn a bit about the cleaners. And uh, eventually meet the most beautiful of chocolate bunnies, Aaronville. I love that boy. Chica <laughs> um, boy. Yeah. So uh, having discovered that there's some weirdness going on with uh, the amount of stuff that the cleaners are bringing in, they head to Labyrinthos, which is where it's all stored. Um, and that's where you help out Aaron Val. Eventually, I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff here unless uh, you have, guys have anything related to the lore you want to talk about. We catch no. some rats that got away. Well, I mean, the gleaners are interesting, right? I For It sure. makes sense that if you have a society that's more, at least in their recent history, that especially after, right, pulling back from the colony of Charlian and turning more into themselves, which we learn over the course of everything, was instigated by certain, certain encounters they had, right? Um... But the idea that this is like a, a culture, a nation, a society that does value learning and that acknowledges that learning in and of itself cannot just happen inside of a bubble. And uh, in this like creation of this arc to have this force and these gleaners that, I mean, are an extension of how everything works. I mean, you have on every level the the educators, the, you know, students, the um, inner workings and bureaucracy of old Charlene, but then you also have these incredibly skilled, almost like field agents 
that go out. So I liked learning about that with the gleaners. And there's even some great side lore with the gleaners later on if you do some of the um, uh, current quests in, in Labyrinthos as well, uh, where you learn about, you know, how they say prayers over their lanterns and all kinds of different little things that I actually really liked. But my greatest suffering is that there's no gleaner backpack that you can get from like the hunts or something. Same. Yet. Yet. Put it Yet. on the forums. <laughs> yeah, use the use the in-game suggestion box feature on mass. Just like flood them with requests. Hmm. We had a question in a uh, chat from Astro. So if the gleaners are everywhere, why haven't we seen them? And I think it's because they look like regular people just picking up stuff. Yeah, I mean, my guess would they just blend be in. That, yeah, they blend in. My guess would just be that they, to be completely honest, had not <laughs> like given them a signature look or created the assets for it, or they may have literally just had the idea for gleaners as they were structuring yeah. and scripting. You know what I mean? So I think that just from a like we have to many times, just like for, you know, many purposes, people who played Viera, Hrothgar, or who uh, have played Aura have to maybe kind of imagine that some of the original city-states might have those people that live there, but you never see them. Like, they're not NPCs walking around. Uh, you have to kind of just, like, retroactively fill in the blanks, I think. Um, Definitely from it's a, kind of funny. Just from a, from a practical yeah. standpoint, they didn't exist. That's, that's why. But also, I mean... There are people with big packbacks wandering around picking up stuff, and they probably don't want you to know why. There are, so. there are tens of thousands of Eorzeans that you never even see, and they were just in that crowd somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we know that Charlians have sent out research squads, expeditions, all, like all kinds of stuff. So I guess it's kind of there tangentially. It's just that we haven't actually ever heard them called gleaners or heard that reference before. I love this. Uh, Justice Stevens says the gleaners have been undercover as our retainers this whole time. <laughs> That's why they're so good at getting stuff. Like roofs. All right. So um, we try and go into the, the deeper sections of Labyrinthos. Uh, and normally uh, students and, and whatnot are allowed because this is a place to study and this is where you want to study. But uh, I'm not. That's right. Some of, some of the people who go down there have to stay down there, though, right? Like, if you go to a certain level, they're like, you live here now. It was like, yeah, it was a kid who's never left. Yeah. That was so grim. Can I be honest? One of those Aether Current quests is like, so the research, it seems like the researchers who work on the lower levels, from my understanding, essentially get sworn into what we uncover down the road is this, like, vow of silence of sorts, right? So, like, they are contained and not allowed to leave the lower levels so that word of the work they're doing doesn't escape. And these are usually, like, really highly skilled people in their fields, like Winbrita's parents and things like that, who get recruited down there and then live in the structures. But, yeah, there's this kid who, like, their parents or his parents conceived while they were under this vow. And rather than being like, oh, yeah, for the good of our child, I guess we'll you know, we'll have our memories wiped or whatever. They're like, maybe we'll send them to go live with a relative like up on the surface or we'll, you know, whatever. They were just like, yeah, we'll just keep him down here and he'll never see the light of day <laughs> and he'll have no friends his age. He'll never <laughs> see the real sun. Uh, oh, it's tough. It's tough. Kid in an actual huge basement. Poor guy. Uh, but yes, uh, people are allowed to visit um, certain parts of that and 
the Scions hope that by doing so, they will learn something else, glean something else, if you will. Uh, but they are told they cannot go. Straight up, so, mm -mm, you, you fake Baldessian kids, get out of here. Which is suspicious. And um, so we break in instead. Uh, we, we meet up with Aaronvel again, and he's like, you know, there's another path. You don't have to use this convenient elevator. There's definitely, like, a cave right over there. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I went through this cave, like, one time. Screw that cave. There's <laughs> and nothing we... in it. Yeah. There's literally nothing. Mushroom crickets. To... Yeah, there's, like, mushroom crickets. I was trying to, like, get any piece of information about it that I could or anything interesting about the creatures that were in this cave. It's, just, it's empty. It's a big empty cave. So when we're down there, uh, we turn into frogs. I think Yashtola turns us into frogs. And uh, we go spy as froggies. It's very cute. I uh, can barely stand how cute it was. But we, to <laughs> we totally just listened to a Gleaner conversation with one of the, uh, um, the forum's members. And the forum people don't notice it. Us, but Ehrenfeld does. He's got an eye. He knows, he knows reality. But uh, even though he knows we're there, he talks anyway. Uh, he says that he trusts the forum, uh, even though they're being way overworked. He trusts that eventually they'll know why. But it's smart to not put all of your eggs in one basket. So he kind of has the feeling that we're trustworthy since we helped him out and that we actually give a crap about what's going on. So uh, while he does trust the forum, he's like, you know what? I'm also going to give you a chance to do some good. This is maybe, um, I mean, I don't know. It's maybe a silly detail. I'm not sure. I have always been really curious about the trans like transformation magics in game, whether that be anything as massive as like the guardian forces, uh, or that be something as small as yes, like getting turned into a frog, which happens in many different encounters and things like that. Um, I just thought it was fun. I just thought it was fun that Ishtola does that to us. <laughs> And that it's almost kind of a callback as well, because um, there's so many, especially with the Charlians, we see them using various magics on animals to like animate them. Uh, all of the pierogos, uh, the the owl boss that tends the great Google, all those sorts of creatures, I think, have this sense of whimsy. So to turn us all into frogs and then send us was really cute. But almost doesn't uh, ask also... either. She's just kind of like, boom, <laughs> do what you need to do. <laughs> But to then also kind of confirm that, I mean, even you would think those very talented with magic, like the other Charlene scholars, uh, may not be able to discern what your true nature would be if you were so transformed. But that uh, somebody who, I think Aaronville tells you, I'm really familiar with animals and their behavior and you are acting weird as hell. <laughs> I like I just love that like I thought that was such a fun little detail maybe this is something that nobody else will care about but like I lodged it away in the back of my mind for any future anything that I was doing writing wise where people got turned into something I just thought it was uh cute to say like magic isn't the end-all be-all sometimes observational skills in this world as well are they, they do a lot I love that the warrior of light is supposed to just be like intrinsically good at everything and the one thing that we suck at so far in this game is cosplaying a frog. Yes. <laughs> we Just don't know. Our practice. We, we could have been good at it. It could have been the twins who screwed it up. <laughs> Whoever was in the middle. I think we were in the middle, actually. Just like towards the end where he stops and looks at us and we're just like, ribbit. Uh, 
It was but, cute. Uh, I also yeah. just like that as you went to your little dialogue spot, they literally just did like frog noises yes! at you. I just thought it was so cute. Uh, the, um, the thing you really learn there, though, is that there is something they refer to as the momentous duty. So uh, you, you basically already know that Charlene's up to something, but it's confirmed here. And something is going on. Uh, in the I have course, to be, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, no, no. I have to be honest. I'm curious to hear from both of you. The Charlene momentous duty plot, to me, in the overall context of everything within the game, maybe felt like the most, this is not even a mystery. I don't know why we're pretending it's a mystery out of anything in the game. Literally after I had talked to the gleaners at the start of this zone, I was like, oh, so they're like building an arc? And maybe I didn't know the whole context of everything else that was going to follow, but it was such an immediate jump to that, that every single thing that we did to like subversively figure out what it was, I was like, I don't, we don't need to do it. I know what it yeah. is. I could go yeah. tell someone right now what it is. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, but, was... you know, I've talked to people who, who didn't get it. Like, as soon as, as soon as we were reading those books in the library, I was like, all right, you know what? Prior to that, even, there were people who were like, Labyrinthos, that's probably a place where we're storing important things. And then when we're in the library and they're like, Ark, I'm like, okay, we're in, there's an Ark somewhere, perhaps down there. They're loading it up with stuff to get away from whatever bad stuff is about to happen in this. I went through a very weird pathway with it. Because, um, like, I, I translated the speech that Graha, Krail, and Forshno had in in the end of Shadowbringers. And even from that, you could tell that they were like, oh, well, Charleon has a plan of their own, and they've already got their plan in motion, and that's why they think they know so much about this and what's going on. So I was ready for them to have a plan. And then we saw the Labyrinthos art, and I was like, oh, they're building, like, a geofront, because, like, that's mm -hmm. the best way That's the best way to survive a calamity. As If you look at Eorzean history, you just go underground, wait for it to pass, and come out when everything's cool. Yeah. And then it came out that Labyrinthos had actually, like, always been there and was an over, like, an over-respected storeroom. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, so they're... They're converting the over-respected storeroom into a geofront, and I didn't pick up on the like the the launch and arc thing until later because of that. That's fair. I mean, there there were a lot of um, possibilities with it. I mean, I even briefly thought that they were like trying to develop terraforming methods or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that they they would like, yes, I mean, like you said, if a calamity happened and they came out and everything was unlivable, they could build like these survival domes. Or um, as I kind of jumped to and then held on to, I was like, well, if they are building an arc or something, then they could sail to an inhospitable planet and again, like terraform it or something. So yeah it's i mean i think there were possibilities it does be good to know that other people maybe found it more mysterious than i did because i was by the time we got done with the loperates i was like face planted on my keyboard just like please free me from this i want i know what they're doing please i beg you but um it is like the technologies and things that they've created down there and the potential and the creatures they've assembled and um i just think the whole building downwards of charlian 
is really interesting too because we've seen that even in the old colony with like um matoya's relict and uh the anti-tower there's almost like you see the buildings on the surface but i think you can imagine much more that there are all these facilities that even for ages they've been kind of building underground in an interesting way so that evolution to underground biomes is uh, a kind of fun thing to keep expanding our fantasy horizons with so while we're wandering around down there, we find this mysterious uh, glowing flower, which becomes significant. Uh, at the time, we don't know what it's called, but uh, I believe they tell us that it reacts to emotions then. They do, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. It glows, it was, glows differently. Go ahead. This was like the start of a pattern in this game for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, this was like one of my my first favorite scenes when they explain the emotions for it. Because uh, my usual thing is like I study, 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 and then either it's based on precedent and I was able to put all the pieces together and it logically tracks, or the writers are trying to surprise us. They add one new thing at the last second. It all swerves into a ditch and I never saw it coming. Um, those are like <laughs> the, the two options. And I felt like Endwalker repeatedly addressed the things that I wanted to be addressed, the things that subverted the theories I didn't like. So they addressed exactly what I wanted them to by doing the last thing I expected and shoving something else into that spot. And the way that it did it kept doing it in a way where I felt like it was predicting me. Like every time I made a, sh like I just said some shit post thing, it ended up being relevant later. And I loved and hated every moment of that, but it started here. <laughs> it started in this moment because this Rogadine comes over and goes, oh, these flowers react to emotions. Oh, you don't look like you believe me. And I just went, no, it's kind of hard to believe you because it doesn't look like it has anxiety. And he just goes, the this color represents anxiety. And I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> They got you so immediately. This is, yeah, I called it my anxiety flower this whole game. Amazing. I mean, fair. Quite fair. Yeah, it's... I can't... I mean, it's like you said, I can't actually bring myself to hate it. Because I do think you have to introduce new themes. I do think you have to introduce new stuff. And like we talked about, the nature of an MMO is the fact that... Over the years, teams will change, stuff will change, your direction may change. Maybe you have a phenomenal idea for something, but you're like, ooh, we probably should have put this in three X packs ago. And so you sit there like, well, we could just do it anyway. <laughs> you know? I'll, have, I'll have a lot to say about that later. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, this felt like that to me, right? Um, the question earlier about gleaners, why haven't we seen them in the world? I yeah. didn't feel that as much as I felt the flower because we had this moment with the flower where it was like, oh yeah, these flowers exist. And I was like, do they? Do where? they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're extremely rare, right? Which I think is the thing as well, that they would be super rare. We, we don't even necessarily know how this remnant ended up where it did. We don't even, you know what I mean? Like, did they find this extremely rare specimen and then bring a piece of it back? Um, is it, you know, does it grow in certain areas where 
Akasha is very concentrated. You know what drove me nuts about this? If it's such a rare flower, why is it just in the freaking middle of this random ass field? And why is it anywhere else? In, even I in had the place? The uh, I was like, they have gardens. They have like things organized. Yeah. And this flower is just here. Just, just here. It was so funny to me because I was like, I would think that it would be exactly the same. I was like, I would think that it would be in some specimen, like, you know, and inside like a greenhouse in that area or something was like, this is a super rare flower. And they're like, oh yeah, that thing is weird, man. I don't know, sometimes <laughs> it pops up. And then they just keep moving their boxes like two feet to it. I'm like, what if they fall over? Yeah. What if they crush this incredibly it's rare and valuable rare. magical flower? So <laughs> it was, there's, I mean, look, there's a lot to talk about with it, but like right off the bat, it felt like such a red herring or like Chekhov's gun on the wall, you know, where it's like, yeah. oh yeah, a flower that we're really trying to downplay, but that's clearly massively important. Um, one other thing that no one else will probably care about from this interaction, but that again, I as a filthy role player did was the fact that you can preserve the flower with magic and that there is canonically in here a a statement of like, okay, I have to admit this and I'm sorry, everybody, but it's going to happen. Maybe or maybe not in a previous role play. I did have a character that gave flowers to somebody and then that person with their character, because they're romantical with each other, had the flowers preserved magically and kept for all time <laughs> so that they would be undying. <laughs> Confirmed. And, yes. yes, this was confirmation of that. But again, if you're just interested in, I guess, what magic is capable of in the world, um, the idea that it could, I mean, we've seen stasis even with, um, you know, Allegan facilities and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, or I guess time magic, things like that. Um, Fusion in chat says, I mean, technically, we could preserve flowers in pots and houses before. I mean, yes, but technically, wouldn't they have? They have a growth cycle, though, and they die eventually. We would assume. No, no. Well, as long as you die, don't take them out of the pot, it's technically, you know, they're fine. Die, as in, I would assume that if they were naturally growing, they would probably die without magical intervention within the actual exist. Like, you know what I mean? A convenience of the game and and the housing function is that they don't. But in my mind, they probably would actually. Fair, fair, <laughs> fair, 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 fair. <laughs> ah, good use of the uh, tinfoil hat emote, just saying. So, um, eventually, we get a visit from a very important lady. Pops right into Kryle's body, Heidelin. Uh, Kryle. Kryle is, is distracted by these flowers and ends up wandering back to them. Uh, and that's when Heidelin visits her. And she tells us, hey, guess what? These flowers are actually important if you didn't already figure it out. Uh, you should probably take one with you. Uh, and then gives us a little speech. She says, in darkness, seek joy. Surrender not to sadness and see beyond despair. Walk free. There it is. It's a little bit of answers. And bear the Walk light for free. others to follow. Walk free. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm just going to do it. I come in the background. It's fine. Yeah. I... It's a little hokey how they drop the lyrics in, but I love it. I don't care. Just drop no. drop lyrics wherever. Do it. It's perfect. I love it. I love, yes. it. I love yes. it. Yes. Uh, and it, it, it carries through. It's It was weird to me how she was like, keep a hold of this flower. It's really super important. And to an extent it was. We definitely learn things by uh, watching it's, it react to stuff as the story goes along. But at some point we just lose it. It's just like, ah, I'm done. I'm done being a flower. See you. Bye. She told me not to lose this. Why did you take it away? <laughs> 
That bothered me. Yeah, it Same. feels a, a bit like... Yeah, I thought there would be something really important. Like, I thought that you would keep it with you, right? All the way until the very end of the game. And then you would hand it off to the person that will find out that we hand... I mean, like, we can say it. We're full on spoilers, even though we're not there in the store yet. I thought you would hand it off um, to... Uh, uh, the oh my gosh my brain has has Medion? just stopped for a second to median yeah and that that would be the whole reason that you preserved it because there's the whole thing in elpis where you talk about yeah. uh you know like oh and he said he'd bring me flowers and all this stuff and i was like oh so we needed to have these to technically, hand them yeah over. technically we, we do bring it back but it's like the one she gave us you know so like yeah, in yeah, that yeah, in yeah, that yeah, portion yeah. of the story before we basically just create a whole field of them by ourselves because we're awesome. Uh, I was really pissed off that I lost this flower that mom told me to keep a Same. hold of. <laughs> I like, know, I know. I, when, we had, when we started like using it in places, it started glowing the same colors as the crystals of light. And I was so sure, so sure it was going to connect to that somehow, that there was going to be a blessing of light connection in there. And then it just like dissolved. And I was like... <gasps> Yeah, it mad. felt weird. It felt strange. And that wasn't the first or last spot that I think things kind of dropped. That, you know, like, again, I've talked about, I love this expansion beyond all comprehension. There's so much I adore. But there were certain little plot things that I do feel like, while they may have served a purpose, maybe they didn't quite make their whole full round fruition that they could have. And that did feel like one. I know Christopher said in chat, it would have been cool if we had it at the end and we pulled it out. And then that being there led to the impetus of emotion for all the fields to be summoned and like to me that would have 100 have brought it full circle right like we bring this flower to median that literally has been touched by both the despair and hope of all the peoples of Aetheris, and that we have i mean like you were saying like um the crystals of light almost right this idea it that just like, made me misty <laughs> where like they gave hope and they gave you know this this yeah. light that we go forth and shed and all this sort of thing, and maybe we're infused with, um, in some way, the energies and hope of, of Heidelin. And then we bring this flower, and yes, like, all those emotions and the resonance in it, we give to her, and then the field explodes. Like, right there, done! That's my <laughs> that's my headcanon now, though. Yeah. Like, I'm, my, my headcanon now is that I picked up another one while we were in Elpis, and it just continued the line. Like, just I just got another one. Yeah. Keep another one in your back pocket. Just in yeah, case. I, I got a rep replacement. Do we want to talk about the name of the bloom now or save it for where we actually learn about it? I'm good either way. I put a little note in of the name because yeah, I just, yeah. in case we touched on it, but um, maybe I, I either. What does everybody else think? Save it for later. So Stargazer in chat. <laughs> we could save it. Everybody, you guys all know, but we'll talk yeah. about it later. Blaze brings up an interesting point as well that they felt like for the flower, it dissolving at that midpoint was meant to be symbolic of the all hope is lost. That the idea that like everything we thought we had that was a, a tangible remnant of hope had been stripped from us. And that, you know, perhaps at the end we realized that the illusion is that we all carry hope within us and all of us can let it bloom or, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever Which actually parallels we want to draw with that. But sort of brings us back around to the name of it because Elpis is hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the word Elpis in Greek, I believe, is hope. So, it's, so it's... all of this all of this discussion of uh, you know, we lost hope. Yeah, we did. It 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 was called hope. It's gone. 
it is for, yeah. for realties gone. And then, like, also, it would have been nice to be able to carry it with us to the end of the universe and, like, plant a thing. Yes, let's plant the seeds of hope at the end of the universe. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely metaphorical, right? Elpis is, so Elpis is actually, like, one of the daemons, sort of, as, as they're called, which are these, like, spirits that aren't necessarily deities in and of themselves, but that embody some kind of concept, right? So she was the spirit of hope and was usually depicted as like a young woman um, that either carried or offered flowers or sometimes had like a cornucopia with her, things like that. Um, and she played a pretty large role in the myth of Pandora's box. So the idea that these demons that were trapped inside this box, some good and some evil, um, the idea that when she opened that, which I think we obviously see a clear parallel with Hermes, right? Like the idea that you are opening this and then sending out these spirits into the universe that do bring about great suffering for mankind um, and great agony. And it's interesting because the Greeks had sort of a complex relation to the concept of hope. So there's this idea that all of the spirits fled out except for Elpis, and that Elpis was alone and left and trapped and, and, and existed still within the box. Um, some of the ancient Greek tellings and like later tellings and plays embody her as like a comfort for mankind, where the idea was that she purposefully stayed behind to comfort mankind to face all the trials that would be ahead of him. Um, and then other perceptions of hope are, are kind of more of a cynical thing in ancient Greece, as far as I found in, in my research, where hope is almost believed to be a folly <laughs> and that having it is in and of itself supposed to be something that's like a delusion of mankind that gives them false comfort in a world that doesn't care about them. And I mean, I really guess the incredible thing about that is that much like Hermes and or his perception of what all this information that he got was the idea that you can either perceive and believe in hope and move forward with it as, as a strength, or that you can diminish and, and get into a more nihilistic view, which of course I know, and I've seen Moose, you talk a lot about nihilism in relation to all of the themes of Endwalker, which is phenomenal as well. I've loved seeing what you've been talking about with that, but uh, it's, it is just so interesting to me. These layers are ridiculous that they built in all of this. And I mean, you see that time and time again, even just with this flower, if we're only talking about the flower right now, not Elpis, um, that the emotions of people and how they perceive their current plight is really truly what seems to almost determine their fate for them, whether they invest in hope as a positive force or negative force. It's interesting. There's so much in this one tiny thing. <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay, so I... In the thick of the, the story, I went to the grocery store with my husband because there was no food in the house because uh, we'd just been having takeout for like four days while I did the story. didn't stock up. No. No. No, I like filled my fridge full of just like things I could eat. <laughs> like, so did we. Just with no work. I don't know. I just, he wasn't going to play. So I was like, hey, you're going to feed me for four days while I, you know, ignore you, right? But at the end of this, um, we went to the grocery store. And I'm, like, ranting about all this cool stuff. And Elpis in particular came up. And throughout our entire uh, grocery trip, we talked about uh, the legend of Pandora's box and all of the little minuscule bits here and there. And even at one point when we stopped uh, talking about it, as we're leaving the store, he picks it back up again. He picked it up, not me. And I'm just like, are you sure you don't want to play this game? Like, are you sure? Because you could. But yes, it, there's there's a lot to it, a lot of nuance, and it's it's really great. Uh, 
Yeah, so uh, message delivered. Highland pieces out. Kyle's like, was I just mom? That was really cool. Um, about that time, I think we get, uh, not exactly snuck up on, but some foreign people roll up on us and like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be here. And partially that happens because our, our good boy Graha did a bad thing. He's also a bad boy. Uh, he snuck, snuck uh, past the open parts of the library to try and find some information, uh, just like we're doing. So I guess both of us snuck past where we're supposed to be, just being bad kids all over the place. Uh, they have us meet up in the forum proper and basically put us on trial. Um, let's see. I think at that, that point, Graha tells us he learns nothing. Like, he does learn something, though, that he uses later. What are you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that I found the trials infuriating. <laughs> yeah? From a personal standpoint. Um, because I, it turns out, have too many strong feelings about, uh... <laughs> I don't know, public humiliation and shaming and, and villainization by a dad figure. Mm. <laughs> I was I was losing it. Like we're, we're standing there in the trial and I didn't care about anything else except for the nasty way that Fortuno was talking to his children. <laughs> I was just yelling the entire time. And it's interesting because I think a lot of those scenes, you feel it the most when you're an unvoiced protagonist. Uh, not having a voice to advocate in a sense, and yet it also gives other characters a time to have their own arc and shine. So I think many of these scenes really did personify that in some way, shape, or form. Seeing the tactful way that certain characters dealt with things, particularly the twins, and the grace they extended their father far beyond normal capacity than they ever should have had to. Um, it, it was really interesting in that regard, but oh boy, did I want to say a lot of things that I couldn't say during those scenes. <laughs> Uh, and I feel like the party at large felt that way as well. They were just kind of like, I mean, yeah, but no, but we're, this is important, you guys, even though it's different from what you're doing. And the forum starts to really bear down on everybody. And then uh, old grandpa, I'm going to say his name wrong, Mata Shane. Well, it's not. Yeah, it's good. Uh, how, how do you say it? Mata Shane. Yeah, same. Okay. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. I, okay. Uh, speaks up. And, which was, maybe it's ageist of me, but I I found it interesting that one of the people who was very likely one of the oldest members of the forum spoke up and was like, hey, you guys are turning kind of into a mob here. We need to, we need to actually treat this like a trial and not just like a, a witch hunt. Well, I think it makes sense because you're right. I, I actually do like what you brought up there because you would think that the oldest at least going off of our own society, right? That mm -hmm. the oldest people would probably be the most stubborn or resistant to progressive thoughts change, to, to acknowledging other points of view. But it's so integral that Montechain was a close friend of um, yeah. Louis Suarez. And so we know that he likely, in his own generation and, and even beyond, has been one of the more progressive voices. And in many ways, I, I viewed him as almost operating as the voice of of uh, Louis Swa, even though Louis Swa was not there, you know, like the idea that because they killed him and he's not in the story, 
<laughs> you know, like, and for many reasons, and that obviously has affected a lot of the dynamics in the Levayer family, that it's almost like they put in a substitute figure for him mm-hmm. in a lot of these scenes, a voice of reason that might still be advocating for progressive policies versus the seclusion that they previously had um, and or still have to this day and have been buying into more and more with their holy mission of sorts. So I liked that. I actually thought it worked out when you put those two pieces together. I actually, this is one of the times that the supposed lore guy didn't think all that deeply about it. Cause like, I was just like, oh, so he's not one of the conservative bibliotechs. He's just not up for re-election and he doesn't care what he says anymore. Like that's what, that was my thought. Like, Definitely the, the Louis Wa thing. And also, as an older uh, person, he's probably closer, at least uh, in, not exactly morals, ideals, to what Charlene was prior. He holds those ideals a little bit closer to him and maybe has sort of less of a desperation about building their arc and stuff and can still see a little clearly. That, that was at least part of my perception. Plus, I mean, he, he taught, we learn later on, he, he taught both of the Levalier children and Levalier children and uh, ha- seems to have a fondness for them. I like that he's like a weird eccentric old man. Yes, I, I love Grandpa. I love him. I love it. I love like, I don't know, weird eccentric old mentor tropes. I, it's just something I will always buy into. Um, I love it with Matoya. I loved it with him. I would love to even get more with him. I don't know, at some point in a side quest or something. I thought he was a, a fun character in a lot of ways. Uh, yes, uh, in chat, we're also reminded that he's friends with Kryle's grandfather who was a little bit of an outside-the-box thinker. He also, at some point, makes uh, makes fun of, of uh, you stole a little bit, too, I think, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so he just goes we can, it, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, we can kind of uh, guess from that that he was probably also friends with Matoya. And she's mm-hmm. she's a radical, so. It's so, I just, I love this. I love this. There, so often we see, like, constant progress in the way that, I don't know, civilizations are portrayed. We see it a lot even in uh, in fantasy settings, at least. We see it a lot even in um, uh, the other alliances, right? The fact that we're reaching this new, you know, unified front with the Grand Company of Eorzea. But the idea that Charlian, its more progressive era may have happened right before the last great calamity is like a really, I don't know, it's just fun to see in contrast. Like, in a sense, I think they were opening their doors more than ever. They had this colony. They were even accepting foreign students. They had these advocates that were pushing against factions like the Bibliotech faction. We had all these different groups um, that now, yes, are like the grandpas and grandmas and or grandpeoples of Charlene <laughs> society, a Baldessian being one, all these different people. But because of the risks that they took, um, many of them perished. And then in the many subsequent things that followed this turn to again this more i don't know internalized society happened uh so it's fun to kind of see those layers in the way they build charlian's narrative and what it could mean for the future as this like backlash reaction to what had even happened uh in this last calamity starts to ease and like lead into more of a collaborative spirit with the rest of the world and the young people that are leading it forward like alice and alfino i just i don't know i like those details so after this is over and we don't get kicked out of charlie uh 
Who would be waiting for us outside but Mama Levigier? I don't know about you guys, but when I realized who this woman was, I was full of glee. So excited to meet her. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not let down by this meeting either. She was everything I wanted her to be. <laughs> she was straight up like, yeah, I know what your dad said, but we're going to go to the house right now because I love you and you're going to hang out with me and I have presents. Come on. It, it didn't manifest in exactly the way I expected, but it was exactly what I wanted at the same mm -hmm. time. Like mm -hmm. I, I um, what I really wanted was that like that front of like the Stepford wife who always does the appropriate thing in Charleian culture, but is really just like this strong, independent woman who does whatever the hell she wants and makes it work and is able to get away with it. And she was able to do all of it so well. I loved when they were like, oh, but what about your husband's feelings on the matter? And she's like, frankly bother that like <laughs> i loved that scene i love how I... she can tell the the servants in the house uh so we're not gonna tell him yeah and they're just like yeah you got it she's the boss yeah i am gonna be the stinky boy in this okay. particular moment <laughs> that's fine i it's funny i liked emilion's by the end when you find out that she used all their money <laughs> to support yes, the ions. Yes. That for me was the action that I was like, oh yes, perfect. And I liked some of the stuff, like the fact that she, yeah, brought them back and, you know, gave them presents. And yes, like the staff who you imagine, many of whom have probably served the Levayer family for years. They probably grew up with these kids. They probably feel very close to them. Um, I mean, there's probably turnover, but at the same time, you imagine that they all as a household are not really behind this. All of that stuff I liked, but I also kind of hated this scene. <laughs> Okay. I, I don't, I, I don't, it's funny because I, I went into it when I was doing my playthrough in more detail and I think it's very much a personal thing in the sense that as somebody who maybe has had my own conflicting interactions with parental figures and, you know, taken a long road where it's been difficult, um, it, I, oh my gosh, I was just so livid that she put the impetus on them to be the ones to prove that they were somehow good enough for their father. And like, of course, I think there there is a much greater context. There's also a lot of discussions to be had about like um, Japanese perceptions of, of cultural concepts within families. And I've heard a lot of people bring this up and talk about it even from their own experience, which has been really interesting. Um, but like from my perspective, I was so livid during that scene because I was like, you're going to make your kids sneak around. You're going to make them feel as though like, you know, they can only be in their house, you know, under these conditions. You're not you're going to let your husband like we've seen the repercussions of the entire city, like scorning the twins and like the slander campaign. It almost seems like their father has waged against them, which to me just went so above and beyond anything that you would need to do just to emotionally distance yourself from your children. Like I was so furious. I was ready to throw punches. I... <laughs> and I, oh, go ahead. I, I was, I was all caught up in kind of the intergenerational politics of it instead. Like I was caught up on like, like you said, most, like a lot of the people that were working for the family have probably worked for the family for a while. So they're used to this shit. They knew Louis Zwa. They knew like, <laughs> you know, so they probably, they've been, when, when, when two members of the family are just kind of trying to not ruin the harmony by sneaking around everyone, they're just like, yeah, that's, no that's normal. Just do what they say. And so like, what I was thinking about was, was more Forshino 
buys heart and soul into the founding myths of of Charleon. And not only heart and soul into the founding myths that war is always bad and always leads to a negative outcome and always makes things worse for everyone, but he's like the head of the forum, basically. So what I saw his disowning his kids as was like a, look, you're my kids and I love you, but you're not acting in accordance with my values right now. And while I respect that, I need you to stop using my name. I'm the head of the forum and I need you to stop using my name. So like do it, but not in my name. And so I saw a lot of like the family stuff as like, look, I respect that you have your own independent path and I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong. And I'm going to tell you that your father might have completely different values than you and be on the forum and need to lead this country. And so when we're in this country, we need to act a little you know, different. But I think if you keep doing what you think is right, he will come around. And so I, w- I chose to see it as entirely the forum politics of it. And this is totally biased for me, not because of my past or my history of who I am, but, but we, because they chose the voice actor, Anthony Howell, to play Forshow, who I, <laughs> I have seen in a few other games. And I reviewed Vampire, which he starred in, for this website, for our website. So I was intimately familiar with that. He can go from, like, gruff asshole to soft-loving dude in, like, one scene. Like, just a twist of the voice. And so, like, I felt like they picked his voice reel for this character because they were going to need that. They were going to need someone who came off like an asshole for a really good reason. And I just gave it the benefit of the doubt for no reason. (laughs) No, I mean, I actually do think it's funny. I think Fortuno is an incredibly realistically written character, right? I think all the points you brought up about his mentality absolutely make sense. I also think there's so much to be said about the precedent of his relationship with his own father and um, the conflict that they experienced, uh, both having very different and divisive responses to a time of conflict that they both you know, experienced and lived through. And the fact that his father chose to do this thing and died like that very real present reality that if his kids decide to do the same thing they will die i think leads to a great in his mind right like right we're just getting the story not the man yes 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 i think it leads to absolutely establishing precedent for why he would emotionally distance himself with with a vindictiveness perhaps that that allows him more separation in a sense and i i do agree with you that i think emiliance has that sense of yes you can do you know do what you need to and obviously later i do think that fortuno comes full circle and i think that his apology is very i think it, it resonates very well um i guess yeah like i said for me and this has not been a popular opinion this is just my hot take of the expansion i guess in that moment with no other foreknowledge I had so much trouble with it, Um, I guess, just because, uh, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's a personal experience thing in a sense that um, the idea that you should have to be the one that has to work to overcome um, harmful uh, instincts, prejudices, thoughts that, you know, parents or somebody who's meant to care for you and love you, that that work should be on you and that they themselves should not have to be the ones that have to do the introspection. And obviously he does eventually, right? But like to have to do the introspection to acknowledge that they are wrong and that 
what has brought you to this fracture is not because, you know, you chose to do something that they disagreed with, but because they could not in and of themselves reconcile your own independence, value, worth, and 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 fight for your relationship in, in their own sense. So it is, I mean, again, I think it is just something that hits me differently than it will many other players who will just skim through that story beat or, you know, be like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, they've got to do their thing and become strong. <laughs> I was over there like, this is not on these pure, beautiful children. <laughs> I was like, this is their father's own hangup and issue. And if he cannot be a big enough man to acknowledge what he's doing to his family, it doesn't matter how much love he says he has because he is not acting on love and like for their mother to not publicly stand up for them was also something that was just devastating to me because I do know I mean oh gosh I could ramble about this for a thousand years I won't I'll stop but <laughs> but I mean I I've seen many things in these relations with my own experience with conservative parents and also with myself and friends who are parts of the LGBT community right um there is this incredibly harmful thing that can happen when you don't go against the grain to publicly show the love and support that you have for someone that you care about if they truly are that priority in your life that they say right. they are. So for me, it was like, awesome. oh, I'm like, so mad. <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't wrong, though. Like, in my, like, you ain't wrong. In my entire understanding of that scene, like, there's a triangulated leg just propping that up and excusing it in a way. Yeah. Um, based on the combination of him being an important political figure for the nation and the ways in which they're being independent, being against his personal values and the nation's values in the sense of they're going to war and they're propping up a war. So like, it, like I just completely dismissed that entire consideration based on the fact that, oh, he'll come around to the fact that you're going to war when you see the world is ending and sometimes you got to fight. I just, I think uh, his choice to actually disinherit them, uh, it was over the top. It was too much. The live your name had already been associated with that prior to him. His father was that already. If anything, he's the odd one out at this point. You get they, to earn the name. They basically theorize in, what was it, 5.5? They basically theorize that the disownment itself was an exaggerated part of the theater. It's, I, it, was, it was pointless. It, to, okay, he had a reason. He absolutely thought it was a good, he thought it was a good reason. But... From it, from my standpoint, like what what was the actual point? It didn't do anything. It really didn't do anything. We don't get much feedback from Charlie and the people in Charlie and themselves, except that oh, did you see what happened? It's just it comes out is is gossip. It's just gossip. It does not just, remove the children from him. From it, the way I viewed it, anyway. Um, I and just I also, kept blaming the politics. It's fair. It's fair. It's so the, funny because I did not approach it. I mean, the politics definitely played a role, but I think my emotional response to it was so like it was almost the opposite. Like rather than looking at the actual political climate and all of those sorts of things, I was so in the like individual emotional landscape that the twins must be going through that. I love hearing both sides of this. And I see like in chat people saying, you know, like, oh, I think that he disowned them because, you know, it was so that his political rivals wouldn't have stuff to talk about against him. And, but it is, it is something that, I mean, um, 
oh my gosh, I don't have it in front of me and I should have pulled it up. Do you remember, Anonymous, the the term of uh, serving? Like, they are elected by their peers, and then do they serve for life? Oh, God. The members of the forum? I was looking that up, and I had the answer in front of me because I was curious about um, something else with it, too. I while you keep looking that up. Find it. Yeah, while you keep I'll, looking like, that up. I'll, search for forum and elected. I'll let uh, you know if I find it. All right, all right, because that would be something that would be interesting in this regard. To me, it felt Zen much more like a, a personal move, right? That maybe when he was living under his father, he wasn't able to separate himself from his father's ideals. And he had a lot of conflict reconciling his own emotions with that. But with him being the head of the household now and deciding that the Levayer name would be what he wanted it to be, it felt like him doing that to his children was a way to almost get back at his dad, maybe. <laughs> or the screwed up. To, you know, the screwed up. Yeah. I think I think something I really wanted them. to say, um, first of all, was uh I actually do agree, uh, that it was it was wonderful to see their mom like behind their father's back be like, Oh yeah, I know I'm still here for you, but like in what way was it gonna hurt her to say it publicly? Uh it probably would have hurt her husband a bit. Um but uh, what I what I see there is, especially when she talks to you about uh, the letters that the children sent home, um, I feel like she's very confident that they are going to solve the problem on their own. It's it's sh shitty that she wants to be hands off, but it's also good that she feels she can be hands off. She knows her babies have flown the nest. I don't know. It's It's really back and forth, but I think the... The thing that I really want to get to from that and from uh, Fortuno's just whatever the hell he thought was necessary, um, it shows that even even beyond we already know what uh, of Charlene just making the wrong choice. <laughs> they make the wrong choice. It, all, all these individuals are making the wrong choices. All these adults are making the wrong choices. And this also comes up later in Garlemald when the twins are, are captured. They talk about how all the people who came before them are making these choices. They're trying to like fix stuff in the past with solutions that have to do with the past instead of looking forward and coming up with new ideas. So I think it, it just sort of individually hammers home the things that they and we have seen along the way to show that what people have been doing to try and fix the world, even up to and including uh, making Zodiac, doesn't work. And we have to come up with something else. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree across the board. There's so many, I mean, it's the thing is, is that I always say, you don't have to like what a character does to still think that they are done well and that sure, they yeah. can be interesting. Like even with Alphino himself, right? We've seen this thing long-term where the really dumb Crystal Brave stuff, <laughs> which like, oh my gosh, just like, I'm just gonna make a military force. I'm a child and I'm gonna make a military force beholden to no nation or higher power that operates independently and can invade at any reason for, <laughs> for, whatever, for whatever reason they deign to give it, um, was such a nonsense move, but one that definitely within the context of somebody who's living under the legacy that he's living under, that you know was the youngest graduate that people admired of all these things, like it makes sense for him character-wise. And the idea that characters can make mistakes is one that I think is powerful and we need to all accept because so often people will let 
one character's choices in a moment determine forever their opinion of them. And like, don't get me wrong, Fortuno was a tough one for me. And I agree, I think a lot of the things he did were uncalled for and unnecessary. But are a lot of things that people do uncalled for and unnecessary? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So that's where getting into the emotional components, the characterization, breaking down those beats, those possibilities, those justifications, makes a character to me one that's well-rounded and fascinating. Um, and I definitely think he is one. I don't care for how he handled things, but I also think that he's very realistic in that portrayal. Um, and that in and of itself, it shows a great narrative, larger scale, that the younger generations and the people that are moving forward, again, are learning a broader sense of grace than many of their forebears had for many reasons. And the fact that his children do ultimately reconcile for themselves that they care about the relationship and that they care about him even when he gives them no reason to speaks an incredible amount about those children um and i think just says so much about alphano and alice as characters and also gives so much more impetus as to why they themselves could even bring about a reconciliation in places like garlemald like you were talking about and um that they themselves may understand that life has complexity and that relationships may be difficult but that they have within them the grace to build bridges instead of tearing them down. Um, and I, I think that's a really incredible message that's told on so many levels within the story leading into Endwalker and through Endwalker. Let's see, let's see. I think that that's really sort of it uh, as far as uh, Labyrinthus and Charlene to start. Um, we meet a researcher who has been doing some experimentation with Aether Travel. This part is amazing. So normally you have to visit an Aetherite first before you can uh, teleport to it. We all know this. It's, that's, that's history. That's known. But this researcher is like, no, 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 no. I got this thing. It'll send you to this Aetherite you've never been to. You won't have to spend two weeks on a boat. You won't have to see the map and the little dot, 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 dot. You won't have to get attacked by a Kraken on your way. We're just going to send you right now. Uh, Estinian's like, you guys have fun with that. I've already been. I'm just going to teleport. You go. And like, well, he goes. And then like right before you go, the research is like, by the way, you might get sick. You arrive and you are sick. Oh, you fall. You fall over. Thancred is sick. He falls over. <laughs> Uriange is sick. And he dies. He basically dies. Face first into the ground. <laughs> and then he died. That's, he yeah. dies. Uh this was I, exciting to me for a stupid reason. Yeah? Uh, they first described aether sickness and the symptoms that go along with it in the first patch, like the first major patch after Yoshida took over. 1.18, the arrival of the Jemael the Darkhold. Mm -hmm. And we have been talking about aether sickness ever since then, and this is the first time we've seen them like really get it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do. I remember that in up in uh, up in 1.0. They were like, hey, sometimes when you teleport, it might screw with you a little bit because you just like moved a long distance and your body's like, it was, oh. 
it was the original excuse for for the the time limits and all that That's kind of right. stuff surround, you couldn't surrounding do it too the dungeons. Much. Yeah. You had to like wait for these time limits when you went in and out of the dungeons. They were just like, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the it can linger in your body for several days, causing dizziness, paranoia, temporary paralysis, apoplexy, jaundice, blood in one stu- <clears throat> uh, uh, bl- other unpleasant side effects. <laughs> Wasn't it, I mean, wasn't even, it also uh, having to do with, uh, in, in 1.0, you didn't teleport with Gil. You teleported with uh, Anima. Anima, which, yeah. uh, that came back. But um, you had a certain amount, and teleports cost a certain amount. And when you were out, you could not teleport anymore. It's like, my it's God. Whole, it's the whole foundation of corporeal versus spiritual ether. It's like, like the, the early lore has decided so much of the late lore. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I thought this whole sequence was one, fun, which is just great. It's just great to have a little moment of comedy to sort of punctuate things. But two, I mean, like you said, it actually did bring together a lot of things. I mean, I think even now, canonically, supposedly, um, Aetheri travel, you go between it. But if you do it a ton in rapid succession, right, it really wears on you or it can lead to things like this. So to have that in there is something we get to experience not only creates a great setup for the characters to have their own unique responses to it which this is what i love it's like anytime you sit down with an icebreaker and you ask you know three people the same question and they all have different answers seeing how people react and respond to things in the way that they process it is truly a telling character trait you know so seeing how the three of them all deal with it how you're the one that's having to like stumble around trying to get the stuff seeing how bad Estinian is and haggling in the stupid hair tie I lost it mm. I just like it makes them all people in a way that you know just like if you've ever um, been sick yourself or something like that you may not be at your best but these little things about your personality kind of come out that other people wouldn't witness or Estidian suddenly being the one that can't just like you know swan off whenever he wants and he's got to be the only one who's not incapacitated and he's making terrible decisions <sighs> he's the it designated driver <laughs> he's the one he's the one that makes sure everybody uh, he holds back your hair while you're thrown up he gets you to bed tucks you in uh, Mama Astinian was good, minus the, like, inability to spend money correctly. <laughs> that was good, too, though. I <laughs> Each and every one of them. It's like you said, they we got a, we got a little bit more personality. I like that. seeing the mid-journey. Like, a lot of 14 focuses on the beginning of the journey and the end of the journey. You learn what the threat is, you go punch it in the face, and it's punctuated by the struggles you have getting there. And you almost never see the, like the little stumbles the the missing the bus the arguing about which route to take the like the, all of the stupid human things that you know we do so it was it was hilarious seeing one the warrior of light fall prey to it just like their friends um and two just like that that factor of astinian always having been in the chain of command always taking things at face value always just rigidly training and going about they like you trust what the people around you say and you move on with your life so now he's trying to operate in a real world full of swindlers and he can't do it and that's he's amazing. the rich person who's asked how much a gallon of milk costs and they're like what like 300 bucks right I saw a lot of people doing the Arrested Development me with him. You it's know, a banana. Where it's a banana, Michael. How much does it cost? But it's interesting to me with Astinian. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong. 
I'm thinking back through the Estinian timeline, and I don't have it in front of me, so this is off the top of my head. Hmm. Um, he came from a, a family that lived out in the like farmlands, out in the countryside, right? Yep. Who were killed during yep. the war, uh, the 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 Dragon Song War. So he, they I were imagine... they were directly yeah. roasted by Nidhogg one of the times that he woke up. Yeah. Cool. So cool, cool. When he was young. He himself probably, I mean, had no concept of money, really. His his family probably didn't have much money. Um, and then to get kind of put into, uh, I mean, we know that Ishgard in and of itself was so isolated and had such a disparity in wealth and that mm -hmm. nobility and likely, I would even assume, exported goods and things like that probably came at an incredibly high price. But if you get... Dot, like put into the military system in the Dragoons, I imagine that much of his stuff was just taken care of. Food, board, probably yeah. gear, equipment. As he continued to work up, he probably just has no concept. It's and the funny. actual prices in Ishgard were yeah. so bizarre. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny you should say just... that um, young people who go into the military, they specifically give them classes on how to spend their money because uh, they don't have to pay for food. They don't have to pay for housing. Uh, and a lot of a lot of them end up with very expensive cars because they don't have money to spend on anything else. They, yeah, they have plenty of money and nothing to spend it on. So yeah, it's that's interesting that you should yeah, that's yeah, realistic. I'm Honestly, I'm super curious about it. Like, I don't know if I'm trying to think through. I don't know if we have like a full if we know exactly how being the Azure Dragoon, right? Like. I assume they paid him a lot. I don't know. But if he was an extension of the church, then would he get paid? Like, Write that down. We'll have to probably, ask Koji. Yes. He's probably just got a bank account he never touches and has learned to write expense reports. So he's just like, yeah, I'll just write an expense report for this hair tie. I think he, does, he says something about the scions paying him. And then what he doesn't know, he doesn't know what he's going to do at the end when he doesn't have a paying job. Yeah, I need yeah. to go back and look through yeah, all of yeah. that because I wonder then if, yeah, if his stuff was taken care of, but he himself wasn't paid, right? I mean, which would make sense because a lot of the church just viewed, you know, you serve the church and the church hoards the center of wealth would be what we assume in Ishgard. Um, these are the weird nitty gritty discussions that I really enjoy. So here we are. Uh, but he got paid a lot with the scions. But again, it seems like he didn't really know what to spend it on. He has no house. He has no family. <laughs> he has no upkeep. So he must be sitting on a lot of money. And an octopus. Yeah, he just has, like, no actual concept of the cost of things because of his upbringing. <laughs> I like it because I think it does fall in line with what you can see with him. That's funny. <clears throat> um, backing up just a little bit, uh, Charles left us a note about how rich the mythology in this area is. And you also did a video on it, too, right? I love Thavnair. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm actually super excited. I've seen some people recently also working on um, like articles that are going to be coming out for news outlets and things. I saw a call for this um, for streamers, players who actually are of uh, Indian descent or, you know, um, the various cultural influences that they they implemented here in Thav Nair. But yeah, it's phenomenal. I, I think that if we look at all MMOs and games that have a place that is themed primarily with uh, Indian culture and history and mind and mythology, I don't know if I can name a single one, to be honest with you, which is 
awful <laughs> because honestly, it's incredible. And I'm just speaking as somebody who's just done research, who's talked to some friends who are from India, who um, has just always been really fascinated with world cultures and mythology. Like to me, oh my gosh, it's this wealth, this wealth that so many places just have not tapped into. I think a lot of that has to do with gaming markets and MMOs in particular, which usually divide between a Western audience and then an East Asian audience. I think like, which again, worldwide people play. We have more Brazilian players than ever in most games. We have all these different cultures and groups that play games and love them. It's just that like a lot of the, the marketing demographics up until this point has kind of like appealed to certain big spending, you know, countries. Um, but Thavnayir does an incredible job. And I didn't even realize that until I did that lore video and I was going through all of these references, all the references with the great work, the uh, mythology that even goes into that with the red and white queen, which are like two polarized figures like Zodiac and Hydaelyn. Um, there's in the second half of the map, there are all of these incredible references to various uh, spiritualities and mindsets, um, you know, there's such a wide diversity of religion and philosophies and cultural things across India. Um, you can't just, you know, say this is all of it. In, it's not because you can't encompass just everything with one thing. But um, they drew from so many little points um, that were just really fascinating. And that, again, drew a parallel between figures that were embodied in myth as like a male mythological figure or female mythological figure, um, energies that were active or passive. Um, it's phenomenal, honestly. It's so cool. Uh, and it lends a lot of interesting depth. Uh, even the history of Thavnair is reflected in it. Some of the references they made with like Pelika Stand and stuff like that um, have references to uh, plays and conflicts and a sense of the, um, you know, the conflicting races that kind of came together to make up Thavnair eventually in the future and the civilization we know of now. So I love it. There's so much to dive into. I could we could do a whole cast on it, but you can watch the video. But I mean, we'll keep talking here. But yeah, there's a lot of incredible references. So one of the examples that Charles left us with was uh, Matsya, the uh, elephant guy. What are they called? I forget. Oh no, Matanga. Matanga. Thank you. The Matanga. Arcasodra. 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 Okay. It looks like Arcasodara, but the the Matanga that live on rods at Hunter for themselves as Arcasodra. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, anyway, Matsya basically means fish, but it's also the name of the fish avatar of Vishnu. So even there is just this, this cutesy elephant man that we meet. He's, he's also a big, big reference. What is his face? His face is an elephant. I mean, your face, your face is like, Ooh. oh, I love him. Yeah, OK, OK. Feelings. He's so cute. He's, such He's very a good sweet. Boy. He's a sweet boy. Um, I'm not good at selling fish. I don't know about you guys. I sold uh, one fish and then I, I sold one fish. Out. Yeah. One. Yes, me too. <laughs> I thought I did so well. And then I was like, all oh, right, OK, don't pressure these guys. Some people want to be pressured into buying stuff, I guess. No, 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 no. I just like answered whimsically for the first one and I sold the fish and then I was like, oh, no, you can fail to sell the fish. And then I tried to sell the fish and failed. Yeah. I really thought Psyched I was going to fail it and I just absolutely failed. It felt like some of them, to be fair, felt intentionally 
unintuitive, if that makes sense. Like they presented you the information at the start and then we're like, ha, 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 nope. And you were like, oh, well, I messed everything up and I failed. And now I have to go look this beautiful man in the face. I told him I didn't sell any of his fish. I sold one fish. Like I felt so bad. I felt so bad. And there do we begin his despair levels. There's a, a little bit of, of questage around in that starting port uh, where you learn that things have, have been kind of bad uh, sales and uh, trade-wise with them. Um, but you don't stick around there very long. You end up heading over to the Great Work to meet the alchemists uh, in there particular. Was one, mm -hmm. There was one little note that I wanted to make about... Yes. Um, the that little village that you're in that sort of um port i guess that you're in uh one thing from my lore video that i didn't know before going into this zone because we couldn't actually like interact during the media tour with any of the npcs or anything was where in the world yedli mod came from as a name uh -huh. <laughs> and uh they say in the game and now i can't remember the exact translation but they say that it's based off of like one of the old dialects of thavnair and like one of the traditional languages of thavnair um, which doesn't, as far as I can tell, have any actual root in, like, Hindi or anything like that. But um, I really, really liked that they actually give you, like, the name of it in the lore as you talk to him and as you go around and do those quests. Uh, because that was, like, a question mark. I was like, I don't know why this is called this, but it is. <laughs> so I got a little bit of that afterwards. I think it has something to do with the winds or, or the sea or something like that. But they do actually give you the translation in-game. Cool. Uh, let's see, let's see. Yes, we go meet the alchemists who, uh, they're passed out on the ground. Looks like there's been some sort of, uh, uh murder? Like, mass murder? Yeah. <laughs> it was like Black Rose flashbacks for a hot yeah. second. They are actually just taking a nap because they've been working so hard. That whole on, scene was uh, weird, man. It was very strange. I thought they were dead. I know. So they were dead. Yeah. I thought they were, like, working under some kind of weird enslavement spell because they were yeah. all sleeping in their clothes outside. So, like, On the ground. Thought, like, black rose shit happened, and then yeah. it didn't. And then they all get up, and they're fine. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're, like, ensorcelled. And then this really creepy, conspicuous kid shows up. And I'm like, oh, this is all really bad news. And it didn't turn out to be bad news. It just turned out to be weird. Yep. Uh, so, I yeah, agree. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like they purposefully tried to create a sense of suspension or dread there or mistrust in what was happening. But it really just read bizarrely to me. Like, I would have I think I would have gotten that exact same sense if I had literally just like walked into the great work and there had been some people sleeping on like the stools. And then the strange child had showed up because like the child in and of himself has like a weird sense to him and the way he talks and speaks and like right off the bat, I was I was actually theorizing because I'm always looking for dragons everywhere. I thought he might have something to do with a dragon because of his eyes and the fact that his horns were a different color of scale. Oh no, <laughs> funny. That's funny. I, I was excited about it, but I was like, is he a dragon in human form? Can they shape shift? And now we're gonna find out, is he like, but um, I was really hoping he would not be an evil dragon. And I was very worried that he was because of the way they set this scene up. You, you, uh, I, I feel less bad now that your spiral theory didn't pan, pan out as much because you got a lot of this right that I did not. Um, 
I this is the second time that a shit post became like a running the truth has everything to do with the stuff I'm joking about thing. Because, like, I just kept referring to that he's the most conspicuously strange child. And then Vreach was like, yes, this inconspicuous form. And I was like, <laughs> he thinks he's inconspicuous. Uh, it's funny, between the two of us, we got it right. Because you thought he was dragon, yeah. and, and I immediately thought he was the king. It's like, this kid, he's the king. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well done. Our two yeah. brains came together in yeah. one beautiful moment. How do we only know? Yeah. That was a weird, that was a weird scene. All of yeah. that to be said, I love Nidhana. <laughs> yes, so many I love reasons. Her. Oh, to back it up One. really quick. To back it up really oh, sure. quick. I actually really like the scene where they're all dead looking on the ground. I know that's very strange to say in that way, but I think it really represents how hard they've been working on the thing they've been working on, that they don't give a crap where they take a rest. They're like, all right, we don't, we don't have any more scales. I'm just, this this patch of ground looks fine. When when we got more scales, you wake me up. I'll be here, and that's it. So it's 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 ridiculous. It's definitely ridiculous. But I think that in a ridiculous, not really realistic way, it very well represents how much how like dedicated they are and interested in what in what they're working on. I have to take a second because as the resident big huge dragon nerd. Uh, Lemon Drop, aka Recipe Reborn, just said in the chat, I'm still confused that a gigantic dragon in a room makes an odor that only Astinian can smell. Is it just me or does it seem odd that dragons don't stink in some way? Um, <laughs> I actually have an answer to this and also why Astinian could tell that the puppet seemed was like a puppet for a dragon as opposed to um, and that it had like a dragon's touch on it um which is that we actually know that the remnants of be it draconic ether be it um there is an, a unique property to dragons right and they are a whole other thing i could do we could do an entire other talk about because their lore is fascinating but in the dark knight quests um with the young girl oh what's her name she's the elizin who was like born of an Elizabeth who was imbibing draconic blood that oh. is real, real, real. Oh, damn it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, real actually goes to the, um, the widowed, I guess you could say widowed, the widowed mate of the dragon that her father had been imbibing blood of that she then inherited. <laughs> And the dragon is able to sort of, in essence, smell him on her, but to sense him within her and the remnants of what lingers within her. Um, so, and also interestingly, I, I mean, I've had so many thoughts and theories about what that means as far as like the curse that's placed upon, you know, Elizans and their bloodlines to the actual imbibing of blood that activates it to all these different things. But um, it seems as though those who like either are tied to the kin, the, the scale kin, the dragons in some way, um, either through like an ethereal bond, which we ourselves are confirmed to have now with Midgard Stormer, which is fascinating, or um, through like the immersion of draconic blood and the the essence that uh, kind of infused Estinian over the years by carrying the eye of Nidhogg, which is the wellspring of his ether and 
um, like the resonance that they shared. And the time that, he spent as him. As yes, Nidhogg. and the time he spent as him. Like, it seems as though there is something that dragons are able to innately recognize within each other about the patterns of their bloodlines or ether, um, which is why he picks up the stink, mm -hmm. as it were, from... Well, even beyond that, um, when we head back up to Azizlaw, uh Tiamat immediately recognizes Astinian. She knows which of her brood he's related to. So yeah. so when he shows up, uh, he's basically like, my brother is here. Astinian knows that his brother is there. Brother. Yeah, it's cool. I, I love dragons. Yeah. <laughs> and we got some stuff in the post dungeons about dragons at Omega that also I was so excited about, but we'll talk about that later. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, let's see. Where are we? We meet... The guy, Varshan. No, Varshan is the kid. That was already done. We learn, after we meet Nidana, that they are uh, with those dragon scales that Varshan brings them, trying to create uh, something via the special properties in those scales that keeps people from being tempered. Which is super cool. Uh, I don't remember what exactly it was they say that keeps them from being tempered. Also, I'm wondering why... It works for us when they do it, but Tiamat still got tempered. I'm still trying to go through, because like Endwalker was big. Endwalker was really big. And I'm still trying to go through and research one question at a time to see what they talked about and they didn't. And this is one of the ones that I haven't been through all of the mentions for yet. But there's so many like interesting theories as to why A works for B but not C and why some like... Mm -hmm. um, does it work for primals as well as the tower and stuff like that? Like, it's just like, there's a whole lot to look into there and I am not done with it yet at mm. all. Well, the towers just along that line, the towers end up being primal related too. Anyhow, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but skipping back to the scales, uh, they, it'll they be do a, have to, go ahead. It'll be a bigger, it'll be a bigger thing in Garlemald. Cause then you're like wondering, is there, cause the, could the radios also have the, yeah. so it's like, is the shared connection something to do with the lightning ether is, you know, is this the lightning dragon? Is there, you know, like there's all sorts of like weird things you want to look into just to make sure that it wasn't mentioned anywhere. But yeah, it's, I don't know yet fully what the borders of all that are. Yeah. So I will soldier. be very curious. I was gonna say, I'd be, I'll be really curious when you get through all those references. I, I my like initial thought on it was that like you were saying, Zan, and like people in chat are saying, that it's instead that they are combined with something else and that's what allows it, mm -hmm. right? And for me, again, just being a nerd, but also not having done any really specific research on this question myself. So this could, this is tinfoil hat territory that we're in right now. Um, I have had <laughs> a bizarre theory for a while. That's just my personal take on this that I think is fun. Um, that the actual like true essence of dragons and or their <laughs> inherent self and the origination of all their self, uh, as opposed to like um, the physical ether and most other living things, which has a kind of equal distribution of ether throughout the body and, and that is replenished, that dragon's ether is actually all in their eyes and that um, they are malleable in their shape and form in a sense because of that. And that like the way that they themselves perceive themselves or the elements that they are, um, attuned to, right? We see this with L2, we see this with the actual lore book, which talks about how 
different affinities for elements, uh, leads different dragons to evolve in different shapes and forms. But the idea that their bodies almost are like an extension of this unbelievably profound ethereal wellspring and malleable in some sense, like we also see with some of the Midgard Stormer stuff. So it could be that like dragon scales are just really unique and interesting <laughs> as far as like ethereal concentration and um, structure would be. Because if they are in and of themselves, like if their bodies are constituted of magical will or something i don't know like i don't there's so much going on with them and it's so fascinating to me too because this dungeon that we talked about later with with omega um they talk about the fact that omega's liquid shape was actually influenced by the shape shifting of dragons and that like its malleable nature and the forms it can take had to do with uh studying and and taking data from dragons so I just think there's something interesting going on magically, ethereally, about those mm. scales, which makes them in and of themselves an ingredient that would be incredibly potent. Um, two, two hilarious things. Well, one's one is maybe hilarious. Uh, so dragon scales, really great for keeping people from being tempered. Also, you can use them to make glue. <laughs> it's a recipe. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. Those are Drake scales. Those are Drake scales. It's different. Drakes are different. <laughs> Um, the oh, other thing oh. that I just kind of realized was, um, you were talking about how all of their aether and power and whatnot is in their eyes. We see eyes all over that city. I didn't even think about that until just now. That is so much more significant than, like, it was significant before. Now it's more significant. That's really cool. Anyway, please yeah, continue. They actually say <laughs> in a quest that, um, the eyes are supposed to be Vitra's watchful eye looking out over the city but they also cool. draw a lot of parallels to um uh, evil middle eye. eastern evil eyes yeah, yeah which is also really cool the idea that you turn like a powerful malevolent gaze in a sense but like a powerful thank you monty upon some other malevolent force uh to basically like lock it into a um a stalemate so that it can't affect those you know with whom it might want to turn its evil gaze upon so you're like reflecting it um, which also, I mean, yeah, people in chat also saying that scales and of themselves kind of have a sense of warding, reflecting. Um, yep. It could be that, yeah, they have that sort of uh, innate protection built into them with the way that dragons' bodies exist. <laughs> Scale glue. Three you know? dragon scales. I'm looking at it. Two yeah, dragon scales. At it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, that is yeah, neither here nor there. You can totally use dragon scales to make adamantite scythes, grinding wheels, culinary knives, and scale glue now. All willingly given. So, <laughs> yes. Willingly oh. given. No, probably not. <laughs> no. I actually hate that we still kill dragons in any zone. <laughs> actually, yeah. it's very upsetting to me. Well, Some of them are still like, dicks. They were the Nid, uh, they were like the Nid hogs. Yeah. Like brood still enemies. Left over being dicks that over there. Was the, that was the excuse. Yeah. Um. So they finished the wording scale uh, to get us back on track. They finished this thing. Uh, we get to see it. It looks like Heidelin. It just does. It looks like her, like, woobly elemental body. It absolutely does. Uh, and so we go to <laughs> we go to test it because that's what you do in science, right? Uh, Nidana doesn't even care. She's like, nah, 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 nah. I know, I know that you'll be fine if we go. So like, you can take care of me or something. 
I'm gonna head over there. And if I get tempered, it's cool as long as we knew that this uh this works or doesn't work. Uh, they get there and it works. It absolutely works. She does not get tempered, but she does get captured almost immediately. So we run into the Tower of Zot by ourselves because we're really smart. <laughs> and we have a run-in with our, our favorite fan Daniel. Ugh. Oh, fanny pack. Yes. Uh, but this this exchange with him is the first time that I didn't hate him. Still, still hated him, but I didn't hate him as a character. I was like, oh, actually, you might be interesting. So what we learn is that my notes are a little jumbled here. First of all, as, as he's speaking, his voice changes. He's given a different voice. This is the first time we hear uh, Hermes' voice, or in this case, Amon's voice. He tells us that his body, this, not Asahi, obviously, but previously his body, uh, he was Amon in, in the freaking Crystal Tower. And now him acting like an idiot goober, like waving his arms around and being all theatrical makes 100% sense. And I just, I ate that part yes. up. It was good. I, um, this is probably where I realized that, like, Endwalker was, was, like, a lot of the things that I was afraid of were not going to happen, I think, is where this started to come into play. This was definitely, um, uh, where, where I had faith that they would improve the bad guys. This is yeah. where I was like, there it is. This is it. Like, until now, there's been this ambiguity in the Sundered Asians as to whether they're even still tempered. And there's good reason to believe both ways based on the evidence that we've seen, especially, like, the sheer number of them who just introduce themselves as, Hi, I'm Asian, whatever, servant of Zodiac, and that they're willing to undermine <laughs> each other to get closer to Zodiac and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, how, if you accept yourself as that fan Daniel? do you avoid that possibility entirely? Because it's ambiguous right now. So are they going to explain it? Are they going to give him an excuse? Are they even going to address that at all? And the first thing he does is walk out and go, hi, I inherited the former Fan Daniel's memories. Kind of anyway. In theory anyway. In reality, fuck that guy. I don't yep. care. I'm not that guy. I'm Amon. And that was like the guy that we expected to be so much more important until now than he really was. Like mm -hmm. ever since we learned more about the Asians, and especially since Emmett Selk admitted that they're not just whispering in men's ears, they're like puppet mastering everything from behind the scenes. We expected Amon to be more important than than we knew. And for them to tie these two awkward figures together in a way that made this much sense, I was like, yes, we are mm -hmm. off to a great start. I didn't see that coming at all. Let's do this. Like, this was this was probably my first big favorite moment. I, within the grand picture of everything, do really like how this came together. Because the twisting, right? Like, the, the parallels that we see of the twisting of this figure from Hermes throughout multiple iterations to something like Amon, which for many people who don't know, was responsible for a lot of very, very terrible, bizarre experimentation and creation. Um, and like, to me, I have always found that the, this is such a strange thing, I was just doing Crystal Tower today and it came up. The Scylla dialogue has always been so interesting to me because she, as we all know, has these three wolf heads shoved on her body, and she, um, throughout the whole fight, is talking about listening to her hounds and all this stuff. And then at the end, she has this line, you know, at last the hounds grow silent. And to me, it's so funny because 
it's such an easy thing to miss. It's unvoiced. But the idea that there's this weird subversion in that fight with her, that she's a villain, but in reality, she may have been a victim. Mm. And like that to me, and, and Amon's directly responsible for the modifications that were done to her and many other like entities that we see throughout the game. Um, and, you know, things that he's saying that he was, you know, doing for the entertainment of others, but that also I think comes from this bizarre echoing memory that even if he couldn't tangibly recall had to do with his love of creation and all this other stuff. Um, I love how it all comes together. In the moment, I don't know if I was sold on it right up front, mostly because as chat has been yelling, I was still so mad that Nidhana had done the stupidest things ever. <laughs> it's like, I was like, I am an experienced combatant. I have been in all kinds of situations, and I'm not gonna put myself between her and that tower. I'm not gonna be like, hey, Nidhana, don't go stand in front of that door that's bizarrely cracked three feet off the ground so that you have a perfect place to get sucked into. I'm not gonna be, I was still so like annoyed by some of this setup that I had to like let myself engage with the idea of Amon being tied into this whole thing. But I think that ultimately, it does come together in a complete picture that I think is really incredible for him as a character. There was, yeah. there was one part of this that I had to go back. Cause I knew, like I knew that it had to be connecting to something. And for some reason, my brain just wouldn't pick up on it was um, when he first learns that they're doing the warding scale and that he's not going to blow the project up. He's curious. He's going to like keep an eye on it. Cause he can't help himself. He's like, Oh, this reminds me of, Oh, it was that guy. Oh, Owen. And he just kind of moves on with it. Owen was the guy that was researching iconic corruption when we went up to Ozzy's yes. Law with Graha. Yes. And I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. Like the name just totally slipped my mind. And the fact that that question got answered. Why did they stop this? Because Why he was there to go. The project? Mm -mm. No, that no, was no. like one of our first foreshadows that this was yeah. going back in an Amon direction. And I totally missed it. I would have loved, I would have loved, like this is maybe one of my critiques, not about Endwalker, because I think Endwalker actually did a really phenomenal job tying together a ton of loose ends like that, but the patches leading up into Endwalker. We have those bits with Owen, we go up to Azizla, right? I would have loved if at that point in the patch cycle, they had taken a little bit more time to have us uncover in a, another form within that zone about Ammon, about the years that he served, about the context of the Allegan Empire at that time. Um, like, we were up there and I can see that they had the idea for it, but the stuff that we get with Owen, it seems like this one tiny drop that could have been this huge, interesting thing. But I also feel as though they were so concerned about like not giving anything away or like foreshadowing the turns with these villains in any kind of like, I don't know, I guess bigger context that I had a lot of trouble with some of the time spent in that patch cycle when I feel as though I could have had a bit more of a running start with those two. And then an Endwalker, give, like, given the scope of how everything goes and the turn with the real reveal of the villain and all this kind of stuff, I think I would have been better served to have had a little bit more of like a, a runway with them, <laughs> like leading in with some of these revelations or things like that, maybe even being paced a bit in that patch cycle. Because um, it's all like the context is there and the zones we went to are there for it. But I just didn't think we quite got enough, especially for people who don't know anything about Ammon, except that he's that guy that wears the big hat and that's it's a cool hat. <laughs> you know? 
I don't know about you, but the next time I went into Crystal Tower and got that hat, it's still in my inventory so that I can wear it with the robes you get later on when enough people are through the MSQ and just be a jerk, a visual jerk. Uh, okay. Poor Nidana. We, we lose her. She gets shoved into the tower and uh, Fan Daniel informs us if we didn't know before, if you pull her out, she will die. If you pull anyone out of the tower, they will die. Uh, with this information in our pocket, we head back to uh, the the great work. We inform them that we kind of screwed up. Uh, and then we head to go see uh, the satrap of Razad Han, who we think is Ahewan, which is who I actually thought um, Fandani was talking about first when he said Awin, because the names are also kind of similar. Uh, and so maybe I'm, I was thinking that uh, they were trying to cover that up, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, when we get in there, as we said earlier, Estinian's like, my brother is stinky. And then they pull up this giant curtain and he's just chilling. This, how did he get in there? Do they have like trap doors on the roof? No, there's... Hold on, I'm thinking through the chamber. I believe, because this is the kind of detail that I take into account, I believe there's okay, a okay. huge set of doors behind him. That like the back of the building has a big... I'm going to okay. double check that. But Someone I think in chat agrees, like yeah. A... Yeah, I think there's these big, big, big doors behind him that he theoretically flies into. Nobody's and then suspicious given... of that? Well, this is also my guess, though. We don't know how long he's been there. Because, like, dragon sense of time or a dragon sense of mm. time could, like, to him, it could be like, I've been here five minutes and, like, three generations have died. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like... I, I feel like he has a better he... sense, though, because he's so closely entangled with uh, the people that basically represent him. The people oh. that his people think is the king, you know? But if, he, a Mughal, I, if a Mughal can go stealth, a dragon can go yeah. stealth. That's true. They could probably do invisibility. But he also has his little body, right? I'm so talking about the door. Days. Those doors are giant. People just didn't go... Why do we have such big freaking doors on the back of this building? And it's probably... Like, thinking about it, it's probably because they have, in the past, had interactions with a dragon, whether they think it's real or not at this point. Uh, it would yeah. be symbolic to have giant doors there, right? Uh, maybe. I'm, like, split. Uh, I'm split between, like, one. Everybody knows that the satrap has a deal with a dragon. What if they ever need to talk to them, right? So you have the big doors as a symbol yeah. of the dragon. And then part yeah, of yeah, it yeah. is, like... Does anyone really question when the royalty puts big shit places? Like if like if if the king of any other country put giant doors leading onto a giant balcony and had giant parties out there sometimes, would anybody really be standing there like, man, these are some big doors. Why do you do that? It's ridiculous. No, that's why you have no, you're fun right. little tiny doors in the big doors. You you're know right, what I mean? Right. I, love, <laughs> I love that in architecture. It's so it's so weird. A little door it. in the big gate. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that there, I think there's a lot of ways that you could just kind of write it off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I did like that detail, though, because I thought that was fun. And I yelled so much. I think I yelled the word dragon for a good five minutes straight after <laughs> he was revealed. And any time he was on the screen, because I love his animations. I love his bot. Like, the way they do these dragons are so fun. Oh my gosh, I just love the combination of different physical traits and how he talks and their voice. And I just, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. I thought it was it. very significant that he spoke in quote unquote common. He didn't do the whole like dragon, like, I'm speaking directly into your mind thing. He was like, I'm speaking with my actual mouth and their words, you know. So it's just, it, it's another little 
I've been here for a very long time type thing. And he, he holds a sort of, uh, they, they talk, I don't remember if they talk about this now or later, but he ha I think it's later. He has a, an understanding and love for people that probably no other dragon does. And, uh, so even when he like heard Nidhogg's call, he was like, nah, bro. Cubans, people, the, the children of this planet, they're, they're good. I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm gonna chill here and take care of them. Grahatia might have been the best boy leading up to this moment, but now I'm in a real crisis of trying to decide if Vitra or Grahatia is best boy. I mean, and we got the twins who are pretty high up there after the final zone. I don't know, but like, Vitra is so good though. <laughs> like, I it... love him <laughs> so much. Um, especially too, because and we get we get a tiny bit with this, a tiny bit where it is implied later on that um, Hreisvelger does finally come down from his moping to, like, try and help with something, you know? But the fact that they both have such polarizing responses to grief, I just find to be lovely. I just find it to be lovely. Because, like, the dragons are such emotional entities, and, like, with Nidhogg, and this is a whole other theory, like theory thing we could go down, right? And now I have this whole other realm of Akasha to also dive into with the possibility of things like Nidhogg's song and the rage and the emotion being an actual mm. like contagious magical force that almost affects the the mood and tone of other dragons that might be unable to resist the call. All these different things. Like there's so many ways now we could interpret dragons and what they do, um, but. I really, really liked that we got almost the opposite to this idea of being mired in a place of suffering. Like Nidhogg is mired in his rage. Preisfelger, um, again, lifespans of dragons, the way they perceive time could be wildly different. And if there is some kind of force that grips them, um, the idea that Preisfelger has been permanently stuck in his his grief at losing, you know, his sister and uh, Shiva for so long, although Shiva's still with him in a way because of him eating her om nom nom uh, but our love but will go om nom nom the idea that Vritra could be mired in love i oh, i just like in love of his people and that that force for him has become one long refrain right of uh, 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 an emotional foundation a moment that he's been in for so long i'm like this is so good he's and in my Discord, this is a silly note, but in my Discord, uh, when people got to that part and wanted to talk about it without spoiling anything, they called him the nose. Because he's got such a big horn. It's <laughs> good. That's uh, good. Yeah. All right. Um, so after we learn how much Vyusha loves his people and how sad he is that so many of them are stuck in this tower, he asks you to lead an assault on Tower of Zot and promises you that you will get a bunch more of warding scales, which would be very helpful to us in our other endeavors. So, uh, yeah, we, we decided that's probably a good idea. Take a little trip back to Charlie and inform everybody what's going on and then pop back over. Um, I mean, everybody's done the tower. You know what happens in there. Uh, it's real gross. It reminds me a whole lot of centipedes. Things like grow and, and flip open and it's a bunch of bugs. It really it just looks like bugs. Who are we kidding? Uh, you fight the Magus sisters, which... Uh, previously unfamiliar to us are uh an important part of the uh society and mythology in thavnir did an awesome job working the mega sisters into this game 
Um, yes. My, the first, like, I, I was late getting into Final Fantasy, like, in my teen years. And my first encounter with them was 10. And uh, I thought they were, like, silly DLC-like buggy girls. Like, I never really expected them to be, like, this main mainline primal kind of figure. So I thought they did such a great job weaving them into this world in the dungeon and making them feel like they belonged as much as any other. Though why, like, why didn't they look lunar at all is bugging me. It's a good question, honestly. Um, I felt like it was just because they wanted them to have a fun color scheme. You know. Yeah, it felt, it felt, it felt like just like, we want them to look right. <laughs> like That's why they didn't look like all the others. It's very impossible that the people of Savnir didn't get that whole like, oh no, Lunar Bahamut, let's also think of all the other primals as Lunar. Yeah, they just, they just, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I guess, yeah, maybe you can justify something about, I don't know, the immediate devastation of Lunar influence with Bahamut in the moon on mainland Eorzea. I don't know. I honestly think it's just because they didn't want to. It's also possible, this is something that I've tossed around as an idea because in four the mega sisters are technically like a um they're like servants to barbariccia that's her name <laughs> i was like what is her name i never played four and i need to um they're servants to barbariccia who's the uh like she's the like lady of wind i believe mm -hmm. or there's another title for her um one of the four horsemen kind of equivalents that they have in that so i couldn't help but wonder if when we get our bonus primal phases or something like that they're going to do something with those four because that would make i don't know that would make sense to I'm me i'm still waiting um, for the the arch fiends i really am yeah, i like i love fiends. them <laughs> And that, like, they might have actually been the real things that were somehow summoned by these. And maybe the Mega Sisters were just some weird little, I don't know, some weird little fart that happened at the tower. And that's why they look different than Lunar. I have no idea. I honestly just think it's because they wanted to play around with their designs and not have them all be purple, to be honest. But That's fair. That's fair. Um, where are we? I do. So, yeah. ooh, I, I wanted to mention really fast, uh, actually thinking about them that I love the way that they um, build the lore around them, even with Matsya. So like when Matsya is telling you about the Manusha and like what they are and what they mean within the context of the world, like these are real things that again, draw from um, various traditions and, uh, and, and spiritualities and religions uh, throughout India. And uh, actually in my dungeon lore tour, I think we talk specifically about it and the Manusha, but um, to give them this context in the world of being like the i'm thinking through because i i don't have it in front of me right now uh but the separation between like people and then the uh like the the animal sort of forces and animal gods and then the entire lore around the idea of like some who took the heads of animals and put them on their bodies and some who took the i loved that um i wish i actually had it all written out in front of me right now because that also explains why the minutia wear the animal masks uh because it's meant to be an embodiment of this mythology within the region um and that they each represent you know this kind of force as well as the uh fountain that sort of um oh what's it actually called uh the font of maya um, that's one of the pins on the map 
the font of Maya and the sort of reference to Ganesh there, which, uh, you know, in uh, religion is the elephant headed God. But they've again kind of done this subversion in context as inspiration within the realm, where instead this is a figure who was one of these figures of mythology within Thavnair that took the head of uh, the Arcasodra or Matanga and then adopted it as part of the um, peace between these two forces, human and, and animal, um, which is kind of an interesting reflective myth. I just, I think all of that, again, layers on layers of details they worked in. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay, so when we get up to the core of the tower, we learn that, well, Yustola tells us that a man's limb is in the core of the tower. And that's all we learned about that to start. Later, later on, we kind of glean what, what that means. But to start, we're just like, huh? Excuse? Oh, it's an arm. I mean, it's, it's Varys, just... right? Am I wrong in this? I yeah, think I'm pretty it's, sure yeah, it is. It's, it's him. Okay. Yeah, they, they dismembered Vars but and put him in all the time, cars. At the time, we're like, huh? What that is? Um, very gross. Uh, but we destroy the core. And when it's destroyed, the tower starts to go away. <laughs> so, um, Mr. Goodboy Graha, he learned a spell when, when he was cheating at the library, trying to read the tall books. Um, <laughs> so, uh, he levitates every single person, every single person in that tower to the ground safely as it disappears. And then he passes out because that's a lot, that's a lot for anybody to do. What a good boy. This is, this is him in that specific point in time being like, no, Rook, look, I'm still a very good boy. Don't make it the dragon. <laughs> I know, but it's so hard, Gratia. It's so hard. Uh, such a sweet boy. No, he, he saves everybody kind of, kind of almost all by, all by himself after, you know, we do the, the beating up part of the fighting. And then he gets a rest. And while he's resting, we go back to Charlene. We visit with Grandpa Matashane who is the best still living grandpa, I believe. Uh, Can I we just also... take one yeah, second here? Absolutely. What order did both of you do the zones in? Did you do Charlian first and then Thav? Because our outline obviously yes. was Thav first and then Charlian, or did you do the reverse? Oh, I did I did Thav and, and Charlian, and this outline is based off of my, my quest loggy logs, so that's probably why. I also I... did Thav to Charlian, yeah. I did the Charlayne branch first because it felt like I just got there and that it would feel more natural if I completed that and then left. I wanted to, to be honest with you, but the people I was doing it with were a little ahead of me and they were like, we're going here first. And I was like, okay. I mean, the story itself says to you like, oh yeah, you could stay in Charlayne, I guess, but it seems more pressing in Thavnair. And I have to say... Having now played it and looking back on it, I wish I had done Charlian first. And I honestly wish that there wasn't even an option. Although I know why they did it. Because this is a way that they dealt with traffic flow and splitting people up. Yep. And logistically, that makes sense. But can I... Zen, did you feel how I felt? You get yes. done with that and you mm -hmm. finish the tower and it's like... Or, or you get... This is before the dungeon. This is before the dungeon, actually. Yes. Yes. You, you, yes. you go back yes. before the dungeon. Yes. Actually, I, I mentioned that in the outline. So this is actually the correct order no it isn't I yeah don't i think you you went through it yeah yeah yeah. no you did i think you went through it mostly right okay <laughs> yes you put the dungeon in there where it feels organic right but otherwise if you don't 
uh, you leave like after Nidhana has been sucked into the tower and then you're like, oh, that's a bummer. I guess I'll go see if like Charlotte has anything going on. And it felt so weird. It felt so awkward. Like I really felt like it completely pulled back on the narrative in a way that was just like really not great for me. <laughs> I didn't hate it, but it, it did feel ordered incorrectly. I don't feel like I would have just left my beloved elephant lady to to rot in the tower. Like, no, 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 no. We gonna like lis listen, listen. Nidana's stuck, and Mister Mister the Nose has just asked for our help. We can't just go back to Library Land right now. We have stuff to do over there. No, I agree with you. However, the trip back to see uh, Grandpa was great. He, uh... we also meet Ki Aliapo who is related to the other Aliopos we know. I don't know in what ways. Is that their mom, maybe? Ma, the Keepers of the Moon have, like, names that go back to the beginning of time, pretty much. So some of the families are pretty big. All right. I think they are matriarchal lines, aren't they, though? Suzanne, you're not too yeah. far off with the... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know um, how... I don't know how many of them they explicitly tell you the connections between... Uh, so we meet her briefly as we're trying to find Grandpa because he he was looking for us after the whole forum debacle. Uh, but we weren't there. We were hanging out in Thavnir. And so uh, Kryle lets us know that he's looking for us. So we have to go find him. Apparently, he's very difficult to find. Uh, while we're looking for him, we also learn that Alphno is a very popular boy. He actually gets a, gr a crowd of people that just like follow him around a little bit. It's like a little idol over there. Those two cuties. And poor Alice. Now you know why she tries so hard to prove herself and why she cares so much that somebody she holds in such high esteem has a high opinion of her. When stinky Alphino is the one that everybody fawned over growing up. Oh, she's so much better than him. In we every all way. know. And I love Alphino, but she is better than him. I mean, we've already learned that the the morals and ideals of, of Charlene are kind of questionable. Clearly, they chose the wrong twin, right? Yeah, but uh, I do think it's actually an interesting commentary on education, if that makes sense. <laughs> because I know a lot of people who are um, people who are not maybe the most textbook, exam-worthy, pristine people that, you know, have been in college or things like that. Like I have a friend who's one of the most brilliant engineers that I know, but who failed multiple courses during their studies, who like really struggled with the testing environment, but who, if you actually sat down and you were like, make this thing, blueprint this thing, build this thing, um, he can do things that like most other people would never think of. And he has been super successful in his career, but because of like the standards of education, his skill and a lot of his more hands-on approach and that less like sit down, do an exam, regurgitate facts or, you know, be in this high pressure environment as opposed to like a hands-on environment. He just did not ever get, I think, a lot of the recognition for his intelligence that was deserved. Um, and I feel like that's such a thing with, with Alice to be in this environment where there's this very specific way that you earn you know, your place in the world and that you do these dissertations or that you, you know, show what your intelligence is. And even if I think Alice probably has a more well-rounded sense of judgment and all kinds of stuff, especially as they leave 
Charlian for the first time. And between the two of them, Alphino probably makes the greater mistakes. Yeah. Uh, she's never given as much of the credit, uh, just because I think her intelligence and her instincts shine in a different way. And in combat, which isn't at all supported in Charlian. I'm actually going to disagree with you a little. Um, I don't think that Alize feels like she's in Alphino's shadow to the point where, um, again, in, in Garlemald, where the two of them are being held captive, she's just like, hey, you have important things to do, and I'm going to be here to kick your butt so that you can do it. Uh, she knows she knows where his talents are. She wants to be there to support him. And she does tell us, like, he was always better in school. You know, I wasn't that great. But I, I didn't get the sense that she felt like that made her lesser. Interesting. I guess I think back with it to how in conflict the two of them are back in binding coils mm -hmm. and the fact that um i their relationship i think i agree with you in the sense that like at this point yes i think that she has found a lot of things that have empowered her i think that her relationship with the warrior of light as well has empowered her and emboldened her her place amongst the scions the areas that she has proven herself i think all of that and her journey to becoming a red mage right like all of those mm -hmm. sorts of things i think in many ways have empowered her over the course of the game to stand up for it. But I guess, and this would be just personal interpretation, right? Like for me, I assumed that a lot of the friction between them and her, you know, antagonism towards him initially when they really dislike each other and they have to come together and binding coil was probably born from like a sense of inferiority. And when I was like going through those quests, it felt like that was confirmation for me where I went like, Oh, so he was the golden boy and she maybe didn't quite get that same level. And she talks about how it was harder for her and her struggles and, you know, she didn't get the same attention and things like that. And I was like, oh, maybe that's where that okay. conflict between them Have... came from. So it's more like a we never necessarily saw that that aspect of her so much. And because now definitely, definitely she's not she's like, whatever, you got shit to do. I'm here to do my shit and I'm going to help you do yours, too. Also. So yeah, I, I guess I could see uh, less less directly uh, when when they were over doing the the school grade thing. Maybe she felt uh, that way. Have y'all ever heard the phrase "red oni, blue oni" before? Yeah, mm, I haven't actually. No. Okay. Well, um, we see. There's actually a couple examples of that in the game. Is that part of mythology? There, there is like some, there's mythological stuff attached to it. There's trope stuff attached to it. But like on a very, very basic level, it's a tendency in stories to put two people together who are like linked somehow. They've got to spend a lot of time together. There's a strong connection between them. And one of them is going to have a lot of stuff representing red. And that's going to be passion and like this need for independence and to butt heads with people and to do things in their own way and to be like proactive and go get them and ambitious. And the other one is going to be kind of really in control of themselves and calm and respect authority and do things by the book in the right way. And it's so that they can like butt heads a lot because they see the world in a very different way and they have different approaches to solving problems. And like, these are the archetypal like they <laughs> even wear their respective they color sure do. at all times yeah. like when you first meet them they they are alike in every single way except one has red hair bobbles and one has blue hair bobbles so it's been like red oni blue oni this whole time and i didn't get it for a while like 
But once That's I did, cool. I was like, oh, wait, shit. <laughs> I'm going to have to look up more on that. That's really neat. I didn't realize that there was that tied to them. But yeah, you're right. I can absolutely see that. You know what? I, this, this has nothing to do with anything. But I appreciate that the more outgoing, more bold of the two is a girl. I just do. Oh, yeah. 110%. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. I mean, it's something that uh, I think 14 does have a fantastic cast of very powerful women in it, which is great. And I'm not going to lie. It's one of the main reasons that I'm drawn to the game. Like, there, I mean, there's so many other reasons, too. But nothing will immediately detract my enjoyment of a game as much as like, and here's the cast and they're all dudes and whoop, one lady. <laughs> <laughs> she's useless and simpering and i'm like okay yeah. great well this uh, is all right awesome. not for me goodbye <laughs> so uh we do finally find grandpa we get a we get a little bit of a oh hey i remember teaching you guys time for another lesson and he teaches us about uh corporeal and incorporeal aether which uh we briefly touched on earlier he's he says there are three kinds of aether uh, incorporeal soul, incorporeal memory, and corporeal. Straight up corporeal, which uh, is sort of what regulates uh, the main, uh, maintaining of our bodies and is in constant flux, you know, because we got to eat and burn calories and whatnot. I guess that's Aether too. Um, he gives us a really cool example. I want to know how come he can just make shit appear out of air. Why can't I do that? I am also an accomplished mage. Glamours. They're all just holograms, like Tupac. That's, uh, the thing you're typing is up here, too. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed it. Sorry, I was adding on because I remember yeah. one of the things that was my major takeaways yeah. from this talk. Please continue. So he, he, he represents the soul as a piece of paper, and uh, memories are the words on the paper. And he said, he writes, like, welcome to the, and I can't read the last word. Studium. Studium? I was like, that looks like it says Hyaline. Which yeah, is a place. Like studio. <laughs> but, like, uh, but again, I read part or passed as fart earlier, so clearly I can't read. <laughs> you need to go to the studio, Zed. Yeah. Uh, I'm the Alize here. I'm just going to fight things. Uh, and he, he writes this message on it, and then he blots out the words with ink. He uh, basically is saying that you can use Aether to blot out memories. They're still there. They're just kind of covered up. And this is what they've done to all of the people who are involved in the uh, the great task, the great duty that has been given to them uh, in Charlian. He also mentions that this is very, very illegal. Uh, and also mentions, this is the thing that we were talking about in the, the uh, timeline outline just now, is uh, this can happen naturally. And it's what happened to a bunch of people during the seventh umbral calamity. So when you first start playing the game, you show up, I see you shaking your head. Moose is shaking his head. When you first show up yeah. in the game, you get a bunch of uh, the important people you knew before being like, I feel like I know you, but you are not someone that I know. That's a very strange feeling. And so what has happened to all these people is that surge of ether, theoretically, that we got from uh, Dalmud falling and Bahamut just straight up attacking every place, blocked out people's memories. I'm going to leave this, this to you. You're shaking your head. I know you want to say many things. I, 
I'm shaking my head just because of the, like I'm going through my my memories of being in this scene, and this scene was very mixed emotions. It was like all of the emotions at once. I was impressed and excited and satisfied, and at the same time very cynical and nervous because. Well, first, like the definition of Aether in 1.0 and the definition of Aether in 6.0 have, they're not even close anymore. They change like little bits over time, but like the, there has been so, so much change. And the three kinds of Aether was really like set in stone by the time they were doing the Relic storyline when we were like rebuilding the, um, the weapons for Bosia and stuff like that. They had, they had that ironed out by then, which was really nice. Um, so to see this PowerPoint was like, oh, so they're finally settling down. They're finally done. This is how it is. We can count on this from now on. But also, while he's talking about all of these like ethereal retcons that have happened, and what we're like settling into is the big full truth here. He's also giving this huge metaphor about wiping memories. And I'm like, oh, that's going to come up. Like he just told us how something works in a PowerPoint. This is, this is a plot point. Uh, and then again, yeah, connecting it to the calamity. Like we we were asking those questions in 2.0, and now it's 6.0, and they're like, yeah, that's what happened. I'm like, bro, like I know you made that up two weeks ago. Um, yeah, <laughs> most of most of it was just like, oh, this is gonna come up again. Still, <laughs> I I liked I liked that they were like, hey, remember that thing we did? We I guess we didn't really so know emotions. why. I don't know why we did that then, but we did. Maybe thought it made sense in some other way. But here's what it is now. You like that, and right? And you Frankie. know what? I did. I still kind of liked it. <laughs> Go ahead. For anybody who doesn't know exactly how this lines up, so if you were a 1.0 player. Um, you were in the world before it was destroyed by uh, Dalamud and Bahamut and that whole cutscene with Louis Swa and the primals and all that stuff that you see all over the internet um, that was sort of the ending of 1.0 A Realm Reborn uh, culminated in you and the other warriors of light, right, being on the field, this huge thing happening. We found out later Phoenix, you know, playing a hand, trying Louis Swa trying to summon the 12 and failing. And um, you were there as like the defenders of the world and then Louis Swa like sends you forward in time. And if you were a 1.0 player, you get some variations and cutscenes as you come into the game that kind of acknowledge you as being somebody, um, if you have that legacy tattoo and stuff like that, as somebody who would have been there. But again, it's in this weird way, like I feel like I almost remember you and stuff like that. And I think eventually characters like do kind of say something more affirming. But if you are just a player, oh, sorry, go ahead. They melded it together really well. There's three layers of it. Um, if you're a totally new player, every now and then people are still like, oh, you kind of remind me of someone. Uh, if you played 1.0 at all and the characters come over, you have the tattoo. And then if you have completed the 1.0 quest, United We Stand, that's the one that gives you the cutscene swaps and the, and the quest flag swaps and stuff uh -huh. like that. It's so cool. Like, I love that they did this, although I'm very sad I can never get those cutscenes for myself. But uh, you'll hear people even mention, like, we know that there were, like, warriors of light on the field, but we don't remember them. Just a flood of light and ether, so that's why we call them that kind of. <laughs> and it's always been this sort of uh, obtuse thing, so this was a way for them to go back. But I found myself wondering, I don't know if either of you had this thought, when they were announcing this, and they talked about the seventh umbral calamity and like, oh, and we all just completely forgot. I had this moment where I went, 
are they at some point going to tell us that something happened during that that no one remembers that like we don't think is even in that event but that somehow is going to have something yes. to do with like the new 24 man raid or the like, yes. you know whatever happened Absolutely. that now because they just pointed it out in such a way that I couldn't decide if I thought yes they were just going back and giving an explanation for something already in the game or if they were trying to hint again like you were saying Moose at this bigger thing even beyond just the Charlians using it do both absolutely remember, do you remember when I was saying that I'm a precedent guy and I yeah. look at what mm -hmm. is in the world and then if there's something new it's gonna surprise me so when it first happened I wasn't like ooh I bet this connects to stuff I was like Ah, oh, big perfusion of ether, intense ether sickness. That makes sense. Can't remember shit. Yep. Okay. And then they explained what the rejoining was. And I was like, oh, a whole nother human soul being like shoved into your soul. Like, I bet that would mess with your memory. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. And then they explained this. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, yeah, every time they change something, I'm just like, oh, yes, that fits with what we know. Because that's where their head was at the time. So, nah, but yeah. I feel like. I feel like you're right. Uh, them being like, yes, a lot of people forgot a lot of things at a certain point in time. You remember how that happened? No, because everybody forgot. Maybe that was for a reason. We don't know. Did did it happen because of the rejoining? Did it happen because Louis Swan had a bunch of Aether formed up and had to become Phoenix and wanted people to forget that? We specifically told you we wanted you to forget about Phoenix before. Who knows? Maybe some event happened then that Louis Swa was like, oh, no, people cannot know about this. No, no, no. Who knows? That's messed up. No, we'll get over it. All right, I'm going to wipe it. There's a there's an interview that Otisan did where he's like, and did you notice that the crystals that have spawned up all over the realm are the same color as Phoenix? Yes. yes. And I feel like That's if it was in the room, I would have just jumped across the table like, you son of a... <laughs> I know. I thought of you when I read that. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that could make some sense about how the land has healed or whatever. Because <laughs> you can tie it oh together. My but God, again, so it is definitely one of those things that feels <laughs> like so a, good. we just made it up. And yeah, sure, it fits with what we had, but that's because we knew what we had. So <laughs> they're uh, so good at pretending it was planned all along. It's a, I love this game. <laughs> all right, so. Uh, the other, the last thing that really goes on in that particular lesson is he uh, mentions the ethereal sea clearing memory from the soul. Uh, not only like wiping away that, that blot that he put on the page, but also clearing away the words. Basically, your soul goes back and everything that was written on it in your lifetime goes away. But that some memories are, quote unquote, indelibly etched upon our souls, which is, you know, pretty much a, a reference to how we're as in forever. Well, I definitely held on to those words all the way up through Elpis. And the moment everything happened in Elpis, I immediately went back to old grandpa Montashane's words. And I was like, they will remember me. <laughs> I, I like, I immediately jumped to it um, because it does turn out that Elpis was one of my favorite parts of this whole game. And I can't wait until we get there. But we yeah, won't today. I, I, <laughs> I like this idea. Sorry, go ahead, mm -hmm. Moose. I'm going to wait to even talk about it so it doesn't like, yeah, I'll talk about it more in Elvis. But like when we landed on on the Aetherite, I didn't even move. I didn't start the quest. I, didn't, I just put my controller down and started talking like I had like a whole rant ready, but we'll leave it for that. 
I'm ready. I'm ready oh, for that. it's amazing. Um, so many things happened, ridiculous things in this expansion. But yeah, I like the idea that there are like certain things about ourselves or um, our memories that might be such an intrinsic part of us. And I mean, it also ties into the larger thing they had already established about like the star shower, for example, right? That there are certain things that even everybody might have as like a an imprint left on their soul forever. Forever that, and ever can reawaken certain things or tie us together through these different lifetimes where, you know, the energy is recycled and reborn and the life stream, you know, gives birth to totally new souls, but also, you know, uh, reinfuses those souls throughout the different worlds. So I liked that. I thought it was fun. I like that they've given us some more details about it. A lot of this section with Charlene felt very much, there was new stuff, but a lot of it did feel like the, if you haven't been paying attention to lore, here's the breakdown. And I was like, I know this is necessary, but I'm also so ready to be so far beyond it. So I kind of felt a little bit like that with some of the recapping of lore stuff in Charlian, but I do think it really set us on a strong like footing moving forward for everybody. So now that we've handled our lesson uh, and also Zot, we get some news that uh, Garlemald's well screwed up. We already knew that. But uh, now they're going to do something about it. The Aeorzean Alliance is like, ah, I mean, like, I guess we should help them. Xeno sucks real bad. And, like, the source of the towers is there and stuff. Maybe we should, let's, let's go help them, I guess. So we joined the Elsebird contingent. And before we head out, we go to Alamigo and see every single friend we've ever made waiting for us. And we cry a little bit because there's so many NPCs that we love just standing there all together. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely cried all at this. I did. <laughs> I got emotional. I, I look, it's a good thing I didn't cry here because as it was from about Elpis on, I did nothing but cry in this expansion. So... <laughs> So, uh, there were some spots even before that that I did. This one I felt really emotional about, but kind of in that way that you feel emotional, you when you're playing a really good RPG, and then you get to like the final, like right before the final encounter where you're gonna inevitably talk to somebody and they're gonna say to you, there's no going back. Do all the things you need to do. And when you eventually click on that person, it usually like starts off with some kind of thing where there's all your allies at the gates of whatever or in your secret hideout or wherever it is. And you get to talk to every person. And I'm not gonna lie, it's one of my favorite parts of RPGs. And I sometimes side-eye RPGs that don't do it. <laughs> because I like, <laughs> if there have been characters that I cared about in this game, I want to be able to touch base with them before we say goodbye, you know? Um, and this felt kind of like the first step of that. Uh, you know, we get iterations of it multiple times, but to actually be able to go around and see these characters, even side characters that normally you wouldn't think would be there, acknowledged as having played a role in our journey, I was like, yeah, yes, you even get like though. the you get the smiths from Linsa, and you get the the great people. I love the part where uh, the people from the step come in, and Sadu is just like, we didn't have a tower on the step, so we went to Doma to help them with theirs, but we couldn't do it because it was gonna screw us up. So we're here to fight because I'm tired of not fighting. Let's go, Sadu, so wonderful. Uh, and later on, I I don't remember exactly where this happened, but. Uh, after a certain point of battle, 
freaking little son is like, ah, yes, Serena, hello, run to me. And she just runs right past him to check on Sadu. And I was like, yes! Okay, but can we please all agree that Sadu and Serena are just girlfriends? They're cute. They're very cute. Like, come on. Like, it seems very blatant to me, but I'm always looking for more representation in my games. I need it. So I just, I loved that they just seemed to almost be like, Ah, yes, here's Magni, and everybody's been yelling about who is he going to end up with when he grows up, and then it's like, nobody, because it turns out you're still immature and you smell bad. (laughs) It's like, we're going to be girlfriends instead. And I just, that's what I need for every piece of media that exists in the whole world. I need that avatar Cora. I need that. They're very opposites attract. Because she's, Serena's all, you know, or Serena, how do you, I don't know. She's like, I'm here and I'm uh I'm calm. I'm collected. I'm using my brain. And Saudi's like, what up? Let's murder shit. And so they just they balance each other out. Again, themed red blue a little bit. <laughs> anyway, I just wanna I I couldn't remember exactly where Damn that happened. Man. So while we were talking about it, I wanted to bring it up. Um They are, they are wearing red and blue. Mm-hmm. They yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do it, do it up. Even, even up to, like, the one of them has pink hair, red, and one of them is blue. Straight up. She is blue. Mm-hmm. But, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I was really touched by the the scene where all the people uh, show up uh, for the Ilspard contention, especially um, where it was brought up that all of all of these people show up to go and help Garlemald. Oh, no. Uh, even though Garlemald has been so terrible to them. I appreciated that there were like, this felt like another they read the forums moment to me, because you saw the same debate playing out, like, to what degree does the government represent the people? To what degree does the people that, like, the people give their assent to the government justify and legitimize the government? Is Garlemald, um, are the citizens therefore you know part of the decisions that were made by their government are you know like so i i appreciated that even the npcs in the game had a disagreement over whether garlemald as an empire is worth helping and that all the people who showed up for us weren't like oh actually garlemald are the good guys of this game they were like no they're 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 millions of people in this territory and all of them can't suck there are people who are just trying to live their best lives get by feed their families they're trying to operate what's best within their social structure and be good social creatures and it's not their fault their government sucks like I appreciated that all of the NPCs had their own in-character perspectives on the same debate that we've been having this whole time. Yes, I just so agree with you. I can't even say it enough. And we even see this echoed as we get more into the zone. Um, And you particularly, I think, see an extension of this whole discussion if you do the role quest. Um, which I'm sure we'll touch about it, uh, touch on at some point, the healer role quest, where mm. even more so you get this additional discussion about like um, in Alamigo and you know the the nation surrounding all of that, like how do we recover from the things that even our own people have done under something you know an influence like this, and uh, how does this affect people in a complex way that is does not have an easy answer, right? And I thought they did a great job handling it, like a far better job than I even anticipated they would, although they've had moments that have done a great job with certain characters and things like that. 
But yeah, I was impressed. I was impressed by the viewpoints I think they represented. In the past, we've we talked about uh, characters like Fordola and uh, other characters who felt so viscerally towards Garland showing up, seeing that it's already ruined and just feeling a sort of emptiness from that. And they didn't really touch on that at all. But this, I felt, was almost better just to see just to see all of these people showing up uh, who who give a crap about the common person who's just like them, but that they can help people who just want to help for the sake of helping, even though they're from a place that's done terrible things to them. I just, it was very touching to me. And while I I kind of miss out on we didn't see the whole like, what do you mean we don't get our revenge? This just was so more more dagger to my heart more I, more make me feel things and i've said this before the the reason i love endworker so much is i felt so much from certain points ah, go ahead the one the one that i resonated the most with i think was the if this went another way that could be us like we have not always done the best thing for all society and all the world. So if we lost a war and the narrative was against us, how many of the things that we did would come back to bite us because they would be framed in an antagonistic way? Like sometimes things just play out that way. And I think the people who were empathetic to that are the ones that struck a chord with me because I always thought that like Garlemald sees themselves as getting revenge for how they were mistreated. Mm -hmm. So for us to go in and just get payback would have to me just been another spoke in the wheel of revenge turning and turning and turning. And we would never would have gotten anywhere that caused us to reflect on the story as people as much. Um, so I, I really loved it. They just, they, again, they captured every angle. They did. It was, and it's oh, very much gonna... a story from from start to finish, uh, and we see it over and over again. People trying to break a cycle, and this was this was such a good like example of that. And I, I do like though that they very pointedly say, "I guess we're all here to help," but it was hard to get this many people here. Uh, there are a lot of people who absolutely would not help. We're like, no, screw those guys. And I I liked I liked the realism there just because it gave you even more contrast and this again there's so much contrast in this in this uh this story this arc of the story uh, you your turn <laughs> oh i mean i was just gonna say that i yes i think everybody it's i love hearing everybody talk about this because i think everybody's captured so many points that are so good about this um it is a really complex thing and the idea that this nation, right? Like you said, there could be just an end endless cycle. The poetic nature of having the same races that once persecuted and turned their backs on the Garleans after all that has happened when they themselves have been persecuted by them to then go, we have to realize that doing our own thing and constantly being uh, you know, at war with each other as opposed to trying to truly you know, come to diplomatic solutions, um, constantly trying to rank who's better because of what thing or who qualifies as as a, a real sentient race, like with the beast tribes, which we saw recognized, you know, and the Garleans themselves for so long, 
because of their lack of magic, were even likened to another beast tribe by many of the different nations of Eorzea. So we have all these things at play and the previous calamities and the War of the Magi and all this proof that at some point, almost every nation has done something bad. <laughs> like you pointed out in the dialogue, we know there's still like rampant racism, fantasy racism in the Shroud. We know that like Ishgard has been consumed by religious zeal to the point of demonizing and killing and, um, you know, even killing Aura refugees that flew to their doorstep. You know, like there are so many things that every nation has done. And that does not excuse, again, the war crimes, the very real horrific war crimes of this fictional nation of Garlemald. Um, but I do think that in our own real world, you know, we have historical precedent for these kinds of influences. And we have people who have lived under those regimes. Um, and, you know, I see in chat people mentioning other things I've talked about in relation to the Garlemald issue, which we'll talk about even further. Propaganda, all this other, you know, wealth inequality, uh, lack of resources, uh, military might. In this case, in, in this setting in Eorzea, lack of magical might. Um, all these different things that then were just exacerbated by the Asians. So to have even a group of people that say, look, we can't forgive this stuff. And, you know, there's probably people who who need to be tried for their war crimes. But in all honesty, um, we also can't just have a whole nation of people, some of whom are our own people that have been taken and, oh. you know, forced into this regime. Like, we can't just have them on fire and of uh, the huge private something happening there that's really bad. Like, we have to realize that at some point, we have to stop thinking us versus them and we have to start thinking all of us that inhabit this planet I just, together. I just, it wasn't exactly like a, a right now realization, but the person who is in charge of the Ilsebard contingent is Lucia. She is a Garlean. We know this. She's also mainstay character from Ishgard, who was also a nation in a long-term war that broke the cycle. She is the perfect person to lead this. The perfect person. Ah, little, little, little details like you don't think about the first time through. And then when you're like adding all of the little nuance, you're like, what the hell? So good. You did a very good. Anyway, the, they go the, to Garlemo. Oh, you have something? The, peop the people that came and didn't were very in character. And it was just like, I was, I was so glad we got to see kind of Lucia in her element. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So we go to Garlemald at long last. <laughs> I want us to get through a Garlemald and Moon. So we might want to pick up the pace a little bit. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I don't want to I don't want to bring down the quality, if you will. Anyway, um, the, the first note this uh, this in this outline is this is Thancred. Both Fusion and For Charles sure. wrote this is Thancred. If you don't know, this is a meme now. <laughs> Look it up. Anyway, uh, the, the actual this is Thancred. Um, instance thing where you sneak around the little base i love that that was so fun i wish that all of the things where we had to follow people were more like that i agree i thought it was a great instance i mm. honestly thought garlemald had some of the best duty instances i creative interesting Duh. things there were some that were terrible <laughs> i hated any of the ones where they make you sneak around and follow somebody i wanted to i burned them all but <laughs> Like, with the exception of maybe one of them, where I think there was a little bit more meat to it. But in this case, this whole opening sequence to me 
was the way that you combine storytelling and action in a way that is engaging and interesting from like a single player instance kind of scenario, right? I found myself wishing that we had had some kind of equivalent of those particular duty instances in the previous two zones because you spend so long just trying to get to that first dungeon and it's supposed to be the end of the world or leading to it. And I just didn't feel like we really had the level of impetus to feel as though we were literally in the middle of action and that all this stuff was happening around us. But this opening sequence for Garlemald nails it. I loved this little stealthy minigame thing with Thancred. It not only gave me more of an idea of just who he is, he's Thancred, it also <laughs> gave me an idea of like how he operates, what it's like when he's off doing these missions, what it meant for him to have literally been an Archon in like subterfuge. And, you know, I loved that. I thought that was so great. great. We've had all this time. We've never seen it. Um, you were out of luck if you did not read the instructions from the person you could click on before you did it. <laughs> So there, that was a little rough. But even the stuff with the caravan, I thought, was really engaging and fun. Uh, mm -hmm. It felt great to just start this whole section off with that. Yes. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Across the board. It was, that was great. Uh, so eventually, we get to... I don't know if they gave us the name of the town to start with. But uh, we rename it Camp Broken Glass. Um, I don't really like, like the name of this camp. <laughs> but it was... I have probably... Well... Go ahead. Um, I have a... Sorry, go ahead, Moose. I I liked it once they gave the explanation. Like at first, I was just like, "That's an interesting name," but like the explanation's really good. That like the area is super frozen and there's ice all over everything, and it sparkles like broken glass. And then every time you take a step, it crunches like glass under your boots. And I was like, "Oh, that's okay. I like that." I still yeah, didn't I, like it. <laughs> I liked the explanation. I thought it made sense. But this is going to be a weird note. Um, I felt a little uncomfortable with it, to be honest, because as I was researching this zone um, for all the points of interest and things, the only search that came up with the context of Broken Glass was the Night of Broken Glass from the Holocaust, uh, Holocaust um, which was a really egregious butchering of people. <laughs> and I, it's one of those things where, again, um, I, I don't think every single, you know, again, there's so many iterations of different things that again, I, sorry, I'm going to say again five times as I get my thoughts together on this. I don't necessarily think this was anything that was like intentional or, you know, localization team does what they do. Um, but they're oftentimes so incredibly good with details. And I had to actually leave that out of my thoughts on the video tour that I did because paired with the context of the type of like nation that Garlemald is and the fact that again they themselves would be more equivalent historically to the antagonizing regime of that kind of context I did not feel very good about that being one of the only searchable parallels historically it felt to me like I don't know Camp Ice Crunch would have been <laughs> But, you know, it would have just been a little bit more. Um, I, I don't know if somebody just didn't realize the historical yeah. context of that. I, I don't know for sure. I was about to say, like, are we the the accidental oversight of not Googling your own terms after you come up with them? Is that what yeah. we're accusing them of? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like, I see Ivory in chat who says, you know, um, you learned always add 14 after you type a search thing, right? But like for a lot of these lore videos, I specifically don't because I'm looking to see what they might be 
you know, hearkening back to, because many times they do actually draw from historical or mythological or, you know, religious context. Um, so that was one of those things where, yeah, Moose, I was like, ooh, I might have double-checked this one before I made it canonical in English. I don't know what it is in the other languages or if it's the same. It might just be that they did, like, a direct translation, but given the me think already of the tense discussion. It makes me glass? think. Yeah. Feels just like I'm walking on broken glass. That one. Um, which makes me sort of think back to, like, walking on eggshells, which I prefer the thoughts of way 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 more but that's it's not called broken eggshells it's called broken glass so i don't know i just seems seems weird i don't know yeah i mean it's fine i i honestly again i don't i truly do not believe that they were doing anything mm. bigger with i think it was probably a translation and it was just something that sounded good and they didn't realize that there is like a historically significant and terrible event that is tied to it. I just personally thought it was worth mentioning because Garlemald has already generated a great deal of discussion and and worry and trepidation over how they would handle some of these topics. And like we talked about, I actually do think that they did a fantastic job with Garlemald. I think there's a lot of things that are super good um, <gasps> with how they confronted this. Okay, I just had a dumb idea. Broken glass. Yeah. You okay. got to clean it up. But when you try and touch it, you might cut yourself. That's what we're doing in Garlemald. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from that. Um, this is where Yishola senses that all of the Aether from the towers is moving to the big tower in the middle, which we kind of already assume, but again, uh, confirmation. Uh, and in that same little bit of quest, we go around to look for survivors, look for anybody who's around, because when we check the, the camp proper, it is... It's empty, and it sort of looks like uh, people just dropped everything that they were doing and, and left, which is actually what happened. Uh, everybody got tempered and left. Not everybody, but, you know, swaths of people were tempered. Um, we do find some some children, basically, hiding in, like, a farmhouse, I think. It's a... Maybe it was a barracks. It's a It's a bigger building, and a couple of children are hiding in it. And uh, when we're like, hey, you know, good to see you alive. Do you want to, like, come to the warm camp we've just made and, like, eat something? They're like, no, we don't trust you. Screw off. Go away. These these children have been so indoctrinated, um, told that we're savages. And they've actually been told that uh, we are the reason that their families got up, uh, hypnotized, and walked out. They They don't trust us. They won't accept our help. And this is the first first we see, uh, aside from the uh, tempered camp that we move through at Stancred, uh, of people who aren't tempered that just don't trust us. Even Are though you talking about the group that's at, um, oh, the heroes, what is it called? The soldiers, the soldiers' home? Yeah, it's well, it's like the country home, but it's uh, like it was for soldiers who had, you know, yeah. achieved... Yeah, I think yeah, so. yeah, 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 because yeah, there's a mix there. It's funny. I didn't actually think that they were children. I thought they were young, but like young adults. And that's, so there was like a range of ages with them. Um, uh, to me, young they, adults they are, call... are children. Okay. <laughs> so old, Zen. <laughs> Victor's rest. That's what it is. Victor's rest. Or Victor's. Yeah. But yes, to be, to be fair, um, I don't mean like four-year-olds. <laughs> I mean like people, people who can make fairly cognizant decisions on their own 
So well, anybody between 12 and 21 is, is a kid. Well, I only mention because um, I think it's really notable with them as well. They're all purebloods, right? They're all pure-blooded Garleans. Isn't that what's established? So. so it's it's this group of like young people who are of like the pure-blooded descent of Garlemald who are literally even refusing, as we find out from the Ceruleum, you know, group that's off to the side, they're even refusing to like directly deal with uh, people who are beneath their rank because of this like classism and society that's based around this purity of bloodlines as far as Garleans go. Um, they're probably pampered in many ways. They were of the nobility and of a higher class um, who now suddenly are like all on their own with having to fend for themselves in a way that they never did before. And lo and behold, the very enemies that their entire, you know, superiority complex has been built around um, show up on their doorstep. And I think that their understanding, I don't know. I don't know why it hit me that you said children so distinctly. I guess because to me, I felt like I got less of a read from them that they were like innocent, naive children that had just been fed this stuff and more so that they were they had grown into the legacy of of this context and that they were so set in it that they you know couldn't even band together to try and go outside of the, their me, own society to me those things are the same so maybe that's the the difference I mean, no, there it's true you're right you're right this this scene manipulated me yeah like this was one of the scenes that, like, not only did they address what I needed them to address while dodging both the theories I had and the theories I hated. Like, not only did they get away with finding a way that addressed everything that I wanted them to and surprised me, but they predicted me and my reactions to it. At least I'm going to give them credit for it. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but I'm going to choose to see it that way. Because what happened was with the faces the NPCs were making and the creepy song on the radio and the fact that they were hiding something in the house that happened, I was ready for like Chimera and Void Scent and all sorts of shit to come spilling out of there. And I was looking for monsters. I was ready for monsters. And we're like chasing them across the landscape and we just find them dead. And I'm thinking like when we find them dead, I'm like, my first thing is like, well, narratively, that's anticlimactic. Like that's they're just dead. And then I just thought about it for a minute. And I'm like, oh, I came here to help. And I was still looking for monsters. And they saw me as the monster. And it got the better of both of us. And they're just dead. And I was like, oh, I'm going back to camp. Like <laughs> they, they predicted, like I found that sequence to be very powerful once I thought about it in that context. I've like heard, they just, they predicted me well. I've heard so many different reactions to this particular encounter. I sobbed like a baby. Ugh. I was angry. Like I was. We don't fail, as, you know. No, no. We, I mean, we like, don't fail, and we did so badly, so badly. Well, it's just, I yeah, I Moose. I think said it better than I can even. I mean, that was just it. Like I think you just got it. You just got it. Um, this piece of writing for me, I I really believe out of the whole expansion, there are many beats that really really get me, but this particular beat feels like one of the most masterful to me, in the sense that. I think this was really hard to build and sell in this short moment with these random one-off NPCs. 
and to like you said using the music in the context using our own subversion of how we expect these things to go there's a people they need help i am the warrior of light i will help them and then to realize that like there's a reason that only a small contingent would come to help the garleans you know and there's a reason that their society has led to these awful things um and yet also has values in it right like by their own account they were doing the honorable thing i mean by their own account they were dealing with the enemy so that the people that they cared about and the people that were weak and you know the sick sister could get away and have a hope at being free and when you think about the subversion of the mindsets that are at play in this one instance and then also the follow-up and the respect that you know, Alphano and Alice, I even have about this, the discussion of maybe it would be best then if we have, you know, Garlean people approach them. Maybe we, it would be best if we have people who have some basis of understanding. If we realize that their society is is this hostile, this untrusting, this, this based off of blood and rank because this, you know, race of people have had only themselves in the cold north for many generations. It's Oh, I just thought like, I was like, this is incredible. This one thing people could write like a paper on and it is devastating. And I did yell the whole time because I was angry that they wouldn't just accept the stupid help already. But that was just me in the moment, you know, that wasn't me denying the fact that I understood so deeply why they were doing what they were doing. It was just that it's frustrating in real life as well that things should ever get to the point where literally a hand of help cannot be taken because there is so much mistrust going back for generations, going back because of the lies of society, going back because it's unbelievable, but it's so well done. It's incredible. I think it's the the second, um, and like Fusion in chat actually said, we didn't fail, they didn't take our help, they failed. And I'm like, see, that's that's what I mean by so many people have like a different take on this. Like absolutely, the, the twins feel like they failed. I felt like I, I failed. Uh, yes, yes, they wouldn't accept it, but there's, there's always something else you can do, Alice. Um, but this, I feel like, was the second big beat of of failure that we had. The first one uh, being with uh, Nidana when we couldn't save her, and they they line these up for us as we go through the storyline. They give you like solid beats of. You've been you've been doing really well this whole time. The only other time you failed is that one time with Zenos, right? As as far, as far as I can remember off the top of my head, I'm sure there were other times where we failed, but there's like big beats where we yeah, emotionally, huh, oh, yeah, you drink a <laughs> coffee like, you shouldn't have. Big emotionally fail, right? And I I feel like that was that, that's significant to the storyline in particular. Ah, yes, this this made me sob. I I. And but somebody else like in the next room over is like, oh, I hate these girls. What are they? Why are they so dumb? And I'm just like, this is it's cool that people can have the same or different reactions to the same thing. No. I agree. I do also. I mean, again, gosh, I caution everybody just jumping to like people aren't doing something that I always either initially find logical or I find frustrating personally as being just like them being super stupid and dumb and idiots. <laughs> like, I think there are definitely points where writing does fail and logic and supportive logic and actual characterization can absolutely fail in games. 
But I do also think that there are times where even if you don't like what somebody has done and it led to a bad outcome, that there is still something valuably taken away from the writing. And I think that this is that case where it's like, yes, it's frustrating. And yes, by certain standards is what they did stupid, I guess. Like, But at the same time, to dismiss all of the excellent crafting of this scene and the complex and very real very real things that it brings up i thought immediately of and this isn't even a war context but i thought immediately of the people who refused to leave their house was it when mount saint helens like there are like these you know um documentaries about the volcano and i think it was mount saint helens uh went off and there were people who refused to leave their houses um, and wouldn't be evacuated and had just decided that they would die there. And this is like a strange thing. I don't know why we learned about this in school. I don't know why. I remember a documentary we watched about it for some reason. And at the time, I remember thinking, why wouldn't they leave? They would die. <laughs> it's like, as I got older, the context of it changed and i think that's something about this scene like why didn't they just do the thing they would they died and it's like yes but there may be certain cases where for whatever reason people believe that death is an acceptable outcome versus something else that they feel they cannot compromise and it's it's shown time and time and time and time and time again in history so i think it's really interesting to see this in the game can we talk about the radios that's such a cool thing Okay, so first I wanna I wanna talk about this note that Charles left, because uh, people think they're hearing Varus over the radios. Clearly they're not, but they kind of are. Um, what Charles said is uh, they listened to him on the radio, and he still saved them because the radios keep them from getting tempered. Their their emperor, even after death, saves them via the radios, even though his actions also doomed them. Hmm. It's like, Charles, it was, why? It is an interesting and kind of poetic way to see it. Since, yeah. like... Yeah, because Anima's Varas, but Anima's tempering people, but Varas is coming through that wave on the radio, and yet if you're near the radio, yeah, it's cool. I get this poetic way to see it. I like that. Yeah, it's also terrible because... I believe at least the ultimate context. And this is a story beat that is kind of weird to me. I wish I, again, the Varus thing, the anima thing, there there are certain things within Garlemald that I really wish that we had just gotten a more fleshed out experience of narratively from beginning to end. Um, because tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe Fandaniel purposefully disseminated these radios to people <laughs> so that there would be a portion of the population that was not tempered originally, that would continue to fervently pray to Varys, which in turn would empower this concept of Garlemald and or Varys and or this connection to this primal anima that was happening that would continue to just cause this like churn of power, both between the servants that had been tempered and then also the survivors that were at their most desperate pleading for hope. That is the takeaway I took from what these radios were, because he admits to having used them against the population and purposefully, right? I don't remember I that specifically, look, but it makes sense. I could look more into it. Like, I... It's not... It's Again, I haven't... Like, most of the stuff I know about this game is by virtue of reading it 500 times, and I have read Endwalker, like, twice. <laughs> so, like, 
I have to read it more times. Um, but it's not like the te like if you're tempered, you're still fervently giving faith to the to the thing. So I think part of it might be that like if there's people who aren't tempered, then you have someone to fight. Like there's more cause for chaos in there too. So if I can find something that says he was deliberately doing it, that would be my first guess. I'm going to keep looking into it. I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to see what I can find. Yeah, I, um, I'm actually, I don't know. That's why I asked, because that's the takeaway I got from some of the offhanded dialogue much later with Fan Daniel. Like, radio technology, I do believe Garlemald already had. But this specific, just bizarre coincidence that, lo and behold, they had all been improved and certain ones spared people, like... To me, it felt kind of weird in the moment when we had literally spent 10 years worth of storytelling looking for some kind of way to be immune to tempering that had to then be re-envisioned by the world's most brilliant alchemist and a dragon scale. And then, like, lo and behold, Garlemald just coincidentally, accidentally built it into their radio technology. See, that's like, actually how I interpreted they, it. I like they, your your interpretation better, but uh, it seemed like it was just kind of an accident to me. The, the phrase that's cut, like, the reason I'm doubting myself enough to go back and look for it again is because the only line that's coming up for me is where they hand wave it as a coincidence. That coincidentally, something in the radios, the crystal, the crystal radio had similar etheric properties to the dragon scales before, like in the ways that they were modifying them. And they were like, oh, it's probably just a coincidence. So like, that's the thing that's overriding my memory as I try to look for other things. Cause again, I haven't read it 500 times yet. So I am definitely going to put that on the list of things to look into more. Yeah, I'll try and see if I can find the actual text for it too. Because I think it's, I had this feeling that it was in a part where Fan Daniel's monologuing and that it was like, Maybe That's all of his scenes. Move. Well, yes, but like not as in like I see people in chat talking about like talking to NPCs in the area and how they perceive that the radio functioned. I I had this bizarre feeling that Fan Daniel said something about it, and I can't remember if it was after the dungeon. I can't remember what scene it was. So I'm gonna have to go back too because I could honestly just be misremembering. <laughs> like it could have been something I interpreted that honestly is not at all the actual takeaway. Um, yeah, I make mistakes all the time, so I'm gonna look too. <laughs> I, I thought it was coincidence. But again, I do also miss things. Um, Where are we on this thing? We meet Eulis the first time. Our, our blue-haired garlean buddy. He is sealing from camp. And uh, we're like, you, you're garlean. Do you know where the base is? And he's like, no, what do you mean? Uh, obviously he does. And so he takes uh, the twins and us to meet Quintus Van Sinna? Is it Sinna or Kenna? I think it's Kenna. And that is the Legatus of the First Legion. I was surprised uh, by that. Like, I was, because of all the setup, I was so prepared for Nerva to have something to do with this. <laughs> they just didn't come up. Yeah. Loved Quintus, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, another I love to hate him. Mm. I know. All these characters, again, were just so complex and good. I mean, even Ulyss. I thought Ulyss was a, another great, like, you can see this man who, this young man who's obviously a, gr a good person by many markers as we would judge morality conventionally, um, but who still serves and believes in even this regime that we've viewed to be something that ultimately is very bad. 
And then you see the influence that somebody like Quintus has over the opinions of people. And again, I thought it was just brilliant. It was really well done. What, what I loved about Quintus was he gives this monologue from this position. Like in most games, NPCs will just say stuff to you and they know everything about the world and they're right. It's the writers telling you stuff. And in this, Quintus's entire speech is stuff that makes perfect sense and stuff that is based on what he knows of a very limited worldview. And if you have lived the life that he's lived, growing up through the foundation of the empire and tr transforming from a transforming from a republic into an empire and following Solus and building this army and taking their vengeance on the people who mistreated them and enforcing this peace on their terms since they'll be mistreated if they don't have it. All of that is so in character, but at the same time, his monologue includes phrases like, yeah, Solus and Varas, they knew what this country needed. They were on the same page about everything. And I'm sitting there like, uh, about that, about that. Sorry, so you're wrong. Was, it was so in character and it made sense internally, but like also revealed how flawed it was and how wrong it was. But at the same time, uh, when he's saying all these things to the twins, it it kind of floors them. They're taken aback. They're like, oh, you're not entirely wrong, shit. Well, and I think it's it's shocking, right? It's shocking when you... It's it's shocking for both sides, and I think this is so clever. You have the actual Garleans who, again, have, like you were just saying, Moose, had this entire limited context of their world, this strict society that they were a part of, that they were born into, that they have risen through, that they, they don't know anything outside of. And he has this experience and this truth that he holds within his mind about how his life has been this far. And then you have Alifano and Alice, who, although they have seen and are constantly learning and educating themselves and traveling, and they themselves have broken free from a homeland that we now see is not so different than the kind of insular mentality of Garlemald in certain ways and certain parallels. Like, um, obviously they have different doctrines overall, but um, they themselves have pushed themselves out of that and done things even against their own nation and culture. And yet, I think it's still incredibly startling to them to face someone who says something with such conviction that completely and utterly is in opposition to every single thing they ever have believed or come to believe. And it's the same with him. You know, on his side, he sees these other influences and to him, it's flooring. And, you know, we as ourselves and as players can obviously see the absolute tragedy and the the larger ways that, you know, what he believes is not going to serve his people. It's not going to save any of them. You know what I mean? They will all just die and then their bodies will get blown over by snow and ice. And then that will be the end. And I guess that's what you wanted for Garlemald. <laughs> like, and it is, it's again striking because I think even in this pandemic year, many of us have confronted others who, for whatever reason, years, have beliefs or things that seem so completely stop you in your tracks. I do not even understand why you would say this or believe this or do this. And there's this moment of confrontation between the two of them and these worldviews and this perspective. It's it's just like, I love it. I love it. I mean, we can easily say he's very much in the wrong. And yet I agree with you. I think he does it from a place that makes sense as a character, 
even if it is super frustrating and the worst. (laughs) I love how they roll up in there and they're like, hey, we want to help you. We don't want anything back. Just like, you know, let's be friends now. Why don't you just see things our way? And he just turns it around on them. He's like, why didn't you see things our way and join us? And that's, that's, I think, where they were really like, oh, no, but he's right, shit. <laughs> if you want Gaia's peace, tried. we had it for you, and you didn't take it. 1.0, Gaius tried. He yep. rained Link Pearls down on all the cities, like, all we yep. need you to do is kill the Beast Tribes. That's all we want you to do. <laughs> Join us and kill the Beast Tribes. And we were like, no. Yep. Yep, and he just, he just lays it out for them. Not everybody's going to be happy because people have different ideals and freedom for one person is shackles for someone else. But yeah, that was, it was a pretty powerful exchange. Uh, at which point you're, they, oh my gosh, they, they call her the twins. It's crazy. <laughs> he tells the, he tells the carry, he's like, don't even bother with them. They're the warrior of light. I know exactly who they are. It's not going to do anything. But if we put, if we put like, you know, shot collars on these kids, they'll behave. It's fine. It's like, how do you read me so well, you bastard? How did you know? Uh, I can't believe they did that. I mean, I absolutely can. But also, I can't believe they did that. It was a good way for uh, us to still be able to walk around with the twins and interact with the uh, the Garleans in the area so that they could learn that, oh, we aren't savages. We're the freaking same, aren't we? Uh, I really, I found the, the exchange where we go and help Eulis find Cerulean, uh touching in a very, like, subtle way. Because the characters interact and they start to joke and realize, yes, we are, we're the freaking same. <laughs> uh, and then when we go back, it really gets me. They they find Cerulean. They haven't found it a lot. But between the four of you, you're like, wait a minute. There's got to be some in this really disgusting pool of water over here that used to be like a heated place for children to play. Uh. Um, and you come back with, with Cerulean and the, uh, the soldier that meets you is super happy. He's like, oh, hell yeah. But also it's probably not good enough. Thanks. Thanks for finding fuel for our heaters. People are probably still going to die tonight because it's not going to be enough. And then... And what's what's even more, like, the context of that, right? What's even more just, like, infuriating is the fact that you literally say to them, if you let us go down, like, with some of your people, we can get you all the ceruleum you would ever need. And they are convinced that it is like a falsity, that no, 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 they're gonna do it their way because keeping control of their stuff and their you know, legion and their mentality and not dealing with people that they consider to be dishonorable, that is, that is the most important part of who they are. So if some of them have to die to maintain that, then that's fine. And it's like, it's not fine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't die, why? No, but like seconds, seconds after the soldier's like, oh, thanks so much for finding the Cerulean. You're maybe not that bad, you guys. Quintus rolls up and is like, hey, uh, we're not going to put that in the heaters. That's going in the Magitek armor. Don't worry about why. I have to talk to my soldiers, you guys, to my soldiers, you guys chill here for a second. And it's like, oh, no. What are they about to do? Damn. It's not going to be good. And also they're doing it at the expense of people's actual lives. It just, it's. It builds on top of that further. We could get you this. We don't want it. We could help you. Now we're going to probably try and fight you instead. Why? Why? 
I mean, they have for generations perceived their identity to be tied to something that again, I mean, we talk about the power of brainwashing, belief, propaganda, um, faced with various difficulties. They overcame them in a certain way and then kept their citizens believing that there was no other way. And of course, we learned, we've learned over the course of the story that there were greater hands in this that I think also tried to keep the people of Garlemald in ignorance in many ways and to fan the flames of this sort of belief. But um, the idea that you can get so invested in the concept, the the, the idea, the dream, the regime of what you serve, that you forget that what you serve means nothing if there's no one alive, if there's no nation, if there's no people, if there's no, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the actual citizens are there and they need help. But the only way that Quintus seems to know is to, you know, fight back and that it'll be fine. And those that die will be sacrifices, but, you know, they're going to be a part of all of this. And, and it's because of what he's been taught is the only real thing of worth, you know, that if they have to live up to these ideals of a nation that very soon will not even exist anymore. He talks about uh, the flag at one point as well and how the red link of the chain in the middle is straight up the blood of the fallen. That, that whole, like, fight to the last thing is so ingrained in a, a pure girlian. It's not going anywhere. And it's... Ugh. It's ugh. So, um, at, after this, he... They come back and they are like, Hey, so, um, the twins are our captives now. Kind of got to deal with that. And the twins are not... They're not gonna... They're not gonna... No. Um... At some point earlier, Thancred, like, does his sneaky ninja thing and shows up and he's like, hey, we get some stuff going. If the Garleans do anything weird, just give them what they want. So you you have to tell the twins, nope, stand down. You are prisoners now. I know it's awkward. Really sorry. Uh, I guess I have to go do this over here. But the most poignant thing about uh, that whole exchange is when they start to resist, uh, Eulis pulls out the little zapper thing to shock them in their shock collars and he can't he doesn't want to the hesitancy is is like all over him he's shaking with how badly he doesn't want to have to hurt people Ugh. it's so good well and also like how yeah i mean how he doesn't want to hurt them knowing what he knows about them now that sequence that you talked about where they're getting to know each other and they're realizing that for all that they have been given these distinctions and labels and perceptions of one another that when it comes down to it, people are people are people, you know? Um, we are all motivated by certain things. We are all compelled, we have needs, we have wants, we have desires, we have dreams. And the greatest illusion and the most tragic thing that is oftentimes perpetrated in this world is that we are somehow so fundamentally different based off of absolutely artificial and oftentimes inaccurate things that there's no way we could ever find common understanding. and. While there are definitely mentalities, religions, thoughts, ideas that do create separations that make the need for compromise incredibly important between people, when it comes down to it, oftentimes if people just spend time with each other, you realize that we are not the monsters, that we are all just people, that we are not this thing, they're just also a person, that they too have led their life and eaten food and sleep at night and, you know, have people and things whoa, whoa, they love whoa. and care about. Sleep I know it's radical. it's radical what I'm saying right now, but... 
Um, I think that's a really important thing. And for Garlemald too, they are geographically so isolated. And you have to remember that, you know, the people that have been living in other parts of the empire that are much closer probably have a different experience. But for the actual just Garlemald itself, that area is so isolated that all of this stuff, I mean, these interactions may very well be some of the first interactions that Eulis has ever had on an equal footing in a sense, although obviously he has power over the twins at that point, but like to just exchange and bandy words in a way that's not like structured and hierarchical and, and supported still by a Garlemald that was intact. Mm. So the, uh, the exchange with the twins when they are held in captivity uh, starts with the just like there's so many adorable, subtle, loving animations in this sequence. And it starts with Alphano's already sitting down. Alizé sits down kind of far. And then she scoots over a little. And she scoots over a little more. And then she leans on them. And it's just so touching to see. And they've come so far in, in how they do their animations now. You, you see just like a subtle turn of a head or just like an extra blink of, of excitement or something in these characters faces now. And it just conveys so much this conversation between the two of them. Uh, we, we spoke briefly about earlier uh, where they're talking about everybody who's come before them and all of their impressions of how the world works and how probably all of them are wrong. And they're doing everything that they can to come up with some sort of solution where people can live peacefully together, but nothing has worked. And it's time to think outside of the box. Um, let's see. Some quotes that stood out to me. Uh, Alize says, we all have a stake in the world and no one should be silenced. And I think that that really lands, especially when they hear uh, Quintus talk about his his side of things and they listen so i think they've they've already sort of taken that to heart uh, and she says this multiple times actually during this conversation i, I forget how the, she says it the second time i have it written somewhere but she's she's very about nobody should be silenced we should listen to everybody and i think hand in hand with her talking about how her father and quintus are very much the same in, in their convictions, it's this way or nothing. Uh, and then the two of them realizing it's not always this way or nothing. It's not always black and white. There, there are nuances between that we have to look through because we can always find another way. It's very, it's crazy to see, what are they, like 17, two 17-year-olds having this very philosophical conversation, freezing to death. They do mention they are actually unbearably cold because the heaters are not on. That fuel went to Magitek armor. Ugh. There's another thing that Alphano says in here. Uh, a stone is a stone, a cloud is a cloud, and a flower is no more than that. Uh, he doesn't think that. He thinks that that is somebody else's view. And I just thought uh, it was significant that they chose to add a flower to that. Because yeah. in the long run of this story, a flower becomes so much more than a flower. Ah, that's my thoughts on this. I'm, I hope... I know that you guys also have to have some thoughts on this, so please, please, please. On which part? There was a lot there. All, all of it. The, the, the twins' interaction in, in, in the dark, in the cold. I think the big part for me was um, 
juxtaposition of the societies uh, mm -hmm. and, and talking about how there was a similarity to their dad in a way. Um, because we had spent so long wondering what Charleon would be that I saw them as a little bit of everything. Like they had a little bit of Ishgard, they had a little bit of the Ancients, they had a little bit of Garlemald. And to actually explore Garlemald in that way in the moment was probably what I took away from the scene the most. It's yeah, kind of funny. I mean, I... Go ahead. Uh, just like as a, a slight real world uh, comparison, Charlian is very Greece. Gar uh, Garlemald is very Rome. And they're equated a lot. One, one built directly off of the other. And that's not really what happened in this situation, but they end up being very similar, uh, at least in the context of this conversation. Yeah, I think there's this like conversation between the two of them. I feel like periodically, sorry, we've got more just racing outside. I've got all kinds of sirens going by today. Anytime it's quiet until I turn my microphone on. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I apologize, everybody. Um, but... Uh, I feel like there are certain key conversations throughout Endwalker that are almost meant to be the moral of the story. Not exactly, because obviously I think there's a lot of nuance to read into many, many, many things, but there are certain pivotal scenes and discussions between characters that almost seem to be the, like, emotional heart of what we were trying to convey here or um, something that is very important that we want to be discussed and to take away from this portion and this conversation between Alice and Alphino feels like that it feels like it touches base on all the things that we've experienced thus far in Garlemald on the way that they fit in as characters and then gives us this context as players to read into it with our own real world parallels and struggles and thoughts um, and to almost say on a larger scale, I mean, literally, like you said, we all have a stake in the world. It, it feels like it's one of those moments that kind of transcends just the conventions of the story and that they very specifically have set aside to almost be a, this is going to sound very silly, but it, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, when you talked about Greece and Rome, and as I was doing a lot of research for Old Charlian, uh, I was reading a lot of Plato's uh, discussions and thoughts and like theories and theses and stuff that he does. But there was this interesting convention back in ancient Greece where sometimes if you were presenting a concept or idea, you would write yourself a script that you would then just act out in front of people. <laughs> so you'd be like, what's my big theory? And you're like, ah, theory of ideals. How am I going to present it? And like today we'd write a research paper and we publish it. But Plato was like, I'm going to write a play but it's like just me and I'm going to play two different characters. And one of them is the person who's like, Plato, tell me about this thing you thought of. And Plato's like, ha ha ha, I will. And then the other person goes, Plato, I don't understand. But what do you mean? Surely that couldn't be it. And Plato's like, ah, yes, I see your critiques, but let me counter them. So it's basically like scripting a debate with yourself. <laughs> and some of these sequences felt a little bit like that in a sense that they were like, these were the ideas and thoughts that we had, and we wanted to put these thoughts together in such a way that dramatically in this moment, we can almost have a, a moment of philosophy and debate. And that's what this scene felt like to me. It was like, here's our discussion of philosophy, as opposed to here's our, you know, here's what's happening to these Garleans in the cold north. 
like, I and I liked that honestly. I thought it was a great moment for reflection. Hmm. That's also where um, she says to him, "You brother," I'll say says to Alfano, "You have a lot to do in the future, and I'm going to be here to kick your butt to make you do it." I just I really like that, especially like after this very serious conversation. She basically, I think she told him she would punch him in the ear <laughs> if he didn't do it right. Ah, uh, so it was it was it was nice to see them still have that that playfulness even after this very serious conversation um so while they're doing that you and Ulysses are headed back to uh camp broken glass there's some uh while you're still at the garlean base discussion of the f the very secretive phrase ask the eel and uh he won't tell you what that is but it gives you a bad feeling uh, you stop by his house. You stop by his house on the way, and he tells you about his family and how he didn't get them a radio, and how he was like a day late taking them out of the capital. So many regrets for this little boy. And he even goes so far. He he has an outburst where he says, "If we turned to your gods, would they have saved us?" And it's just more comparison between the two. Uh, not exactly livelihoods, but. Um. Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. I turned off my camera on accident. I'm no, and now my settings vanished. Why? <laughs> Hold on for a second. Okay. I was, just, okay. I was just trying to unmute myself. It's okay. You can all look at my radiant visage for a second for those of you watching in a video format. Um, I was just going to say, Ask the Eel is interesting because uh, Eel, I believe, is the name. What, what would you say? A joiner. There's, there's an actual word for Charlie it. Charlie, like the title, the middle name yeah, title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the middle name title that denotes like a dictator or somebody who's promoted in like a time of crisis. Is that correct? Am I, am I okay. right? Yeah, it's, it's got a few weird meanings. And that's part of why I didn't kind of like see what was happening in the moment. I was just like, oh, who's Eel right now? <laughs> like, um, it, there's a Senate role that's attached to it. There's a magistrate role that's attached to it. And in times of crisis, if someone else can't lead, someone assumes the temporary role of dictator, the eel. So that's a bit of extra context for that. Because in the moment, I know I was sitting there just like, wait, wait, which one is that? That's, is that the yeah. one that, oh, what yay. Dad what that mean? <laughs> no, I didn't. I still didn't know that. So that's cool. Um, when they get back to, when you and Ulysses get back to Camp Broken Glass, he hands over the demands, which is uh, give us your stuff and get the hell out. Um, but the the twins get freed just about in that moment. And uh, they tell him very publicly, hey, so twins are free. Uh, we're not going to do that. And in that moment, the Garleans decide to attack. Um, but our friend, our little friend, Arun Senna, who maybe is the most useful Pajal ever, I don't know. Does like a big arrow spell as Ulysses is charging uh, Lucia, Lucia, Rainfart, mm -hmm. and just breaks them up. Like, uh, I think he's, he says something like, uh, that's the, this child is the worst representative I've, I've ever seen. Something like that, which is funny since he looks like a little kid. Yeah. 
Oh, Zen, I was going to say, I don't know if this is just because of the setup with stream, but it looks like even though my cam's back on, it's not showing okay. up on. Yeah, sometimes uh, Discord does that, and I can fix that. <laughs> Only Zen. I know Moose got up. <laughs> Moose got up really fast. My cam's off. This is only Zenidra's podcast now. Zen's the eel. Zen's taken over. <laughs> I will gladly take that role. <laughs> now I have to find my screen again. Here it is. All right. <laughs> You're fixed. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Zen. <laughs> Discord's mean. Oh, my gosh. I did actually lose my other screen. Where did it go? <laughs> I've ruined everything. What have I done? Here we go. All right. So they break up that fight before it even really happens. Um, and they... They inform Eulis that the uh, the tenth, along with all of the other remaining uh, legions, so what the fourth, fifth, eighth, and twelfth, they've asked the Erzian Alliance for aid. Uh, with the telling uh, them to give Quintus the phrase "Have the eel stand down," so then we hear that word again, eel, um, and that is enough to actually make Quintus surrender, but. Uh, then he takes his own life because even though the person who's in charge has told him that it's over, his ideals, his ideals are, are he's, he's sticking to him. I see, I see Rook laughing and I'm so curious if it's the same reason I'm laughing because this is a completely inappropriate moment for laughter. Oh goodness. <laughs> but it was just the, like, I think it was your cat sweetly, like softly mewling in the background. And then you said the words and then he takes his own life. And I just heard <laughs> and I was losing it. It was like perfectly sandwiched. I just heard mew. And then he takes his own life. <laughs> you're a bad kid. Come here. Oh, no, now you're running. All right. No, no show cat today. <sighs> was that the same reason you were laughing most, or were you laughing about something else? A little bit of each. Come here, you. Which is why I asked, because I couldn't tell whether it was the cat or the story. I mean, a little bit of both, yeah. It just all came together in one beautiful moment. <laughs> Thinking about the, it. The Quintus death moment was, I thought they played it really well, if only because, like, for however wrong and monstrous he was, like he he had this, again, internal logic and sense of honor to the world as he knew it. And I think that act of freeing everyone and then taking his own life prevented them all from being held accountable for his actions and sustaining it in a way, like sustaining the debate in a way. Um, but in the moment, I really, really struggled to not joke about it because the first thing that came to mind was like i was so sure i was gonna yell it and then i was like i'm not ready for the internet meltdown that's gonna happen if i say that because the only thing that was popping into my head was to sarcastically just yell see they're not nazi analogs he just shot himself in the head in his underground bunker as soon as the allies breached the homeland oh no oh wait a minute <laughs> I, it's tough. It's tough, right? Because I think we always want to be able to speak about certain things in a 
a light that acknowledges what's happening and the parallels that are being drawn and our own actual historical contexts um, without necessarily, again, diminishing what actually occurred and like the actual terrible real life connotations that certain things had. And yet it is one of those things where, I mean, you are not wrong. The parallel is very clear. There will be many people who are like, I just don't get why he did it. And it's like, he could have just been fine and been like, oh, okay, I guess we'll get help now and do things. And again, we go back to that idea of like, there are truly people that have behaved like this. And when you look at the Garleans, you cannot overlook many different things and many different uh, terrible correlations in our real world. But of course, Nazism and or the regime under Hitler is something that is a big topic discussed in tandem with Garlemald because there are very specific and very pointed parallels. Right. It's, you know? it's, the, it's one of the most obvious ones. And like one of the things that I respect about the writing team in 14 is that they've been, if for any students of history out there, they have been careful to pull a little bit of behavior from every historical empire, good and good, good and bad in terms of how we see them in our values today, in retrospect, uh, in terms of who wrote the history and how and what perspective they took on them. Um, you can see little bits and pieces of every empire in Garlemald. And on, I mean, for better or worse, like a lot of people today are going to imagine Nazis off the bat because it's this how many movies have we seen about it? So at the end of the day, it's the most obvious thing, but there's a lot of empires in there. And this just happened to be the most obvious one of the moment for me. Yes, it, it's not wrong. You are correct. I mean, that scene is, I, I did actually, I found that to be very um, percussive is the word that came to mind, both like metaphorically and literally, right? You get the punctuative shot. You get this like, the way that they set it up, the blood that still hangs on the flag of Garlemald. You know what I mean? It is very overt. Um, but at the same time, I think, and we, we talked about this a bit with the weapons quests too, that 14, whether it be due to limitations of, uh, you know, being able to realize certain animations, whether it be uh, because they weren't sure with their audience, you know, exactly how far they wanted to push things or things like that. Um, in the past, I think we've had a tendency to have those very heavy themes, but shy away from graphically depicting them. You know what I mean? And they have been slowly but surely pushing more as they have increased their capabilities uh, to, again, not go so heavy that I think, like, we didn't need to actually watch the man do it. That would have absolutely, I would have, I would have, like, put the game down and just been like, did that just, did they just, did that just, like, I mean, they couldn't. There's so many reasons with ratings and all kinds of stuff, but the impact is still there and the symbolism is still there. And even taking it that far is kind of, I mean, that's very different from how they used to approach a lot of things. And I'm glad that they just kind of approached it head on. Uh, there's a note from Charles here. It says, uh, whether you have empathy for the Garlean plight or not, seeing unfold is uncomfortable in the best way. It is. It's, it's there was some some point around. Let's see. Let's see. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's some point around the the time where uh, Alphano is is saying to the that ki the the kids in the one house. Uh, we wish to help you. Let us help you. I just thought this this is Depression Walker. This is not Endwalker. 
this is depression walker and they kept they kept piling on the bad stuff and i think it just made it better huh. uh, so after that uh, the the first legion um quintus does uh like release them from service i guess and they don't want to die and they're tired of being cold so they accept aid um so things are starting to look good so it's time for something bad to happen um <laughs> the tower of babel sends out a wave of tempering aether uh so the guardians in the camp who do not have the scales that our uh Ilsabard contingent people have they charm on us at that same moment fan daniel shows up and kidnaps you for a date with xenos I did not I hate, like this date as much as I it. liked the one with Emmerich. I hate it. <laughs> this one, it. this one, zero out of ten. Really weird and uncomfortable. Very weird vibe. Very uncomfortable date I didn't ask for. Mm -hmm. Emmerich's dinner, ten out of ten. Would dinner again and please let me do it once more. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it was like the the suicide scene was was awful. Uh, it was it was not good. It's not good for me. Um, but this one creepy crawlies all over just oh no 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 to go to go from that one terrible thing to the next was just uh uh no 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 and well i did just say like adding worse on worse was good for the story and so like i did like it in that respect actually feeling those feelings was like no 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 I'm going to be a little bold here. Do it. I'm going to be a little bold. And I'm going to say that this scene was the only scene for me that I have felt the threat of Xenos and Fandaniel as villains was actually communicated to me. And now Ooh. many people will have many different thoughts on this. And I have no doubt, to be fair, Garlemald is a terrifying wasteland. And yet, also at the same time, while they instigated it, I don't feel as though it as clearly illustrates the threat of these two as this one scene does. We, going into it, had a lot of people discussing Fandaniel and whether or not I think you can have a villain who is chaotic for no reason other than being chaotic, right? I just want things to burn and I just want to destroy things. And then you have Xenos, who is apathetic towards existence, who cares very little about anything except for s serving his own selfish desires and thinks all others are beneath him. And the two of them as a villain combo, I have never felt the combination of what that threat could mean for me. Not just like, oh yeah, they could hurt the world and people would die, which is like the generic thing that all villains have ever, but specifically what it could mean to have this combination of absolute chaos and anarchy paired with absolute apathy, dis disinterest, and selfishness. And in this one scene, this was the only time I felt it. Because as I sat there, I was going, what, what, what? where what is what is this this is the most deranged dinner i've ever is he going to are these people are they going to my body is being swapped am i being because it was again 
complete disregard for our person and who we are paired with me having no idea what in the world these two would do together and what in the world might catch their whim and what they might feel like. And as I sat there going, they're going to use me to kill the people I care about. My body to kill the people I care about while also being on a super weird date with this man. I've told you 10 times. No, accept it. Like it was the best moment I felt for either of them. I don't like them as villains otherwise. I actually really strongly dislike both of these characters. <laughs> Although Hermes almost brings it home for me by the end. I, there's things about Hermes I find more redeeming. But this scene to me was the crux of what it meant to have them as villains. And I actually don't think they completely followed through with it, but we'll get there. So I, I was, I, I feel like I, went hard before Endwalker came out on being against these two as the poster villains for this expansion. I'd have to go back to our podcast and see how much I like, I said it here. Um, but my take was like the final chapter of a story is all about reflecting on what it means to be the warrior of light, to bring people together and to think about what it means to hope, what it means to have a society, what it means to have a planet, what it means to be human. And one guy who doesn't give a shit about anything but fighting the warrior of light and one guy who just wants everything to die for no reason are horrible for in for for asking us to think about those things and i thought how are they gonna pivot to make me care and i mean they made olympus interesting so they can do anything they want they could do it so my big thing was like how are they gonna do it uh i love that they didn't i love that it wasn't the point i love it like when it to me it came out how I choose to see it looking back, because again, this is still level 82, 83. Shit has not hit the fan yet. We have not, we have not gone to space yet. Um, so this is where we start to see my relief that that's not where this is going. Cause Xenos at this point in my retrospect, how I choose to see it is still trying to figure out how he can get what he wants from the warrior of light to actually understand us and listen to us enough to engage him in the battle he wants so badly. And that Zeno or um, yeah, Zenos is realizing that hanging out with Fan Daniel and becoming the world's greatest villain is not going to make us find him worthy of a fight with us, the world's greatest hero. This plan is a dead end plan and that he's been following Fan Daniel through it, but it's not working out because he's just sitting across from us at the dinner table going, I can see you don't have a lot of interest in fighting someone you've beaten before. Uh, so we're going to keep pushing this and I'm going to see if I can make you hate me. Uh, not because I'm a threat to the world, but because I'm a person who can fill you full of rage and hate. And meanwhile, Fan Daniel sees him as a useful idiot to get the plan to break Zodiac free going. So again, I love the threat they pose to the warrior of light as a person, but I hated the idea of them as, as the world's villains for Endwalker. And to see it start unraveling here in that way was so good. I was so happy about that. That's closer to the team that I'm on. Um, I'm still 
not satisfied with Xenos. Uh, I think there were things that they could have shown more about him, like maybe from the past, that would cement more why he's an insane person. Um, I did, I did find myself uh, much more satisfied with Fan Daniel and Amon and uh, Hermes as as you go back as as a concept and character driving force. Um, but no, this this dinner, I this this seems to be one thing everything everybody can agree on. Not okay. What do you mean I can't do anything about this? What do you mean you're gonna try and kill my friends? Please give me back my body. What the hell? Ugh, just so many very very creepy things. You can't you can't do this to me. Um, I'll, I'll have way more to say about Xenos in the end because I went hard against him. Even like I. I kept saying they need to justify why he's even alive. Like his death was perfect. Why even bring yeah. him back? Like, so I felt like I reflected on him a lot by the end of the story. Cause I went so hard against his inclusion, but yeah, this isn't the time or place for that. That'll be the last discussion we have. Oh, I cannot wait. Oh my gosh. I've been wanting that discussion since I played it. And I was like, we got it. We're going to talk about it on the lore cast. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> it'll be it'll be the last the very last thing almost so yeah. it'll, it'll be worth it um but yeah i it's interesting i do agree i think this scene takes away a sense of agency that is a very clever subversion moose i actually love your read into it uh i think that's a really cool way to perceive it and that xenos's actions in that light i find very interesting in a different way than i experienced it so i'm curious to like go back through and kind of put it in that context for myself and uh, read into it. Um, but yeah, I actually liked, I liked this cutscene, its thing. It was very uncomfortable, it was very frustrating. And yet I also felt like it was so distinctive to them. It was unlike anything we'd seen. I loved the little duty thing afterwards where you're tossed into the body of just a pleb and you're literally having to try and figure out how am I gonna even get healing supplies? How am I even going? I loved that. I thought that was brilliant. It gives you such a perspective on your character versus most normal people in this world. Yes. I love the he crawling was dead. thing. I think that oh, thing it's definitely was... a dead body. Yeah. Dead body. Yeah. Oh God. Right? I thought it was a dead body we inhabited. Yeah, it had to be. It would at least have some kind of like natural regen, right? But no, you get potions. And that's it. Oh my gosh. I yeah. yeah, I I like same as you just said. I thought it really put you literally in the body of the people that you're usually fighting, and how terrifying you must be as the warrior of light <laughs> to have to fight. <laughs> Uh, no, the, the that whole part from the start of the dinner, it was just creepy as hell to that whole sneaking around, trying not to get murdered and then crawling back to the camp was so intense. Just I don't know about you guys, but when when the crawling part started, I pulled up the map and I looked at how far away it yes. was. And I was like, I was like, I will never make it. I will never make it. And it was just such a feeling of pure helplessness and defeat and i'm like holy shit they did this with an instanced fight holy fuck i okay everything up to this point exactly like you said i pulled the map up to i literally i think i look at the camera at this point in my recording and i literally say i'll never make it like like i just it it hits you right 
all of that I think was phenomenal. One of the best sequences. So cool. After that is where I felt, and I please feel free to contradict me. I felt like they dropped the ball. Okay. The Listening. reason being that I don't actually know if I think this beat has payoff. The experience of it is payoff, but the risk to me, right? And the thing that I think would have made this payoff is that either we literally cannot make it in time and someone does die, or we get there, but we are powerless to stop them because of the body we're in. And it felt really weird to me. I don't, maybe this is just me, but the pacing of the cutscene afterwards felt so weird. You jump mysteriously a ridiculous amount of distance, and then you're there and you crawl and you throw your thing, and then Xenos is like, yeah, it's fun, I guess. We're out of time anyway, so haha, this was fun. And I just sat there like, all the stakes that I had just felt building in this excellent sequence, it was like, what? <laughs> and then they just leave. They don't even take you back with them. Like, if they had forcibly taken you back with them and then, you know, you don't even know what happened to your friends or something and you're fighting your way through and you discover the teleporter and lo and behold, you reunite at the dungeon or whatever it was, right? Like, something like that would have even had more payoff for me in the moment. But it felt so weird that, like, this incredibly cool thing that they did just didn't have any repercussions whatsoever and then also in this moment that ishtola the only member of the party that has been determined to have ether sight on parallel with the ancients just she's got some interference so she's not even the one that notices that we're not ourself which makes sense because you know it's a person who loves us and recognizes us and you know knows that we aren't because of the personality that we have but I just felt like all the things that were right there at their disposal, they just kind of went like, eh, and then just sort of threw them and then just kept going with the zone. My cynicism clearly got the better of me in this moment. I didn't even like, I don't even think I thought about it. Like, I think I just went from one scene to the next, but like, yeah, I, in my memory, there is a black hole between me showing up at the camp and us at the moon teleporter. Like, nothing important <laughs> happened. I have no memory of what we did in that area. That entire section of my playthrough is just a gap. And I feel like after the incredibly uncomfortable Clarice and Hannibal dinner, to crawling across Ooh. the entire zone to not have any memory of what followed that is probably supporting evidence in your argument's favor that something else should have happened there. Because, like, again, we get there, we throw the thing, he bails on our body, he leaves. I have no memory of what happens after that, and that's a problem, because I was probably just sitting there going, ah, it's Ishikawa, she ain't gonna kill anybody. I, uh, I I both agree and disagree, which I guess is weird. But no, absolutely, uh, you you do somehow make it in time. You shouldn't have. You realize you shouldn't have. Some somebody should have died. I don't want it to be anybody that I love, but somebody, something, something should have happened. Something should have happened. Um, 
And the fact that they just give you your body back. They're like, okay, just kidding. That was fun, right? Here you go. If he just told you he wants you to be mad at him, do something to make me mad. Yes, I'm mad you fucked with me, but you did not hurt my friends. You didn't get that far. That would have that would have sealed the deal. I guess in the in the, the long plot line of the story, that's not really a thing that they could have done because it probably would have made you actually like go after him a little bit more than you know try and save the world um uh but i uh personally was still so not exactly high but high on the like dread and hopelessness that all the previous stuff had put me through that i i was still just like heart in throat during during that sequence so i guess i had enough residual emotion for it not to affect me too badly i do think that Something should have happened, but I was still just going. <gasps> um, God, I had one other thing. I forget what it is. Let's continue. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think those scenes were incredibly effective. I just think that maybe the landing got a little bungled in the way that I think it, the stakes had been set up to kind of support. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I do still think of those sequences as some of the, I think, the most gripping sequences of the expansion. For sure. Oh my gosh. Just thinking about it. Just thinking about it. I'm like, never going to make it. It was very, very good. So good. So bad in a good way. Anyway, we, what actually happens is we get on a train and we ride into the city. <laughs> uh, we go through a pretty cool dungeon. Um, with, again, some, some, ah, this, this is where afterwards, uh, they have their little, like, uh, whatever little son, ignore him encounter, I think. Um, yes, you, you make your way through the dungeon. Go ahead. This was an interesting dungeon. Um, the one note that I wanted to say is that I didn't notice until I was running it this past week. And this might be because I, the, the first boss, the person. Ah, yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a throwback to another Final Fantasy game, correct? Yes. Five? Five? No, not five. Which one? Do you know? I don't recall. Somebody in chat will get it. He is a boss from another Final Fantasy game. Four. Oh, okay, of course, right. We have the four theme, of course. Um, and I didn't notice until I was running it this past week that there is, like, a scientist talking to him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that scientist is also a throwback, but then it appears as though the scientist gets into the second boss because they have mm -hmm. the same name uh -huh. pilots the second boss okay so all of that to be said i wish i really actually like that dungeon and i think the fight is fun and there's a lot of discussion about anima being the boss versus anima being a trial which i think is fair but i kind of wish that i had a better understanding of the story of that dungeon as in like you know we already killed as an aulus but we did kill him, yes, because we killed him in Alamigo, the dungeon. The Alizos. Yeah, the. You know who I'm talking about? My data! That guy. Not yeah. Zos, he'd be somebody else. Um, if it had hit, Mal. like, even been him. Mal, thank you. If it had even been him, I feel like the connections of, like, that journey would have made slightly more sense to me. I just would have liked to, I guess, have had some kind of understanding of that progression a little bit. I think it's really cool. I like the story and I liked the culmination, but it did feel like I would have liked to have known who those players were and what the, you know, oh, there's still scientists in here? Are they, I guess they're tempered or what have they been working on? What if they, so to me, I felt a little bit like, hmm, 
it would have been interesting to know more about the state inside of the of the palace mm. and the temple. I just kind of saw it more as like a here's a cute reference for some Final Fantasy stuff you probably maybe already like. I actually um I probably went through the dungeon I don't know five or six times before I realized that the doctor from the first fight turns into the second boss. I was like, did you guys notice this? And all my friends were like, yeah, dummy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the throwback is fine. I think, honestly, like I said, I like the dungeon, but I just was surprised to discover that there was that, like, kind of narrative thread. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, we, we fight Anima at the end. Like like you said, a lot of people are like, what do you mean he's just the dungeon boss at the end? I feel like we've had this happen lots of times, like with Diablos. People are like, what do you mean he's just a... He became something else. Uh, though I'm pretty sure Anima is gone. Uh, this is wandering, I, I, go ahead. a wandering minstrel if you want another one that bad we'll get some of the yeah. bars mechanics in from sure. the other one we'll do like a full Ooh. we'll do like a full royal family battle royale we'll like have Varas turn into anima yeah it'll be cool yeah, yeah. I, I the, way, the way they realized that fight was really visually super fun yeah. like going between the different planes and all the animations and I was like yes 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 thank you anima from 10 I love it so I enjoyed that um the whole and it's also Varus twist was another one like this is what I this is what I meant earlier when I said that I felt like some of the narrative structure arcs of the like realization and culmination of the towers felt like they got a little bit threadbare in lieu of the like overshadowing thing that we would have coming up, right? So that little bit about Varys being turned into Anima and like us not actually getting any kind of information about how Xenos felt about that or like or like anything about Mr. Why Apathy that doesn't be... care. He don't care. Well, even just hearing something like that, but like to me that moment would have been a phenomenal moment to actually dive more into his history with his father, which we know about from a short story but which would have set up many things about his character that we haven't had in game so far. Yeah. And they made tons of references to the other short stories throughout the rest of the game. So I just thought it was kind of strange. <laughs> That's fair. Um, many, many moons ago, we discussed how uh, I think Anima in 10 is, what's his face's mom or something? Yes. Seymour's so I thought, mom. Seymour's mom. Yes. So it was, it was sort of interesting that that played forward to being Xenos' father. Um, really, the only thing he says is uh, when Anima is destroyed, the last thing that Anima was supposed to do, ordered to do, so really at this point, he's like, yeah, I'm just bossing my dad around. I don't care. Who cares? He's already dead. Sucks to be you, dad. I kind of killed you. Um, his final order is should the Empire fall, which is what has happened, uh, the world should share her fate. So he just starts doing mass temperings. So it's just this complete lack of, of any care between the two of them, which makes sense as far as Xenos is concerned. But I, I agree with you. That's one of those things that I would have liked to have seen uh, in the characterization of Xenos that just kind of didn't get touched on. Um... Do, do they ever actually directly say the body pieces are various? I mean, we can all sort of assume it makes 100% sense, but I didn't remember it ever being directly spoken about. I'm going through looking at some of them as we're talking about it, trying to find like the specific one. There's 
two mentions. I mean, you got the dungeon mention for one. You got the dinner mention for another. The journal for the dinner talks about it a little bit. Okay. And I don't know if in English any of them are explicitly like, yeah, do you remember that hand? Yeah, we dismembered him in the bathtub and we put him in each of the towers. But like there, <laughs> there is there is Van Daniel saying that uh, Varys is anima, anima's in the towers. So it's like you can put it together. Yeah. But I don't know if it's ever explicitly just like, yeah, we use the chainsaw. I mean, it really that one thing in and of itself really does bring up a ton of a ton of questions my guess the best guess that i would have would be that they used varus's corpse as like a heart for a primal a la a la like what we saw with elidibus and zodiac or vina and heidelin and that then they extricated his body from the primal which we know elidibus said that he had to do right like when he he's like you know i saw that my people were suffering in in something that we get with him and so i withdrew myself from zodiac and came to help them in in the wake of the final days so theoretically they withdrew his dead corpse from the primal and then cut it up and then put it around places and these towers were kind of built slash grew around it which raises so many questions for me about like the guardian forces and what it means to be the heart of a primal and you're tied to the primal still because obviously the corrosive force of tempering was still emanating from those towers so it's like I have so I'm... many I'm choosing to believe they didn't think about it too hard and that it was like, let's go with Shinryu, where uh, you have the prayer involved and it's focused on something and they die. Shinryu kind of existed to make sense of Phoenix in a way a little bit. Um, so I think like the the soul of Varys was fused into it and therefore be the body and soul were still connected through the blood catalyst. So they just diced him up and threw him in the towers and therefore spiritual linking something, something. Yeah, and yeah. they just didn't explain it because rated T for teen. Oof. Online really... interactions, not in a read. <laughs> I really wish that they had rounded it out a little more i i honestly like again 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 um any critiques that i have of this expansion are balanced by my just sheer love of this expansion i think it's fair to talk about both things um the greater parallels that could be drawn with the uh, gosh dismembering of the literal like iconic hope of the future of garlemald by his own son who was a product of garlemald by the like all those things can still be read into um there's a part of me that feels like there was just so much to try and tackle in this zone in regards to either the people of garlemald or these figures that we had in garlemald fandaniel and xenos and it seems like they very much lent more into the people of Garlemald, which I am not regretting because, like I said, some phenomenal, incredibly well-nuanced storytelling there. But throughout some of this, or even just some of the other side quest time or something here, I, 
I would have liked to have had a bit more of a balance. Um, you know, I tossed out in chat even, like, if you do that dinner sequence, maybe there is a part where before you fight your way through the city, you manage to break out of the chair in your corpse or something, and then you get to wander around the palace and see more of what's happened or learn more about Xenos or learn more about the context or learn a little bit preemptively about Anima and what the that whole messed up horrific situation is. <laughs> or, like, you know, something where it feels like between those two, that thread line got the short end of the stick. So you come out of it with a lot of places where you're like, I can intuit this and I can maybe put this together and we can assume and we can do all this. But it didn't feel to me quite like, you know, it feels like it would have been a very different narrative journey if it had just been about those two in that zone and exactly what they brought to the table and Xenos and his connection to Garlemald and the, the cannibalism of the empire, essentially. Um, I don't know. There's just a lot of interesting things there, but it, yeah, it didn't feel maybe as well handled as the stuff dealt with with the actual people of Garlemald. So, you catch Xenos and Fan Daniel freeing Zodiac with the power that they've uh, gotten from all the towers around the world, the, the Aether, uh, and they get down to one shackle, one final shackle, before uh, lovely Heidelin slash Kryl just shows up. She just shows up. She was not here. She is here now. Um, and she stops them. And when the two of them use the I guess, laser beam instead of a beam to break the shackles as a teleporter to just go to the moon and, and break the shackle directly, uh, she redirects them to land further away than they, they meant to be. So when you follow them, you can get closer. That made me laugh. I'm not going to lie. I thought that was hilarious. I thought the idea of the two of them tumbling out somewhere. And I just, like, wish that I could have seen. And they're, like, laying there. Like, Xenos is on top of Fan Daniel. Fan Daniel's just like, where the hell are we? I would have liked I just uh, really loved that. That Heidelin was just kind of like, a lull. <laughs> You're not going where you want to go. Because she can't, like, we know she can't actually direct people through the live stream. And she talked about even ushering Minfilia's soul back from the source at some point, uh, or from the first to the source, and that she has control over that, so I just thought that was a real power move and pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, so as they're leaving, Fan Daniel basically gives you the, like, you can't save everybody in Garlemald and follow us too, and you're like, actually we can, there's like eight of us here. So everybody else stays behind and you go to the moon, they say they'll catch up with you uh, when they have the camp well in hand. Um, a silly, a silly note that I had. Uh, the last shackle that was left was the wind, which made me think of Oshan. And the moon is Memphina. Um, and you know, Oshan, Memphina. Oh, I love me. I love oh. me some 12 floor. Um, additionally, knowing that Hydaelyn made the moon to save her children just makes Memphina being the goddess of love even more potent to me. So those were just random things that I thought of that I really liked. Um... I really think that's it before we go to the moon. And as we're approaching our fifth hour, do we want to stop? I think it'd probably be a good pl I mean, personally, I know there's a lot of things to talk about with yeah. the moon, so. Like a lot, like as many as be, we talked about on Garland. I think it would be wise to stop. Do I want to stop? No. Do I no. have the wisdom <laughs> to know it's a good idea to stop? Yes. So sorry, guys. Uh, is there anything else we want to add about about Garlemald? 
I just like the design of Garlemald, I guess. I, I, I don't know if we, we didn't really touch on it too much, but, you know, the whole time uh, Chat was talking about the music, the mm-hmm. atmosphere. I think the contrast, especially coming from Thavnair with its riotous colors and its diverse people, and um, it's very stark going into Garlemald, and I loved that. Uh, th- there's maybe, again, some, some emptiness in the zone that feels like I could have... It's so tough. I mean, it feels like if they had the power and all the technology at their fingertips, they could have done something so dynamic and wild with the city, you know, where it's crumbling around you and people are fleeing and you're like fishing survivors out of it. And like, of course, it's set in a slightly more like post-destruction. But even the kind of tempered, the those who had been actually transformed into almost lunar minions and animas extensions like there's so many things that i think there are rich for the imagination but maybe didn't feel quite as live in the moment but it doesn't detract from the fact that i think the zone itself has a ton of gorgeous details and an atmosphere unlike any other oh my gosh i think there's there's one thing that came to mind because we were talking about kind of the real world cultures that inspire this stuff and how cool it is to see south asian rep for once you know what i mean like so i want to throw out there also um if we're talking about Garlemald, the one thing I think that made me laugh was once we knew about kind of the rough earth analog approach to how Heidelin is laid out or Etheris is laid out now. Uh, once we knew that it was like a rough earth analog, we were all like, oh, does that make Garlemald Russia? And I remember getting there like, oh, let's look for hints that Garlemald is Russia. And it's like, hey, good job with that quest. Here's some borscht. And I was like, <laughs> Well, yes, not to mention like the outfits. So I think it's so cool that we were able to get like South Asian rep out of it and really start representing everywhere on Earth as we go. But also it has just made it incredibly uncomfortable that we turned all of Africa into Greece, (laughs) which is a little... Yes. So I kind of, I kind of want to challenge them to come back from that a little bit. Like I know Mara City is probably going to end up fantasy Australia, but maybe, oh, no. maybe, maybe if we could, that. maybe if we could come up with a way to respect Africa a little, do that would be nice because we kind of just turned them into uh, Greece, which, oops. I mean, yeah, and picture. I mean, honestly, I do like seeing the like Greek or Mediterranean like influence, but I agree. Oh, yeah, we were just I, never supposed to leave. Yes, like I agree in that. Like, I feel very hopeful with them having tackled Thavnair. I think there's a lot, you know, more, far more that they can do to keep expanding this representation. If we could just and, acknowledge that and like yeah. maybe like a little course. <laughs> yes, yes, little lampshade. I mean, there's plenty more places to go. They could add something totally new in there that could actually if, draw on some really unique and interesting and diverse, you know, African mythology and culture. Like, absolutely. Do, uh, uh, the tribe, the tribe, the the U tribe. What if it's, that's Egypt. Egypt adjacent. There's still <laughs> some ways to save it. There's still some ways to save it. Um, yeah. And they need to the actually moment... populate it with people of color. Can I just... Yeah, 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 yeah. Because at the moment, like, I just like, I just want to acknowledge for a minute that while we're given props for one thing, there's a couple other things where I'm like, like, just, I, I, let's come back for it. Let's come back for it. Let's just try to be yes. complete with our imagery. 
Yes. And I've seen, you know, Jaylist here in the chat that's talking about um, the Americas and the fact that, I mean, at least a lot of what we know of the New World is very America-centric. And I also have my own fears about Native American representation and culture. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, the Wallachi have... are going to be, uh, the Wallachi alone are going to be a trip. I'm curious to see how nuanced that gets. Yeah. And again, I mean, we're talking about this as three white people. Um, But because we're surrounded by so many people in this space and players and content creators that, you know, are from an incredible and diverse background and we listen to them very thoroughly as everyone should. um, And we oftentimes get to talk with them even on the podcast. We've done episodes about it, um, which have been so incredible. I, I do think it's so important that it is something that's dealt with well. And I mean, I do feel very good about much of the stuff that happened with Bavnair. And it seems like many people themselves that, you know, are from the cultures that are represented feel pretty good about it. But as we've said, yes, there are still a lot of like, There's, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> what gave, what I think gave me a lot of hope was when, um, when we went to the step. And at first I was like, oh, cool, cool. Fantasy Mongolia. But like, I wonder if, like, is it weird that it's almost like a Dothraki parallel or is it an, is it Mongolian enough that we're being respectful? And like, when I went to go look that up, I saw a lot of Mongolian people that were like, yo, my culture. So I was like, yes, okay, we're still, we're still mostly culturally appropriating in sensitive ways, but it's such a precarious balance. And I'd, I like, I'm so grateful that it continued in Endwalker and I'd love to keep seeing Yes, it's worth, like, that's the thing. You know what I mean? It is worth doing. Um, It is never the kind of thing where you should worry, like, you know, they should be going, uh, you know, oh, we shouldn't do this because it'd be more hassle than it's worth because the peoples of the world are not more hassle. You know what I mean? Like, learning and researching anything, any culture, anything that's different than what you yourself might know, listening to the voices that have lived that, grown up in it, understood it, like, anyone can do this like anybody can and you can bring people on your staff that have a diversity of experiences and that's what we should always be pushing towards so i love that we got more of it in in endwalker and a lot of it that feels much better and more fully realized than a lot of what we've gotten previously um but yes i agree there's definitely a lot more to do um but i would encourage everybody you know take an active interest in a lot of the influences that they did incorporate the color palettes, the motifs, the themes, the location names, the actual real world stuff that it draws upon because um, there is so much, so much enjoyment to be gotten out of it. Even if some of that stuff, again, it's like I'm learning about real world things that, you know, have been reinterpreted in a fantasy setting, but I think you're just richer for learning it, to Hmm. be honest. Just knowing, just knowing the little references and it's everything from like Shakespeare and Amarat to uh, Pandora's box and Elpis and just everything. Everything along along those lines is just you get you get like a little extra oomph. You're like, I think this is supposed to be this, but then you look at the the context of the actual words and you're like, oh yes, it is, but also it's this. And then you look at this other this, and that has another reference set over here that you didn't even realize. And it's just very it's fun. It's rich, as you say. All right. If we're done talking about Gollumalds. And we're too afraid to go to the moon. This is the part in the quest where they're like, do you want to proceed? And we're like, no, we got to go get some potions. <laughs> then let's go. I do not have time. sufficient time to watch all these cutscenes. Yes. Yes. All right. But in the meantime, you can get in touch with us. Uh, my Twitter is Nidra underscore A. 
my Twitch, which has very little on it right now, is Strawberry Bop. Uh, and also, I have a Twitch for that YouTube that you see, Plus One Shot. Uh, now that the holidays are over, we are going to get back into our D&D games. We have three D&D games, and we're all really goofy, so it's, it's usually a lot of fun. <laughs> That's Plus the Word, One the Number, Shot the Word. How about you, Rook? Hello! I have recently had a rebrand, finally, at long last, it went through, so it used to be Bird of Chess, and I'm now Rookery everywhere online, R-O-O-K-U-R-I, um, a little bit of a spelling twist. Uh, you can find me at Rookery on Twitch, YouTube, uh, Twitter, it does have an underscore after it for the time being, uh, Instagram, uh, you can also join the Discord through any of those things, or tune in live, hang out, chat sometime. I love playing MMOs, most notably Final Fantasy XIV and Guild Wars 2, and I love talking about them, everything from casual content role-playing to end-game content. I like to do it all, um, but I'm particularly in love with the lore, theory-crafting, story-building, and musical experiences of the sirens, sirens that go by my house all the time. <laughs> That's what I'm really into. One last send-off. <laughs> One beautiful fanfare to end this podcast. <laughs> So, if you're curious about that, I've got a bunch of lore videos that I started working on and have been working on um, up on YouTube and many more to come. And you, Mr. Moose? Uh, well, I mean, usually I would just say, like, find me on wherever. Lore forums, Discord, everywhere, Gamer Escape server, anywhere with a lore room, really. Um, I am now actually on Twitch uh, at Onwell, A-N-W-Y-L-L. I started by streaming all of Endwalker just to learn how to stream because people were asking me like, hey, do it live, record your reactions. So I learned how to do it. I set up a channel. We are not regular yet, but I'm putting a whole bunch of like experimental stuff in the pipeline to see what's fun, what we enjoy doing. Um, that's about it. Woo, I can't wait to tune in. And of course you can uh, get in touch with Aetherite Radio as a whole at aetheriteradio at gamerscape.com and our Twitter, Aetherite Radio. We also, uh, you guys know we work for Gamerscape? Gamerscape has a Twitter, a Twitch, you probably know about the Twitch since we're on it right now, a YouTube, a Facebook, all Gamerscape. Don't know how they did that, good job. And also we have a Discord where you can come and talk to us about the war stuff that we talked about today, or the war stuff that we're gonna talk about next week, or anything else that you like. We, uh, we hang around in there and, and check out for messages and we love feedback, so come and talk to us. We like that stuff. Um, I hate to cut it off, but that's what we're gonna do. We'll be, be back next week, starting on the moon. At we'll accidentally rhyme just a little bit. <laughs> we'll be back, don't worry. There's a lot more to talk about. <laughs> Thank you everybody for hanging out, and we'll see you next time. Bye.